Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Torah and Rama's Saturday afternoon program. The True Planetary and Galactic History, History, and True History, History of Nasara. So we are a bit late, and our apologies to everyone, uh, but we are here, and we are going to celebrate Mother's Day as we call in the Divine Mother and the Divine Mother aspect of each and every one of us. So please take this time to go into your heart center. And going into the heart center, we call forth the full merchants with our soul, with our higher self, with our monad, with our mighty I am presence, and all of our multidimensional being through to our God presence and goddess presence. See, sense, and feel your pillar being filled with Divine Mother's love in a beautiful pink and platinum frequency anchored directly to Source and directly to Mother Gaia and her crystalline heart. Expand your pillar and expand your heart as we invite in everyone to join us. Please say with me, I am my I am presence. And as my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with every man, woman, and child. I am one with all my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. And so we invite everyone to join us and see them in their pillars of light as well. As we invite in for everyone all of our soul extensions, both planetary and galactic, all of our ancestors, our genetic lineage, our ancestral lineage, all the generations past, all the generations forward, our spiritual lineage, our soul families, our soul pods. We welcome as well all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame our Ascension Council, and Mission Council. We welcome the assistance of all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the diva kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. And we welcome all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim, and all angelic healing teams, all of the Ascended Masters, the Brotherhood of Light, the Sisterhood of the Rose and Rays, all of the um, uh, Enlightened Masters, all of the Radiant Ones, all of the Divine Mother Emissaries, Divine Father Emissaries, and all of the Planetary and Cosmic Hierarchy of Light, all Ascended Master Healers and Healing Teams. We welcome our friends as well from the Galactic Federation of Light and their Healing Teams especially from Arcturus, Pleiades, Sirius, Andromeda, from Chiron, Venus, and from Lyra. And we welcome all cosmic galactic universal healers that can be in service. We welcome all those from the company of heaven and ask our Mother, Father, God to overlight all that we do and magnify, magnify, magnify it in divine water for each being individually and collectively, as well as 999 billion times, 999 billion times, 
again, individually and collectively, in divine will and divine law. We call forth at this time all the rays, all the flames, all the universal laws and ascension waves. With every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received for one and all through every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our org field, multidimensionally, on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level as well, and to be easily and effortlessly digested and assimilated, grounded and anchored, integrated and embodied with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy, serenity and tranquility, balance and equilibrium, in love and light and laughter. And so we call forth everyone and everything in our circle of support. We're going, not going to go through the list, but that includes all of our family members and loved ones and every man, woman, and child. And every situation that is not carrying the highest frequencies of love and light and manifesting heaven on earth, they're all in our circle of support. And we invite in Mother Gaia to join us in receiving all that we receive through her chakras and meridians and layers of her auric field, through her ley lines and song lines, through the grid system, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all aspects of the multidimensional grid system, through every molecule of soil, molecule of air, molecule of water, molecule of fire, and through every portal and vortex and monument and, sa- and monument and sacred place, every stargate, every city of light, as we continue up this amazing journey, up the spiral of evolution along with Gaia as she takes her rightful place as Freedom Star. Our goal here today is to embody divine love, the divine love of Divine Mother. So as we ask her specifically to overlight this work, we call in the highest frequencies of love that we can receive individually and collectively to transform our our to transform our lives, to transform our relationships, to transform the relationships among all nations and every man, woman, and child. So breathe in that platinum pink light of Divine Mother as we proceed. In the name of my beloved, I am present. And, and in the name of the beloved, I am presence of all humanity. As we invite everyone to join us across the planet. I call the power of divine love to be magnified within my heart and world daily. I am love. Joyous love. Radiating love, unconditional love. God consumes my shadows, transmuting them into pure love. This day, I am a focus of divine love. 
flowing through every cell of my being. I am a living stream of pure divine love that can never again be requalified by fear, hatred, anger, dislikes, and grief. All negative thoughts and feelings are now being dissolved and consumed by the power of divine love, which I am. Please say with me, I am, I am, I am love. I am, I am, I am love. I am, I am, I am love. I live in the consciousness of love. I am love in its fullest expression, blessing all humankind with divine love. I radiate love. I am love in action. I radiate love. I am love in action. I radiate love. I am love in action. (coughs) Blessing, uplifting, and healing all on earth. And so it is. Take a nice deep breath. As we call on all the Divine Mother emissaries to magnify all that we are doing. And we see the love... filling and surrounding the planet. As everyone takes this time at this Mother's Day to recognize the Divine Mother energy within themselves, to know how loved they are by Divine Mother, and to love as the Divine Mother loves, purely becoming loved as we proclaim, I am all love. O Supreme Presence of God, Goddess within all life, into your eternal heart of love do I immerse myself and all life on this sweet earth. I consciously surrender my vehicles to be merged with the love nature of your being until I am a pure focus of love, a living jewel in your crown of adoration. The path I walk in life leads only to love. My physical body, filled with love, becomes shining and invincible. My etheric vehicle radiating love transmutes the path Love in my mind ensures the expression of your divine thoughts. Love in my feelings reaffirms that Mother, Father, God is the only power acting. As I am thinking, feeling, and remembering only love, I know that my I am presence is working through me. radiating forth the perfection of my omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent Mother, Father, God, the cosmic I am. All that is to humanity and to all life 
which I have promised to love free. In this awakened consciousness of divine love, my spirit becomes Holy Spirit. And I am the love of God, Goddess, reaching out to claim this earth. In love, I magnetize all of God's blessings to me. And in love, I radiate these blessings forth to all life around me. I am the spirit of love permeating form until all is drawn back into the indivisible whole. I feel the pulse beat of love in all life and the continuity of love in all of the experiences I have ever known. It is all love. I was born out of love. I am evolving through love. And I am ascending back into love. I am all love. And I am grateful. And so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. And so we see the planet held in the arms of of Divine Mother. We see ourselves held in the arms of Divine Mother. We feel her presence, her energy permeating every cell and fiber of our being. And we see the transformation taking place. as we take our rightful place as love's plan- a love planet, truly fulfilling our divine purpose and mission in this universe as a planet of divine love, the love that we truly are. And we see the entire planet and all life responding, joyously accepting these frequencies of love, divine, empowering, transfiguring divine love, so transformational in every way, transforming every aspect of life, individually and collectively. So I ask you to hold this image this week of love transforming the planet of love permeating everyone's consciousness, their minds, their souls, their bodies, their beings, their thoughts, their words, their expressions, their actions. Seeing heaven here on earth as we give thanks to Divine Mother for her presence in our lives, in our beings, in our world transforming us all with divine love. Take a nice deep breath as we anchor this. We call forth Gaia and Sambafon to help us anchor this at this time. And just gently open your eyes. And we thank you for your service. 
just as a way we always thank each of you for being here on the planet at this time to be that open door that no one can shut. Flooding all of the qualities of the divine, but especially divine love to all life. I'm going to invite you to join us every Sunday and Monday, including tomorrow, Mother's Day, for the Ascension Meditation and Activation Call, where we do various meditations and activations and and invocations and and, uh, visualizations. Each, Each week is unique. Each program is unique. And we will definitely be celebrating Divine Mother. This is also the month of Mary, so we'll be uh, celebrating her as a representative of Divine Mother. And so I ask you to join us. We start at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time. We have about um, 25 minutes of greetings and then a short update from Taran Rama. And then we begin our work in earnest of bringing heaven to earth at 9.30 Eastern, 6.30 Pacific Time. I'm going to give you the number for the teleconference call. But if you happen to need another number, I have local numbers. I have international numbers. You can get on from, um, from the Internet. You can get on from uh, an app now, too. So... Let me know if you need that information. Just contact me at Cheryl Croci, C-H-E-R-Y-L-C-R-O-C-I at AOL.com. But the number that we are using um, for most people who work is area code 480-660-2224, 480-660-2224. Our code is always the same. It's 946-7441-POUND. 946-7441-POUND. We'd love to have you join us and let us know where you're calling from. Our love and gratitude goes with you. Have a glorious Mother's Day. Bask in Divine Mother's love wherever you are, whatever you're doing. And... um, Again, happy Mother's Day, not only to all the mothers out there, but to everyone, because we all carry that Divine Mother energy, and we want to activate it in one and all. So with that, have a glorious week, beautiful week, and I'm going to pass the talking stick to Rainbird. So first, we want to thank Torrin Rama for their service. We thank Rainbird for her service, and um, it's most exquisite frequencies of pink and platinum light um, that this talking stick carries and all of the blessings of the Divine Mother to you and to everyone, Rainbird. I pass the talking stick. Thank you, Cheryl. I'll take that talking stick and thank you for your divine service as well. And uh, so here I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are a listener supported radio program and the all of us that make it happen, and we're grateful for our services with BBS Radio, and we're uh, grateful that we get a little bit of discount today, <laughs> because we were late, and there were technical issues, so thank you for your patience, 
with all that, we're, <clears throat> we're grateful for all of you for joining us here today. So here's how we make it happen with the BBS radio. First, I need to tell you what we need. We were needing um, $580 due by tomorrow, but we got discounted by an unknown amount. But it was half of today, in my estimation, is that that is approximately a $60 discount. So $520 is what we need by <clears throat> early this week to get that sent off. And I believe there was already some in the account. Um, so it might not be that much. Um, but I can't really tell you. So I, I don't think there's a risk of spending too much money because we always can use it the next week. So money is still good, and we would like to get caught up. So thank you for your, your attention to this matter. Go into your heart space to see yours to give, and then go to bbsradio.com. And there on the front page, uh, home page of BBS Radio, you'll see a schedule listing. You're looking for the schedule for BBS Radio 2 for this program, the True History, History of Nisera and Our Galactic Origins, and you'll see an icon there and listed at the 3.30 hour, even though it's 4.30, it <laughs> started. But we were gifted that having half that taking uh, our credit. So, yeah, we got we got lucky, and thank you for your patience. Uh, so, anyway, that's where that listing is. And if you click on that icon there, that'll take you directly to our account with CBS Radio, two other Access points is the Friday show, the hard news on Friday nights with Tara and Rama at the um, eight to eight o'clock hour, and these are Central times. You'll see that listing for that program. You can click on that icon there, and then of course there's a wonderful night at the round table with the panel on Thursday nights at the eight o'clock hour, and you can click on that icon there. All of that takes you to our account. Thank you for taking that action. We are so grateful for you and for your participation as we do these programs each and every week. So much gratitude for showing up in that way. And uh, that's how we grease those wheels, get together each week as the family that we have become and, and more to join all the time. So if you're new, let's participate. We're grateful for your participation this way. So there you go. Lots of gratitude. And we're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs. And this week, um, they need $200 to cover their gas and electric bills. And they need $100 for their personal needs. So that's 300 And then um, they have car expenses. And there is a GoFundMe being sent up about that, but I don't have any information on how to access that at this point. Maybe you could enlighten me uh, if there is something now. And anyway, we're gathering funds for them to um, pay for the shuttlecraft that they have in repair so that they can get done what needs to be done and to purchase a new car. So uh, we're asking for abundance that way with that. And the, the immediate needs are, though, for donations to make sure that the, the car gets back in a good way So um, from the mechanic and the mechanic gets paid. So we were looking at $1,400 yesterday for that. 
and um, and 400 of that is past due labor expenses. And ET has been really generous and discounted us them some for some of the labor that he's doing to fix the, the car to get it back on the road until they can get something else. So, but uh, let's let's keep the mechanic happy. Anything that we contribute for the car, just put that in the memo that it's for the car, and and that'll um, get to the right place. So here's how we access Rama's PayPal account and the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account. Uh, <clears throat> What you need to do is go to the web address, which is rainbowroundtable.net. And as you click on that menu grid on the home page, you will see a donate link at near the bottom of that list that drops down. And as you click on that, that takes you to the Rainbow Roundtable account, PayPal. <clears throat> and you can make that donation there using your bank card. And if you want to access the friends option, you, you look down where that gifting list is, you see a heart, click on the heart, and that takes you to uh, a place where you can put in Rama's email at at the Rainbow Roundtable at PayPal, and that email address is Koran, K-O-R-E-N, 9999 at hotmail.com. And that's how you make it happen that way. Then you just put put in your gifting amount there, so as that shows up. So lots of gratitude for taking that action. Either way is perfect. Uh, we're grateful for all your all your gifts and all the ways that you show up in your lives. And so lots of gratitude to all of you. Um, let's see what else. Yeah, if you're sending something, as you're sending something, please let Rama know and and. Uh, use this email address for Rama. It is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999-39 at Comcast.net. Shoot him an email. Tell him what you said and when you sent it. And uh, as you need it, the mailing address is Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D, Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280 and that is in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, where the zip is 87567. And there you go. That's it. I'll say it again. Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. Uh, and it'll get there. I'm <laughs> grateful for all your, all your donations. Uh, 13 thank yous, honey, in the heart. Long life, live long and prosper, <laughs> no evil, and I'm passing this talking stick, and it has all those beautiful rays on it, and the blessings of the Divine Mother, and it has all kinds of fairies and feathers. Uh, so, lots of little people, and the dragons and the unicorns are there in this magical month of May. So, greetings, <laughs> Tara and Rama, here comes this talking stick. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Caroline. Thank you. Caroline Rainbird, Rainbird Carolyn. <laughs> thank you, Cheryl and Rainbird. Yes, and thank you, Cheryl. 
Thank you, everyone. We are so grateful to be here. A little late. Well, there was some. Uh, there are huge thunderstorms and tornadoes all over Texas today. And one is dead and ten are injured from a tornado in the south. And in the north on the plains there, there's all these other very disruptive storms. So thank you for your expertise, Don. You figured it out. Took a while. And uh, we'll be on our way now. And so we're going to start with... Um, Tell everybody what we're going to play. We're going to get right right to it. Oh, this is Dr. Greer. Breaking news. Whistleblowers come forward at the Washington, D.C. event. This is sort of a preview of people that may be showing up there. I know one of them is Richard Doty. And... um, it's an interesting story of what's going on between the folks like this one character named Elonzo, who's connected with um, the guy that used to be the rock singer for Blink-182. And he got together with other men in black, I'll call it like it is, from the agencies and created something called to the stars Academy. And it's not exactly the right information because they are posing this guy Alonso who comes on ancient aliens. And I'm not holding any judgments against any of these folks yet. They're kind of putting the word out that the ETs are not exactly our friends. And that's not true. And I'll leave it there. Yes, and everybody, mm. the um, uh, the information for uh, the GoFundMe, Caroline will put it a link to it on our website. So just yeah, tomorrow, she's still working it'll on happen it. tomorrow. That's just the nature of the beast, but it shall. And I want to take one more time moment. Um, we will put out a request for assistance with all the clarity tomorrow as well. We'll get that out there. And at the end of that, Michael will have an update on the NFT awards. Yes, I gotta and, print that out. And <laughs> just gotta repeat, this is really a good idea. Uh, the collective mind and heart of consciousness can be backed up with things we can do with the money that's going to help where the help is required at the time. And so may we continue to pass every test in the SARA now. All right, let's get started. This is uh, 51 minutes. 51 minutes. Dr. Greer, let's hear what you have to tell us. Here we go. Blake Cousins, we've got a special report for you today. Coming up in June, the Disclosure Project, the National Press Club, it's all going down in D.C. We've got Dr. Stephen Greer with us right now in regards to some breaking news of what's going on. And we've got him. How are you doing today? Good. Been slammed. Very busy. It's exciting what's happening you know, I've been doing this for uh, 33 years. This is certainly the most dynamic, promising uh, breakthroughs in disclosure uh, since the 1940s uh, by far. And what we're going to be doing, for those of you who can attend in person, uh, there are a certain number of seats you can get for the National Press Club event on uh, the 
12th of June, which is that Monday at 2 p.m., where the media and VIPs will be present. Uh, and then the two days before that, on June 10th and 11th, we're going to have two full days of uh, top-secret military witness testimony, witnesses who are whistleblowers from the military in-house, as well as a, a great deal of evidence that's in our disclosure intelligence archive uh, that we have. And that will all be presented over that two-day period. Now, the public National Press Club event, um, that is on that Monday. And, of course, if you come, you can come to all of them, uh, you know, if you register now. It's about a month away, so we just wanted to give everyone an update on what we're going to be doing and what the breaking news out of Washington is. <clears throat> As you know from my previous discussions, uh, we've been providing key information to the investigators uh, in Washington who are trying to get to the bottom of, of this uh, issue. Uh, and the very good news is they now understand that there really is an unconstitutional and illegal and, frankly, treasonous project going forward uh, on the UFO issue that does not have the oversight and control of the president or the Congress. Now, because they now know that as a fact, uh, there are things happening, uh, some of which I cannot really talk about yet, but I will tell you that there are big breakthroughs and uh, the, the game is going to be up very soon in the next few months. So what we're trying to do is prepare the public and all of you guys for the changes that are coming uh, over the next uh, 6 to 12 months as this all begins to unfold. And uh, the National Press Club event, and the conference, the two-day conference before it, uh, there will be people coming. Uh, let me just give you some, like, highlights of some of the people who will be there in person. We have a person coming who was a, a Marine battalion uh, guy who uh, was uh, deployed uh, to uh, Indonesia after the big earthquake and tsunami in 2009, who uh, his, his five buddies and his platoon after they were dropped off by a helicopter from their ship, came across a massive 300-foot in diameter uh, man-made UFO, alien reproduction vehicle, offloading vast quantities of uh, drugs and illegal weapons. Uh, there's multiple corroborating witnesses to this. They were threatened with execution. They were uh, forced to sign uh, non-disclosure agreements. He has come forward and has been brought into the system already in Washington into a SCIF, a secure uh, compartmented information facility. Uh, but he will be presenting live at the two-day conference and briefly at the National Press Club event. We have another gentleman <clears throat> who was in the Air Force at the Nellis, so-called Area 51 complex, and at Wright-Patterson. Uh, who is coming forward. He has been brought already through that system, uh, and but he will also uh, most likely at least be confirming what he has uh, handed over to the government and demanding that this be followed up with. Uh, we have a gentleman who was on uh, the USS Eisenhower when a massive object, uh, as they were beginning to enter, before they entered the Mediterranean um, and they were in the Atlantic, uh, came over the ship, and when they locked on it with some of their targeting systems, the entire vessel went black. All nuclear systems were taken offline. 
Uh, and this guy is a crypto top secret, uh, uh NSA CIA, uh, cleared guy who was on the ship. Uh, and he, the full information of that will be provided. We have another gentleman who will be there who was at a, uh, facility out in the desert of California in the Mojave Desert, a training facility in uh, 2000 and 2001 with uh, two Raytheon, um, uh, officials when uh, two different uh, man-made, not extraterrestrial, triangular objects came in that were electrogravitic and silent uh, and which were that he had uh, on his night scopes and saw and learned about them. And then in a subsequent event, had one that was a smaller one come to the front of his car as he was entering the base and all the electronics went down. And these, it, this entire event, uh, is uh, an unbelievable series of events that happened um, with this gentleman. And then there's uh, a couple of others that are uh, in the process of being uh, reviewed and seeing if they uh, feel comfortable coming forward. One uh, is a man who was at the uh, very top-secret state-of-the-art facility, much more so than Area 51, the Dugway Proving Grounds, uh, in Utah, and he was working for a corporation as a contractor and was uh, in a facility where he saw in the first time uh, something that looked like a partial human, partial extraterrestrial uh, person. One was dead and one was alive, surrounded by scientists. He thinks it was an accident extraterrestrial, but something that had been some kind of concocted genetic experiment. The other time he came into a facility and there was a extraterrestrial vehicle uh, that was being examined uh, by a group of scientists in a clean room, as it were. And uh, he uh, uh, has the full description of that, the date, the where, the sector, the part of the base, even the building numbers and code numbers where this happened. Uh, we have his information. Uh, he also located an entry point uh, out in the desert uh, with an area where around a thousand cars were parked with an opening and a small building that went underground. And the scientists that he knew that worked there said that this was a vast facility around 1,300 square miles, not acres underneath, deep underground. Um, then we have uh, a, a series of folks who have given us their information and we have their drawings of various other events, including a man who for 10 years worked in a very deep black project at the Pentagon uh, where he was deployed to various locations. Uh, for example, to one base that was out in uh, Oklahoma, uh, I mean, uh, Fort Sill. Uh, yeah, and, and near there in Lawton, uh, Oklahoma, there was a skiff an underground facility where there was an extraterrestrial vehicle that was being studied uh, and the fact that there was a security breach with someone bringing in an unauthorized person from Booz Allen Hamilton, which is a big uh, contractor for the U.S. government, who was trying to get um, a lead a leg up on the contract to study how this object could cloak, quote, unquote, itself. He was also read into projects uh, uh, dealing with uh, let's call it invisibility technologies and warfare, satellite weapon systems, as well as other facilities uh, where there were 
underground research uh, projects, uh, including the Research Triangle Park in North Carolina and also down in uh, Orange County, California, underneath an office building. And he was also uh, had dealt with a facility outside Seoul, South Korea, where there was a huge extraterrestrial vehicle that they had downed with apparently some type of electronic warfare system that was in a, they had to carve out a huge part of the mountain just to contain this object because it was too big to move to any other site and that it is still there. So this is just sort of like, you know, the very tip of a vast uh, uh, iceberg that we're going to start uh, un- unfurling here on June 10th, 11th, and 12th. Uh, the men that are coming are, of course, very courageous, and uh, we are also in the process of requesting that the Congress pass an explicit bill protecting these guys' pensions as well as their uh, physical security through either the federal marshal system, uh, witness protection, or some other system. So uh, it's a very dynamic uh, events that are happening. We've also learned of a senior executive with a major corporation, which I do not wish to name right now, that we are hoping can come forward. He was the uh, chairman. It's a, it's a company, everyone would know the name of it, that was holding the technologies, the so-called free energy technologies. He has the documents for it, but he is, of course, very concerned for his and his family's safety. He's retired, uh, and so we're working with that. Um, we're also working with a group of people in the Congress to hold open hearings on this uh, subsequent to this National Press Club event. And uh, apparently some or a few of them could be there at, at the conference. So it's a, certainly the most significant forward movement in the history of our attempts to disclose this fully to the public uh, in history. And I really hope all of you can be there. If you can't be there in person, you're going to miss probably the biggest historic event ever, but at least you can be there. We're going to live stream all of it. So uh, there'll be a link at this YouTube so you can get on, on and uh, see this live. Um, the entire event, not just the national press club event, but it's a two day conference where uh, quite frankly, we do a press conference in Washington. You got about two hours. If, to get everything in, but uh, we're going to have, uh, you know, more like, uh, you know, 10 hours a day on Saturday and Sunday, June 10th and 12, uh, 11th to go through all of this in greater detail than you can uh, imagine. Uh, so and we're also going to have some really uh, amazing new uh, information on a lot of the objects that have been downed, what they look like, what the ETs look like. We have both uh, the original witnesses, um, military witnesses, uh, sketches, and then professional artwork that's been done by Matt Michael Schratt and his team so that people can see what these uh, ETs actually look like and what the craft actually look like. Uh, we're also going to have a section of all the different diverse um, Raytheon, uh, Lockheed Skunk Works, Northrop Grumman, man-made UFOs, and what they look like, you know, how are they shaped, uh, how do they resemble and differ from an extraterrestrial vehicle. All You're going to learn all this. All this is going to be very clear. And perhaps the most stunning uh, thing that you're going to see is the list of uh, 750 or so military intelligence and corporate whistleblowers that we now have 
the ones that we can name publicly will be on there. The others, their names will be blackened out, but what they will testify to uh, will be on the document you'll see. Uh, you will also be seeing a master facilities list. Let me describe what this is. This is the actionable intelligence, as they call it, from these hundreds of top-secret military whistleblowers where we're going to name the basis, the corporate contractors, the gates, the code names, the, the base underground location, entry points. Uh, everything we have is going to be in this document. It will not be redacted. All of it's going to be released publicly, every bit of it. Um, and this is to be used by the military and the Congress and the Department of Justice and the White House to put together a team to enter and investigate these operations and get them under constitutional control. One thing all of you need to understand, there are really two governments globally. There's the governments of the we, the people you vote for, and they appoint people and they come and go every two, four, six, eight years, whatever. Um, that government does not have control over this subject as of this moment uh, as we're recording this. Uh, the truth is, is that there is a illegal secret government. It has now been the assessment that has been reached. We, I reached this assessment when I briefed the director of the CIA for Bill Clinton. Um, but in reality, it's just now sinking in to some key people in Washington who are in the legal government that this is a big problem. So we hope that this can get resolved in the next year so that we, our civilization can move forward instead of being arrested where we have been since the 40s and 50s. And that brings me to the next big thing that's going to happen on Sunday, um, June uh, 11th. That night, we're going to have the first world screening, not the premiere, but because that's in L.A. at L.A. Live on July 8th, you should when we announce that, grab your tickets um, because there's a limited number of seats there. But at this event in Washington, D.C., on uh, June 11th that night, we're going to have the screening of the lost century and how to reclaim it. You can see the trailer now. Um, and that will be coming out available to the public on June 6th, so by June 10th. Uh, but this will be the first time you can actually see it on a big screen uh, at the uh, – JW Marriott at the ballroom where we're going to be holding that conference. And then afterwards, we're going to have an after party for those of you who want to come and, and, uh, party hardy, uh, have, have some fun. So, um, so that, let's take a look at that trailer. Why don't yeah, we right now? Put it in there. Let's just show it. Yeah. Let's do it. Okay. The Lost Century, the new trailer, it's going to be in DC in June. Watch this. Identified flying objects is an obfuscating term. This is an alternative energy and propulsion device. Between the late 1800s and now, the ingenious inventions and sciences have all been ruthlessly suppressed, confiscated. It reads like a James Bond movie, but it's real. It happened here in the United States. Master gravity control here on Earth, not extraterrestrial. These are projects that are off the radar, even of the people who manage the black project. 
when someone asks me how bad is the crisis, I kind of don't know where to begin. There is something nefarious afoot. These technologies would end fossil fuels, pollution, and poverty overnight. That's pretty intriguing. This lost century of technologies that have existed, that have vanished, is the biggest cover-up scandal in the history of the world. All right, well, you know, it is quite incredible. Like, it's been 22 years since the National Press Club, a little over that. And, you know, hundreds of millions of people watch that across the planet. I, I got a feeling what you're telling me today is you've got these whistleblowers that work within the government, you know, verified government retired officials coming forth with this uh, shocking uh, information in regards to the cover up. And you're saying that some of the safe, there's some safety concerns. How do these people actually reach out to you? And, uh, mm-hmm. and when did they come to you and say, Hey, look, this is what I know, but I'm afraid of coming forth. What kind of protections can you give me? How does that kind of roll out? Mm-hmm. Well, they usually write to our website, uh, seriousdisclosure.com, S-I-R-I-U-S disclosure.com. And under the contact bar, um, button there's a, a list for government whistleblowers witnesses and so generally they come in that way some of them are referred by other people uh like one i just got off the phone with uh, just before this who is the one of the nellis uh area 51 air force guys uh he was referred to me by a uh highly classified uh person because this man still works for the u.s government and they're a top secret special compartmented information clearance um and he was referred to me by someone on the inside so they come through diverse ways um but most of them through our website and i would say also anyone who is listening or who may know someone who would be such a witness and whistleblower they should contact us uh because there's still time to bring them into this national press club event Uh, we're adding to the roster of folks coming forward uh, every couple days now. Um, and uh, I will tell you that we have about two or three new, uh, top secret military intelligence and corporate whistleblowers coming into our disclosure project operation every week now. So this is beginning to be, it's a bit much because, you know, as you know, we don't have any paid staff or offices. So with, you know, the people working with this, I mean, we're getting a bit, bit overwhelmed, but, um, it's, uh, it's exciting because uh, all this is breaking forward. Um, the other big announcement about this is that I have met with some people with the key committee in the House of Representatives who have decided they want to hold open as opposed to classified hearings on this. Um, and one of the things you're going to see at this two-day event on, on June 10th and 11th is an overview of this five-terabyte intelligence hard drive that we're handing off to these investigators. And it is everything. Um, it is everything of consequence and, and evidence on the subject that we can find. Uh, and to that end, by the way, if people are holding uh, government documents or other key evidence that they think we should include in this archive, they should contact us uh, like right away because we're in the final uh, process of at least this first draft of this disclosure intelligence archive 
being assembled and organized, at least rough organized. I mean, it's going to take a year to do it properly uh, to hand off to the investigators in Washington because this is a rapidly evolving situation. So we want to get most of what we have into their hands by June 1st before the National Press Club event. With all the information that's coming forth, especially in regards to this, like, clandestine black projects, and when you're talking about these ships that are still buried there because it's so large they couldn't even relocate it, is this going to rile the government up, some of these congressmen and these senators? Because these last hearings that they've been putting forth really don't amount to much, but what you're bringing forth is eyewitness testimony, verifiable uh, people Mm -hmm. that work within the government. How is this going to change the minds? Are we going to be able to get access to uh, some of these uh, locations, this ship that's buried? Uh, what's your thoughts on <laughs> this? Is riling things up? This is this is big stuff. Oh, it is. Yeah. Oh no, it's it's everything is an upheaval. I will tell you that right now. And the people on the wrong side of the law on this are running scared, uh, and they should be. So here's what here's what I'm going to say. I would be very clear on this. It that now is the time over the next. Now uh, would be best, but over the next six to 12 months to get on the right side of the law on this because the deception with the leaders in Washington is over. And after June 12th, the deception with the public will be over. Uh, but the, of course, as a private non-governmental entity, uh, we don't have, uh, law enforcement capability. We don't have a strike team. We don't have subpoena power, but the FBI, the Department of Justice, the Pentagon Universal Code of Military Justice uh, provisions, their, their laws, uh, as, as well as the Congress committees and oversight and, uh, the presidential powers all have that ability. The best we can do is to advise them, give them the evidence, but also give them the roadmap. Where are these assets? Which corporations have them? Who are the individuals who are willing to come forward under oath and be subpoenaed and testify about this? Now, the only other way as an organization we could do it, and it would probably cost between 5 and $10 million, is to institute a civilian RICO action racketeering influence corrupt organization and you can as a private individual or organization such as ours you can institute one of those uh which is basically rico is for like the mafia or organized crime because we have enough evidence and witnesses now to prove that this organization is in fact a criminal illegal enterprise and so it would squarely fall under rico but again unless somebody has a huge law firm willing to do this pro bono for free or someone who can fund that, which we don't have funding of that amount at this point, uh, then the next best thing and the preferred route anyway would be the executive branch, the White House and the Congress uh, authorizing a full investigation and hearings and if necessary, subpoenas and prosecution uh, after a period of amnesty. Now, as you know, a lot of people don't know this, when President Clinton was looking into this before he got waved off by George H.W. Bush and told to butt out. Um, and by the way, we have a person coming forward who I'm hoping he'll be there, um, who actually was with Bill Clinton when Bill Clinton told him 
that when he tried to get into the bottom of this, that he was pushed out and told to leave it alone by former President George H.W. Bush, who also had been director of the CIA back in the day. But when, when Clinton was looking into this, I wrote a series of executive orders, but also recommendations. One of them was an amnesty period where top secret witnesses and corporate folks, even if they had greatly benefited financially or committed certain high crimes, misdemeanors, felonies, would have an amnesty for a period of time. So if they could come forward, in fact, this, you, this will, you will see this in the in, uh, intelligence archive. We're going to eventually get to the public. Um, and uh, unfortunately, Clinton never could take it that far because he basically got threatened and pushed aside uh, when, during, he was, during his attempts to uh, get to the bottom of this back in the 90s after you know, we provided the uh, briefing materials for him. And then I had briefed the, the, his first CIA director. But ultimately, uh, we we are very much in favor of there being a, um, a bloodless revolution here, let's call it, like, <laughs> like in Eastern Europe, where this information comes out, the rogue elements get pulled back under proper constitutional oversight and control by we the people's government, and more importantly, we the people, because ultimately the secret projects in the government are always subject to corruption. This is the danger of, of too much secrecy. Uh, so, and, and luckily there are some people, I mean, such as uh, there's a, a congressman from Tennessee named Congressman uh, Tim Burchett, who uh, has been very vocal about the fact that the current process of this being uh, uh, witnesses coming before uh, in a Pentagon program the Aero program that then goes to a classified briefing for a few members of Congress, uh, it's just not going to cut it because, you know, after 70, 80 years of this kind of secrecy, uh, he and many of his colleagues actually are now saying that it has to pivot to an open congressional hearing, but that isn't a, some stupid dog and pony show like uh, Gerald Ford had when he was in the Congress and others have had that it would be actually a hard hitting investigation. And luckily here's, here's what's important about this uh, intelligence archive we're providing because it has enough people's names and information to be subpoenaed. And it has the full facilities list. And I mean, everything we've collected of every place that is relevant to get into uh, they would have enough uh, quivers, you know, all right? They, they would have enough arrows in their quiver to be able to really penetrate those projects and get them under control. Uh, but it's important that people who would want to come clean uh, would be given a period of amnesty because some of them have gotten called up in these projects uh, and they once they were in, they couldn't get out. And if they tried to get out, they would be assassinated. Uh, but in their being in, if they were high enough in the system, they did benefit tremendously financially and uh, personally. So those people actually, if they could be given a period of amnesty to come forward in the interest of uh, the country and of, the, of humanity, I think that would be a good thing. It'd be a win-win situation. Uh, and it's not at all to excuse the atrocities that have happened over the years with this at all. Um, 
and you know, if, if any, I'm very well aware of the people who've been victimized by these systems and who have been killed and defamed. And so these kinds of witness intimidation, felonies, entrapments, murders, uh, some of the people who've done those things, that's beyond the pale. But there are other people who've been in the system who have not been involved in those operations, uh, who are still need protection, but also need amnesty. So that is one of the things we're strongly recommending. Um, and I think particularly in the corporate sector, because the center of gravity on this issue, uh, when Eisenhower warned about the military industrial complex, he was really talking about this hybrid quasi government, quasi private financial corporate world that has benefited tremendously from the secrecy not only in terms of keeping the free energy technologies away from the public and protecting, you know. You know what it's like when plaque psoriasis makes you hide your skin under sleeves to have a turtleneck choking you in 92 degrees. You know what it's a thousand trillion dollars worth of assets in oil and gas and coal and public utilities. But the spinoff technologies, one of the guys I was talking to today who is a Air Force guy, he was in charge of monitoring the conversations with scientists working on the extraterrestrial materials and how they would take it. And if once it was cleared to be OK to go to the public, would be allowed to personally benefit and their corporation contractors to benefit by patenting some breakthrough and bringing it to market. And, of course, uh, Colonel Corso talked about this. Uh, and the day after uh, after Roswell about the early material from Roswell and other crash retrievals. But that project has been actually greatly increased over the last 30 years. And so this creates only a revenue stream for people in these illegally run projects. But uh, it, it, it also uh, shows how how much the American public has paid for but then have been subsequently robbed of. So you know, we paid through black budget, illegal parts of the black budget, not the legal parts. Um, and by the way, this is another thing we're going to deconstruct and, and, and uh, uh, disclose and unveil. It is the difference between the black budget of the United States and the illegal secret government black budget and how they're funded and where the inter- interface is. And very few people understand this. In fact, this is one of the first things I've had to describe and discuss with senior investigators in Washington over the last year and a half, because some of the folks I'm working with literally oversee the black budget of the United States. And yet they knew nothing about the UFO issue. They knew nothing about these corporate programs. Um, they knew nothing about the technology transfer and this patenting process. And they knew nothing about the illegal arms and drug running that creates an enormous untraceable cash flow uh, that is clearly a criminal enterprise. So uh, that that's why all of this needs to start getting under control, because it's a monster, uh, Frankenstein, that we created through the classified system in the 40s and 50s that then got up and walked off. The, that Frankenstein got up and walked off the table. Uh, in the 50s, and Eisenhower completely lost control of these operations. No fault of his own. I mean, he, he basically trusted the people around him, and he was betrayed. Um, some of, something I can relate to very well. But I think that ultimately, uh, it's now time 
for all this to get fixed. And uh, that's where the lost century comes in. Because look at the subtitle of this documentary, The Lost Century and How to Reclaim It. In other words, it's, a, it's one thing to kvetch and complain about the state of the world and everything and secrecy and cover-ups and blah, blah, blah. But then how do you fix it? How do you reclaim those lost 100 years? Well, there is a way to do it, and that's what's also outlined in the documentary. Because I don't think it's – to be honest with you, Blake, there's no value in describing a problem and stirring around the muck unless you have a way to suggest a solution to go forward. And so I think it's very important that we not just muckrake and complain about the secrecy, um, however salacious some of it is, but we also say, here's how we fix it, not only from the governmental point of view, but from the environmental and energy and technology point of view. How do we do what I call a time snap where we pull back, uh, you know, we basically back to the future. We basically bring into the now the lost opportunities, technologies that were in a fully operational 100 years ago, 70 years ago. Uh, even the anti-gravity lifter systems, the field propulsion, those were mastered in October of 1954, uh, which also, newsflash, here's another talking point to look for at the National Press Club. When they showed the Tic Tac, uh, uh, and I, I've spoken to David Fravor, who is the F-18 Hornet pilot for the Navy, chasing that object there off the coast of San Diego. Uh, you know, everyone's been told, gee, is it from China? Is it this? Is it that? That was one of ours. And what's interesting, we have the information from the gentleman who was in 1991 at a, uh, in a classified operation during the first Gulf War and being offloaded at, at the Azores Islands from a C-130 transport was the Tic Tac. And that was whatever, whatever, you know, we're talking, what, 30 years, uh, 20, 20 years, uh, 23 years before, you know, the F-18 Hornet that David Fravor flew, chased it. And then you go back to a case in, in uh, Pennsylvania uh, where multiple witnesses saw exactly the same thing, the Tic Tac, floating over the countryside, for which we have the uh, reporting and uh, a very good professional drawing of that object. So I think part of this also is is unveiling the risk of these false flag operations where things that look alien can be deployed to deceive the public, to deceive our own pilots and military, like these Navy pilots, and deceive the Congress and the media. So I think it's very important that all of this come out, but that these these dots get connected so that people understand why this is important, because it, in the secrecy and let's call it the enforced secrecy that results in the ignorance on this subject, the Congress, the president, the media, the American public could be tricked uh, into a false flag event, thinking that it was of extraterrestrial origin when it's actually of human origin designed for its psychological warfare value. So that's another whole part of disclosure that has to happen, uh, and it has to happen quickly because as this train, this freight train's left the station from a governmental investigatory point of view, the question is, will this covert cabal of illegal operations hit the button and start staging things? 
trick us into a World War III, trick us into an alien invasion of World War hoo-ha, which, of course, they've been planning for 70 years. I think that time, in this sense, is very much not on our side, and it's for that reason I think we have to be able to go uh, expeditiously forward on this. Let's get in. Let's get into the whistleblower's head here, because with what you're saying, time is paramount here. Is that some of the reasons why these uh, whistleblowers are coming forth now? What is their major concern, and what's what is their demeanor when you're when you're speaking with them? And just are are these regular uh, U.S. citizens? Obviously, they're connected with the military, but what is their demeanor, and why are they coming forward now? They're coming forward now because they've seen that enough of this is beginning to leak out. And when we put out to the public and singer uh, Chris Brown then dropped that link, as did a lot of other supportive um, influencers, and it got seen by millions of people. And the point I was making, if those of you who want to see it, should go back and see the this Ron, uh, Sean Ryan show I was on, and I believe uh, February or March, uh, that was an appeal to military intelligence corporate whistleblowers come forward and we made the case for it that the Congress passed and the president signed two days before Christmas uh, in December uh, the National Defense Authorization Act of basically the bill that funds the Pentagon that had a provision in it for UFO, UAP whistleblowers and witnesses to come forward even with their security clearances and even with their non-disclosure agreements in place, and to do so safely without a penalty, without legal repercussions, and without their pensions or anything else being threatened. So that we announced widely as soon as it happened, if you remember, in January and February. Um, and so not only through those podcasts like the Sean Ryan Show and many others, but through our own system, and that caused, for example, we had a, a, a elderly U-2 spy plane pilot from the 60s come forward, and he had been following our work for over 20 years. But until that law was passed, he was never comfortable coming forward um, to speak because there was no legally sanctioned, protected way to do it. Well, now there is. So uh, I think that that made a big difference, and that, as you know, was something that I was advocating and, and over the last couple of years was helping with providing some guidance on the wording of it. You know, the early version of that provision left out all the contractors. And I said, whoa, <laughs> the, we're the biggest center of gravity is in the contracting world. That's where it's all at. Yeah, that's where most of it's at. So they then changed the wording to cover those guys as well. So that's very important. But now we need another provision that it more explicitly even though it's implied in the current law, it protects their pensions. But also, I think we have to get this amnesty uh, period uh, in place, you know, whether it's six months or a year. Uh, I, I, it can't be open-ended uh, because it, it has to have teeth. Uh, and, you know, this is something I've been recommending since 1993 and 94. I can prove it. Uh, but I think that now, beginning, I think there are people in the U.S. government now who understand that that's really needed that because now they have enough evidence to know that this is a legitimate area of, of real concern. So uh, in the corporate 
sector. And, uh, it, and it would need to have teeth where, you know, there's X amount of time, you come forward, you come clean, you disclose everything to the legal constitutional government, or you will be prosecuted, period. So that is something that I've been wanting to see happen. And I'm hoping that with what we do after the National Press Club event, and we will articulate this at the National Press Club briefly, uh, the rationale for these uh, laws that need to be put in place, uh, because that, I think, is going to be the safest way to get the highest valuable people to come forward um, who are embedded in the corporate world, like this this very senior executive with, with a major corporation who wants to come forward, but is afraid of having his wealth confiscated and also his family and he being, you know, quite frankly, assassinated. So uh, there need to be very clear provisions uh, for that. And I think once the members of Congress and, and other people in the White House, I'm dealing with some military people in the White House, um, understand the gravitas and the, the severity of the situation. I'm hoping that they will all support those sort of provisions that will make it safer, uh, faster, easier for uh, folks like that to come forward transparently. If you feed your dog dry food, stop and do this instead. This is raw, unprocessed. You know, the, the information, five terabytes, you're bringing forth the eyewitnesses. This is going to be something that is kind of unprecedented. We haven't seen anything like this in a it's long completely time. completely unprecedented. Yeah. And this is, this is going to be um, something that people need to watch. They need to get the word out. So we're going to be supplying the original links below to all the events and uh, how you could participate in it. But uh, what about the, the guys in Washington? This is taking place in D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many people are going to be showing up like – Congressmen, uh, senators, are they going to, you're going to be dropping this information to them? We, we have no idea. Um, mm-hmm. you know, look, these things are evolving. A lot of people show up at the last minute. Um, this is why we're holding back in the ballroom of the National Press Club, uh, a hundred seats for people who could just pop in, uh, who are these sort of, uh, folks from Pentagon, White House, uh, Congress, et cetera. Um, and I think, Similarly, for the two-day conference, we're holding back a, a capacity for that. Uh, we don't know because we were a month out. And, you know, a lot of people who are those kind of very busy folks, it gets on their radar and at the last minute they say, gee, I'm going to come. Now, here's something everyone listening can do. You can write to your member of Congress. You all have one representative and two senators and the president. Those four people, each of you should write to and say, this is happening. Here's the link. You can come for free. You can see the entire event for free and provide a link. All right. Now, why is that important? Because at a certain point, these elected political figures need to hear from their constituents because those are the people that put them in office. Uh, and I think that this is where when people are apathetic and don't act, then they can't complain about the state of the country, frankly. I mean, if you don't do anything about it, and this takes, what, you know, an hour for you to write this out and then send it to these four when take an hour. Um, but everyone should take half an hour of their time and do this, and I'd say do it now, right now. It only takes five minutes now with ChatGBT. Yeah, 
So, uh, you know, I, but it, it's everyone can do that. And I know, you know, the people in, in these political spheres, uh, if enough people write on any particular issue, it will be shown to the member of Congress or the Senate. Um, so I think it's very important. And same thing at the White House. I mean, these these are all creatures of both publicity and what they're hearing from from their uh, their customers or their constituents. So and and it's also important that people help us find more and more influencers, um, because remember, the mainstream media tends to ignore these sort of bold steps forward. They all they want to cover you know, superficial, gee, we don't know what these are, rubbish sort of things. Uh, something like this that's going to have all the evidence, proof, and whistleblowers, they tend to ignore. Uh, and so, thank goodness now, however, with social media, the Internet, and people can then write to their members, uh, that dynamic is no longer the, the control of a handful of media moguls, right? So that democratization of the system which the internet and social media has allowed, we need to utilize that very heavily in the next 30 days. Uh, and then uh, at, at that point, we'll see. I mean, I always tell people, look, you know, an unfunded, you know, operation like this. I mean, we have no institutional government funding. We have a few uh, donors who provide some money and we have uh, some admission fees to events we do, which pays for, guess what? Every one of these top secret guys we're bringing to D.C., not just the ones who are coming to our event in June, but the ones we've been bringing, we're paying for their airfare, their lodging, their drivers, their security. We're not the government. So, you know, people who kvetch about this, I go, well, you know, if what do you want? If you want this done, you know, put your money where your mouth is. So that's the other thing. We need some major donations to come in in the next year we will spend at least 450 to 500 thousand dollars on this effort um and we don't have that kind of revenue so uh we need folks to step up to the plate and help us with that as well with funding you know this is going to be a powerhouse and uh like you said you're covering the cost you're actually putting out the National Press Club. You're streaming it live for mm-hmm. free on your channel. This is uh, something with all the work, five terabytes of information. I've been speaking mm-hmm. with Michael Stratt. He's been working his mm-hmm. ass off, to, to be frank. You know, you guys, there's a lot of uh, moving parts here. Oh, yeah. Stop and get it all together in these three days coming up in June. Uh, I, you know, I can't wait. A lot of people can't wait. And this kind of benefits 99.9% of the world's population. It's a exactly. 0.1% that's afraid of this information getting out. So uh, this is something that's uh, quite extraordinary, and we're excited about it. Is there any uh, last thing you want to add in to this? Well, one thing is that the, the lost century uh, and how to reclaim it, it doesn't drop fully alive until um, June 6th. But right now, you can pre-order it on Vimeo. Eventually, people can get it before then. Um, and I also want people just to put on their calendars. If you want to come to the world premiere of it on July 8th, that's a Saturday in Los Angeles at LA Live, just put it on your calendar. We, we haven't started actually promoting that because we're covered up with this event in Washington, but just keep that in mind. That'll be a great event on a huge screen at LA Live with, uh, hundreds of people. And we're also have a fun after party there too. We always have <laughs> work hard, play hard. 
Yeah. Absolutely. And, hey, and don't forget uh, UFO Endgame to Disclosure. That's something you could uh, catch up right now. It's available worldwide, and uh, that's been uh, yep. crushing it. We're on a tear with that. It's taking yep. the number one spots on Amazon and iTunes. But then The Lost Century is coming around, and uh, we're looking forward uh, to watching that, and I'm sure it's going to be very insightful. You know, you say there's it's not just about revealing it and complaining about what's going on, but then there, you have these uh, things in this documentary that gives us uh, ways that it could be fixed, and uh, th- that's important. Definitely. Right. It it, 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 out, it proves the subject. It proves the science, the history, the problem of suppression. But then it has a very clear path of how to fix it. So every problem that someone finds, they need to find a way to fix it. Uh, and we're you know cosmic. Let's fix it, sort of guys here. So, uh, but that also is going to take a, a, a lot, millions of people learning about this and supporting any effort to bring the technologies out. Uh, as I have suggested before, open source, no patents, no holdbacks, no intellectual property holdbacks. Uh, the, the initial circuitry and science and physics needs to be practically developed and released. Uh, freely so that thousands of companies and startups can begin to use it so we get off the current energy paradigm and start a civilization that is sustainable uh, without poverty and that is saves the Earth's biosphere. Uh, it can be done. It can be done in 10 to 20 years uh, just, but, and frankly, that's about how much time we have left before things really take a bad turn uh, from a geophysical and environmental point of view. So I, I hope that people will, when they see that, understand that that's also a call to action. It's an aspect of the whole call to action of disclosure, because part of the disclosure project has always been it's not just the information and the secrecy and the existence of these projects and of extraterrestrial intelligence and what have you. It has to be disclosed. It's the practical disclosure of the science and technology that would give us an entirely new and beautiful civilization, you know, that, you know, our children and grandchildren, I have now 12 grandchildren, uh, would actually have a prosperous, peaceful and and a very clean planet to live on. So if not now, when? If not us, who? I mean, this has been dragged on now for 100 years. Uh, we don't have another 100 years, my friends, to fritter away uh, the air and the water and the land. It, it, we need to get this on now and, and catch up with the lost century. Well said, Dr. Greer. I appreciate uh, you joining us and uh, doing this uh, bite, uh, this channel on both streaming yeah. channels. Uh, this has been great collaboration and uh, what's happening next month in DC. And we're going to be meeting new people, new whistleblowers, new faces behind all this yes. uh, revealed for the first time to the world. This is going to be absolutely incredible. Be safe. Um, Next month, buckle up, everybody. It's going to be yeah. huge. So, yeah, thank you. Appreciate it, Dr. All Sanders. right. See you guys we'll there we'll in DC and Jim. We'll see you guys soon. Absolutely. We'll All be right. there. All, All right. right. Bye bye. We'll talk to you. Uh, <laughs> oh, my. I know. Just gotta say that I think that the, we don't have to wait 10 or 20 years. There are things happening 
Right. I don't think he said that. I said he said we just have at the most we have twenty years before this goes really up to taking a bad turn. Yeah, we're going to work on this now. There's a potential for some programming here. We're going to put the next program on, and then we will. We'll just say there's so much coming now. So this one. Our friends Ethan Fox and Michaela Sheldon, they have another um, program here. It's uh hour and 43 minutes. So we better get started. Hmm. We won't get it finished, but we'll get some of it going. Uh, and it's called Living Your Soul's Purpose. And so here we go, right now. Ayla Sheldon, and I am here with Ethan Fox. And one of the most common questions that I get in a channeled session is, what is my soul's purpose and why did I come to planet Earth? So we thought we would dedicate an entire show to this topic, knowing, of course, there's many many different directions that we can take it. And one of the things that we have to keep in mind, I think personally, is that a soul's purpose is not one thing. We tend to think very linearly here on planet Earth. And while certainly I believe all of us come with an intention and spiritual gifts and abilities that we're meant to use in some very purposeful way, we should keep in mind that we're here to do many things. And and just because we may not have, quote unquote, awakened to that one spiritual purpose yet, doesn't mean that everything we haven't already done in our life was a contributing factor to this purpose. And, and so one of the things the guides always remind us is that our purpose can express in multiple dimensions. And we have to be careful about getting caught up in this third, the fifth dimensional type of, you know, separation when we go into this topic, although it's inevitable we have to discuss it, just because we may be doing something in a more conventional or third dimensional light doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong or isn't a contributing factor in how we're meant to change that reality. And so often what we'll explore in our channeled sessions with the guides uh, first, before we go forward into you know, what are those things that we're here to do is what have we done before, both in this lifetime and in past lifetimes? Yeah, I think uh, that makes a lot of sense. And if, you know, if to share some of my own story and, and identifying where I've ended up in my life, I think it's easy, especially when we're looking at things from a spiritual context, we think that we're supposed to abandon everything and go in some other direction, but it's really not quite that extreme in most cases like in my case everything that i do today and the work that i do is a combination of everything i've done since childhood and that i didn't really know and i find that the patterns of what you were here to experience and do were always there now i think uh, first of all it's hard you can't really not be on track but uh, because your soul is going to guide you and direct you but but there are forces in in the current Earth's timeline that attempt to sort of derail us all the time to where we may not live to the fullest potential of that. 
even though we may scratch the surface of it. But if I look at my life, even at a very young age, I was in front of audiences and performing or singing or something like that. And uh, and that element has been there. That thread has been there throughout my life and even now expressing in this way. So so if you look at your life from childhood onward and you try to identify those aspects of things that you were interested in. Another personal interest of mine from young childhood and when I was, I would say, even three years old, uh, three years old to 14 years old, uh, I was very much into electronics and technology. I was fixing things when I was a very young child, um, 14 years old. I was writing computer software and uh, and those uh, interests in technology and electronics have played a role in what I'm doing today. This studio, for example, although you can't see it on camera, is a very highly um, customized technological studio. And while everybody assumes that we have a camera crew in here, everything is set up to run automatically. So actually, the sound there is no sound crew or camera crew. Uh, it was wired that way. And this comes from my experience uh, in good part of my life working with electronics and technology and camera equipment and video equipment and sound equipment. Uh, in my um, late teens and 20s, I was a DJ and ran an entertainment company and had to learn about audio equipment and, and video equipment and things like that. So I was a photographer for periods of my life. So you can see all of those elements present in what I'm doing today. In my teens and or rather in my 20s and 30s, um, I was speaking in front of audiences at different spiritual churches uh, and started a spiritual organization at that age as well. So, uh, So I think if you look at your life from that perspective and you look through the things that you've done in the past and the interests you've had and the areas that you were um, really um, fascinated by. Another thing that I've, uh, as a very young child, I was very artistic uh, and later on in life uh, for a period of time ran a, um, uh, a marketing design branding agency. So you can see the elements of design even in this room and a lot of the stuff we do. So, that's what we need to look at is look at all those things that we have done throughout our lives, the things that we've gravitated towards that gave us the most passion and interest and curiosity and things that we enjoyed doing that weren't really work to us. Now, maybe most of us today, though, in modern society, we're pushed into um, a very narrow box. Uh, so we are taught that we need to go to school, get a degree get a job somewhere and just do whatever that job is. And and so it tends to narrow the field of expression. I think if human beings were allowed to just be who they are, we would go out into the world and do all kinds of amazing, unique things and create incredible inventions and things like that. But society is made to limit our creativity. And so as a result, maybe you find yourself as an engineer, which I actually, you know, being Indian, um, that's what I thought I was supposed to do because I was into electronics and computers and things like that. And my family thought I'm going to be an engineer. And so I went to school for engineering. Uh, and now I never became an engineer, but the vast majority of people like me would have ended up in that role. 
And maybe I would have still expressed some of those talents and interests in that engineering field, but it wouldn't have allowed the full range of creativity that I had just doing my own thing in life. And and so I think a lot of people, they sort of squelch their full potential of their life's purpose because they tend to have boxes around what they can express because of the work they have or whatever life they choose or living in a particular society or a family where you're expected to live to certain standards or expectations without allowing yourself to fully express and be free. So so the first place I would begin is, is an exploration of your whole life. And when I worked with lightworkers over the years, that's what I would do is I would have them write out their whole life story and I would read through it and it would give me clues as to what they were really here to do. And then we would take those things and form it into something new that they could go out into the world and express in a spiritual way. Now, the fact that I also have had a thread of spiritual interests and studies and um, people like Michaela channels and uh, people who were in the spiritual space in my life for all my adult late years also is an indication that a spiritual direction was another potential. So if I take all the elements that I just mentioned, and there are plenty of others too, and I put them together into one life expression that is my soul's purpose, it would, one of the possible ways that could look is everything that you're seeing right now and all the things that I've been doing with my life. And in the same way, you need to do the same. Even if you find yourself in a very mainstream life or career path right now, uh, if you go back over your life journey, as I just did with mine, and put those pieces together in a new way that allows you to go out and be yourself and to live fully, then you'll be able to create that you know, more full expression of your soul's purpose. Now, have you had a similar experience in your life? Um, maybe you can share that. Yeah, definitely I have. I, and, and, you know, I was just listening as you were bringing all this through. And often the guys will say that our spiritual purpose or our spiritual gifts they are entangled in a collective intention. So they aren't really decided on by us in terms of when they're meant to emerge. And, you know, I think we can both speak to that in terms of awakening because our awakening is timed to the collective's readiness to receive something from us in a brand new way. So all of that stuff that we do before, it's purposeful in that it's providing the vocabulary and the education and the wisdom and the foundation to actually support some bigger legacy, right? Or, or offering that we're here to provide humanity. And, and I've had all of the very similar common threads. I was on stage and all my high school, school musicals, I was a dancer, but one of the most um, um, prominent passions that I had was writing. Uh, I was always a writer. I won first place in the poetry contest, you know, and that kind of stuff. And in, I know those of you who follow channeled work know that the writing is a big, huge piece for me. So uh, I even went into journalism and um, public relations because I loved writing so much. Little did I know I was going to use all of that in a more metaphysical way. So all of these things that we do are purposeful yet we're told they are not. So I think if we're going to talk about a soul's purpose, we have to talk about, you know, the collective landscape and why all of a sudden we're feeling this organic need to be of service and to be purposeful in what we're here to do. 
because it's been suppressed in us for so for so long. Um, in the book, the guides talk about the um, the earth and how from really, you know, not in every civilization, right? But but from the beginning of this period of time that we're in, that those of us chose to incarnate, there's been a foundation of fear that has been instilled within us for everything that we're taught to do. So so we think our purpose is to go out and make money and to, you know, feed our families and to buy a house and, and to get an education. And those things are important but the purpose behind them, the intention behind them doesn't often match the intention coming from the heavens. So when the guides take us up to the very highest level and say, this was your intention for coming, it's usually a very broad scope intention. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, we contract a disease and we think, well, that's because we have karma or we did something wrong or we're meant to suffer. But within that experience, there is a thread of energy leading us to our purpose. Everything that we do and everything we experience within that period of time is like that deep immersion into the mystery school that gives us everything that we need to do the things that we're meant to do. And and that was the prelude to my awakening actually was chronic pain and, and disease. It was just my time to come into my gifts and to remember them. And, and by the way, as a young child, it's all there as well. So, so we, we've talked a lot about the third dimensional stuff and the business stuff. And, you know, by the way, I was in marketing and did all of that stuff as well, which I use today in a very metaphysical way. But looking back at my childhood, there were definitely signs of channeling throughout my life that I never would have known uh, that was what it was. And and I had no adults around me to mirror that or to tell me that was what I was doing. But when I started doing it, when I had my awakening, which I think we'll talk about more in detail, uh, I had these aha moments constantly when I would start to channel that would take me back to when I was seven or eight and having messages come in from various guides or beings or having two-way conversations in my head uh, and all of these things. So, so the signs are always there, but I think together they're creating a roadmap or a container for that purpose to continually change and up-level. I think what you're saying is very evident in our two journeys, the differences, because uh, if if anything that you've seen of ours is written well, Michaela wrote it. And of course, she's written a book. And I, you know, for me to write a book is a very tedious thing. So that's why it, it may not happen for a while. So if it's written well, she's the one who does a lot of the writing for us uh, for the different things that we put out. Uh, but if it's visual design, I oversee that part. So, so because and then you can see those differences in our life journeys and how our soul um, focused our interests in the areas that were necessary to the journey we came here to have. Because I was very much artistic as a child, although I did a little writing, it wasn't really my strength. Uh, whereas Michaela is very drawn to writing and it's a passion of hers. So, um, so, so, the, so those different things you can see evident in, in how we show up and, and in our relationship, it's a good compliment because I can handle the visual design. She handles the writing. And so it works really well together that way. 
Um, but, you know, I think, again, another element to touch on is how consciousness impacts the journey, because what you'll find is the consciousness level of the person will determine the kind of things that will express the container. So we talk a lot about containers as it pertains to cycles or astrology and numerology. And inside of a container, there are certain potentials. And any number of those potentials could be the same thing. Like, for example, uh, being a conventional mainstream physician would be the same in, uh, kind of experience in a container as being some sort of a holistic health practitioner. So let's say you're an alternative doctor who is working in energy medicine and um, uh, different kinds of holistic healing, the container could be the same thing as being a mainstream physician who prescribes pharmaceutical drugs and who is very conventional. What will happen a lot, I find a lot of times is if a soul comes into, into an embodiment, into life, and they've at an early age brought up in a mainstream society, may choose the conventional path because that's what their family believes in. That's what society tells them they should do. So they go to college, get a degree, they become a doctor, they work in a hospital, and they do all the things that conventional doctors do. Then at some point in their life journey with some individuals, they will have a consciousness shift. And that consciousness shift will be so significant that they look at their life that they created and they just can't do it anymore. I hear this a lot where doctors or people in the mainstream fields, especially in the medical field, will realize that they're causing harm to their patients and the whole industry is doing that when they've been in that field all along, didn't even know that they were doing that. So when that occurs, when that consciousness change occurs, that person now has to change directions and the container may still be the same. So the soul came to express what's in this container, but at a higher consciousness level, they may leave that conventional medical field behind and move more toward an alternative, holistic, higher vibrational express of the same thing that's in the container. And that may look like any, depending on the consciousness level, it could be anything from a conventional doctor who becomes a little less conventional. Maybe they're still a doctor, but maybe they're, you know, they're not following all of the mainstream principles to somebody who has an extreme level of consciousness shift. And maybe they leave behind the entire medical space and become a holistic healer or energy healer or something uh, in the far extreme of what that is. Uh, so in the context of the container of experience, it looks exactly the same. And the soul still has the same experience, but the experience has shifted to a higher level of consciousness. And as a result, it shows up in the world in a very different way. Another way I might say, if let's say my consciousness remained at the same level uh, as when I was a child, or let's say it was at a very low level, I might have still ended up being in front of audiences throughout my life. And maybe, you know, some of you know, in my earlier, more mainstream life, I was very much involved in the financial space and um, teaching people how to invest and things of that nature. Uh, it could be that at this point in my life, I'm making YouTube videos in the finance space and talking about stocks and cryptocurrencies and these kind of things. Uh, or 
I could have ended up in the marketing space and teaching and lecturing about those topics. Uh, the container may still be somewhat the same, but the consciousness level will determine on what, in what way I express that in my life. And that's where I think consciousness has an impact. Have you noticed that at all with any of your experiences? Absolutely. And, and the interesting thing about that is I have had more doctors as clients in the last couple of years than anything else. And many of them are shifting their focus. And I think it's important to note. So the example that you're giving is perfect for us to talk about having an intention before coming and then expressing that in a purposeful way through many dimensions, because our intention may be that we're here to leave behind a, a better potential physical body for all mankind or to somehow upgrade human health so that future generations don't have to struggle with with certain diseases. And we might have an experience of the very disease that we're here to heal first. And then we express in the third dimension as that medical doctor, which is more conventional, moving that up into the next dimension, the next dimension, the next dimension. And while there are so many who are awakening and having these conscious awakenings right now, I think the one of the things that's really hard is we tend to look back on the decisions that we've made with so much regret because now we know so much more. And that can be a huge stumbling block. And, and even at times, for example, I've had people want to jump ship, come to me and say, oh my gosh, I've had this major awakening. And I can't do it anymore. I can't go to the hospital anymore and, and do this thing. And the guides say, you, you're anticipating this huge transition right now that you know you're going to make that isn't meant to happen overnight. So even if we find ourselves still in the same environment, there could be a reason that we're meant to be there. So that conscious awakening is somehow meant to be expressed as we walk our truth in an environment where others perhaps are ready to also awaken. And that's a part of our purpose. So we find ourselves in a very uncomfortable situation where we've awakened to things that we no longer want to do. And while we're preparing to move into a new way of doing it, we might still find ourselves there for a while. And instead of, you know, kicking that to the curb and especially self-criticizing, we have to look at it all as divine timed and as service because it truly is. Yeah, when I was younger, um, much younger, and even though I lived and and I grew up in a family that was very mainstream, conventional Indian family, and I was born in India, so I was you know I was born and raised there for the first few years of my life. I I came here with that sort of perspective and was raised in that environment, but even still, there was a spiritual thread that was always there. That at a younger age, I had no context for because my my family was not really of that mindset. They were pretty much a Christian family. And and so the spiritual perspectives I had, I really couldn't explore until I got into my my late teens and 20s where I became more in, interested in those things from a self-study perspective. Plus, I started attracting a lot of people into my life who were spiritually gifted in different areas. And so it exposed me to different ideas and concepts and spiritual phenomena that I'd never experienced when I was younger. And, and as a result, 
those things started opening up at a young age. And it wasn't something I was trying to do necessarily. Um, certainly had interest in those areas, but, but there were things that just came to me, uh, to experience because it was something that my soul chose to, to do. And even at a young age, looking back now, I didn't think anything of it back then, but when I was in my twenties, people actually came to me for spiritual advice and guidance and energy healing. And I didn't really know what I was doing or even that I knew anything. And it wasn't until a few years ago that I remembered and looked back and realized, oh, people always saw me in this context, even though I didn't see myself in, in this sort of context back in the, at that young age. But it was always present. And, and there were other spiritual phenomena that w- were occurring around me, which again, uh, I didn't have any point of reference and, and I didn't have a lot of people in my life then who, uh, who were advanced enough in their experience to be able to tell me what was going on. So, um, so many things like energy phenomena, telepathic experiences and so on, uh, occurred in my twenties and thirties and, and beyond that. Uh, I met a lot of, um, uh, channels when I was younger and even some, uh, psychic mediums and, uh, people like that. And, and they were telling me things about my future, how I was supposed to be a spiritual teacher. And, and I'm sure many of you have heard those kind of things too from people you've gone to. And I didn't take it very seriously, of course, because I had no context or reference point. I wasn't raised in that kind of environment. And so I didn't really take it seriously. I just sort of filed it away as something that was fascinating to think about, but, but not anything that could happen to me. But as I got older, and I started studying astrology and numerology and looking at my own chart, I realized that that certainly was a potential that could happen in my life. So when those things started to unfold, it wasn't a surprise because I had had sort of inklings and uh, and nudges in that direction from a very young age. And And so if that's happened to you, those things aren't happening by coincidence or randomly. They're happening because those are potentials that you put there. And certainly things you can step into. Now, um, so, you know, there were interesting little phenomena, like I could charge batteries with my hands when I was um, uh, in my 20s. And I thought it was just a coincidence, so I didn't really think much of it. Um, there was uh, another story, which I think I've shared before a long time ago in, in one of our events. Um, I was uh, in my... Um, early to early to mid twenties, actually, I was a handyman, which again, another thing that where I was fixing things. Uh, and so I was a handyman for about six and a half years and I worked in a, on a, a property management, um, apartment complex, uh, which I know it seems like such a far leap from there to what I'm doing now. Um, but even there, the, the elements of what I would eventually do were there and, as an example, one one particular story, there was a woman living there who I think uh, it's too long ago to remember, but she was in her 70s or 80s. She was, you know, in a little bit more advanced age, at least as we think of advanced age today, which I don't think that'll be the case in the future, but at that time. And, uh, and I was just in her apartment repairing something. I don't recall what it was, but um, but she was having this migraine headache. And, uh, and she was complaining about this migraine headache and, and she was somebody who really liked to talk. So she would talk the entire time I was there. 
And, um, uh, and so she was saying, I have this migraine headache. And when I have these migraine headaches, sometimes I'm driving down the highway and uh, I get a sudden migraine headache and my vision goes completely white and I can't see anything. So she goes completely blind while she's driving on the highway. And she said, I have to somehow get over to the, the shoulder of the road so I don't get in an accident. And I'm thinking, you know, that this person picturing her doing this and thinking one of these days she's going to, you know, get an accident on the highway. And, and so at the time, I really didn't believe in my ability to do any kind of energy healing. Um, it was just a kind of an inner knowing, but not really anything I had confidence about at the time. But and she was a very mainstream person, didn't believe in any of this stuff. But but she liked me well enough to trust me to just kind of humor what I was doing. And meanwhile, she could talk because I was there longer. So so I told her, just keep talking. Let me just stand behind you for a few minutes. So I just stood behind her, didn't touch her physically, but just had my hands uh, behind her head for uh, for a period of time. And I told her, tell me what's going on with your headache. And so she was describing it. It was just all encompassing. And then it, over a period of time, it went down to like a little pinpoint and then it vanished. And, and I, you know, in my frame of mind thinking back then, I thought it was just a coincidence. I didn't really actually do anything. And so I finished up and I left and I went back to the office and, um, went about my day. And the next morning, now, this was in a time where we used pagers. We did not have mobile phones uh, in our pockets. But so I had a pager and anyone on the property could page me if there was an emergency and she was paging me and uh, and I didn't respond right away. And she started calling the office phone number and she got through to the uh, the manager in the office. And she was just raving because not only was her headache gone, but she also, um, for many years, I think seven, eight years, she had some very serious chronic illnesses, one of which was she couldn't lift her ha- hands beyond her chest area. And so when she had to wash her hair, she couldn't do it in the bathtub because she couldn't lift her hand that high. And so she would tip her head underneath the kitchen sink to to wash her hair. And for the first time in years, she could lift her hand above her head, which was very unusual. And... Uh, and then her energy level returned. She could not walk without a cane for many years uh, or a walker. And all of a sudden she could walk without a cane or a walker. And, uh, and, and so for her, for being somebody who doesn't believe in any of this stuff, she, she was shocked. But the only thing she could attribute it to was that I was there doing the energy thing that I did the day before. And uh, and so she asked me to keep coming back to do that. And I did. And for a period of about a month, I continued to come and come back until all of her pain had gone away. And and she had even stopped taking a lot of her pharmaceutical drugs. She had a, a long list of drugs she was using. And slowly she started using less and less of them. This is one of the earliest uh, phenomena where I had some confirmation that there was something unusual taking place, even though I had no reference point then. And I still, even after all that, thought it was probably a coincidence because it couldn't possibly have happened. Um, so I had many instances of unusual experiences like that. Uh, I share a story of uh, the first time I realized, at least was aware that I was doing some sort of energy thing. Um, 
was that I met these two women in a, in a spiritualist church, actually, in around I think, 1997 or so. And I ended up realizing I had a telepathic connection with them where I could, we could, all three of us could communicate remotely and carry on conversations and things like that. And, and the, the, they were both, one was very sensitive to energy. The other one was a channel and, and me, I didn't know it was anything. Um, but we, we went into this park this one time together and the one that was very sensitive could see that somebody had committed suicide in that park before. And, uh, we looked it up later and it turned out that was true. It was a true story, but none of us actually knew that when we went to the park. And, um, and so I, you know, doing the energy practice that I had started to develop back then, just tried to elevate the frequency of the whole park, thinking I'm just making stuff up, you know, in my head, not really doing anything. And the one that was energy sensitive asked me, did you just do something? And I said, why, what do you see? So the whole park lit up. So things like that were happening at a very young age and, um, but again, I didn't have enough people around me to tell me what was going on. Uh, now I could go back to my younger self and say, oh, this is what happened. But And this is some of the early things that were going on. Now, in my 30s and 40s, I, even though the spiritual thread was always there, I went into um, uh, more mainstream fields of work, uh, ran the marketing branding agency for many years, uh, and uh, also started uh, working in the financial space, um, teaching people how to invest in the markets and things like that. So very mainstream stuff. And and this is prior to meeting Michaela. And at the time, uh, I was in a different relationship. Even it was a much more conventional relationship. Although the elements that weren't conventional were, we were both interested in spirituality, and we went to classes and. And travel to see Esther Hicks at the time. Um, and I read up on all those kind of books and, uh, and we, uh, we were also into the raw food vegetarian space pretty heavily at, at that time as well. So the health component also was present at that time. Now at the very end, just to show how you can change timelines based on your consciousness at the, when we were a few years into the relationship, I could see that in five years, that relationship was going to end, even though the two of us talked about it and we discussed how, well, we're never going to break off the relationship. Yet in five years, exactly it happened. And but coinciding with that or coinciding with that breakup was I had a shift in consciousness. And that shift in consciousness suddenly made it so that it wasn't so much that we were breaking up as much as the vibration or the consciousness of the two of us had become so different or was becoming so different that we were sort of repelling each other. She was going into a more mainstream direction and suddenly I was leaving that behind. And so this was around 2010 to 2011, and I hadn't met Michaela at that time. And uh, I suddenly, over the course of a couple to few years, the business that I was running completely fell apart. Uh, and uh, our relationship broke up. The business fell apart. Uh, we had, had an office with people working there and everything. I had a downsize, and I had to 
shut down the office, bring all the furniture, put it into storage. Uh, and suddenly uh, the financial work that I was doing stopped making sense and I just couldn't go back to it. I, I reached a point where I would rather be homeless and broke than to go back into the financial space. Um, and so this is where I found myself in 2010, 11, and 12, just before I met Michaela. And so I went from being very successful in what most people would consider successful in a mainstream uh, space to suddenly losing everything and having to start my life over as my consciousness shifted. And I realized with that consciousness shift that I had to go into an alternative direction, even though I had no idea what that was going to be. So what I what I realized was I can't go back to that former life because at the new consciousness level that I had reached, I couldn't find myself doing that work anymore. It just did not make sense with who I was becoming. But at the same time, I was at a big cycle shift in my in my astrology numerology cycle. So where I was going was a totally different direction, but it had not formulated yet. So I was in this in-between place where the old stuff no longer made sense or it fell apart. And the new was so new, I had no idea where it was going. Uh, I just knew it was different. And so in faith, I decided that I was going to go in this new direction, even though I had no reference point for where it was going and no one to guide me as to whether it made any sense or not. So I went from somebody who had, you know, was very successful financially well off and had nice things to suddenly I was on the verge of homelessness to where I had no car, almost no money and, and any moment could have, would be homeless. Uh, and I had to walk places to get groceries and, and I didn't even have money for groceries. In fact, that was around the tail end of that was when I met Michaela or actually sort of in the middle of that, because when we first met and she joined the team, I had just started Flower of Life uh, and we're planning our first expo with no money. Uh, it was just in faith that I'm going in the right direction. I have no idea how I'm going to accomplish this with no money when I can't even afford groceries. And so when she joined the team, she started leaving groceries at my front door because she thought I was going to starve to death. And um, fortunately, I can function on very little food, so it was okay. But still, though, that was where I found myself was at any moment I could be homeless. Uh, my power could be cut off. And I think actually I did have some problems back then with, I don't remember if it was power, but anyhow, I was at that precarious place where in faith I was going in a new direction I had no money. I was completely broke. I lost everything, lost the relationship, lost the business, having to in faith go in a new direction because of a consciousness change and uh, and trying to do big things like a conference um, at a big convention center in downtown Detroit when I had never done anything of that scale. And but I did it anyway. I went forward not knowing and of course, the first several expos lost money when I didn't have money to lose. Uh, and I still went forward anyway. And, and so that's what can happen when you have a consciousness shift and suddenly you can't go back because who you are now doesn't resonate with that. But you have to go forward even though you don't know if there's going to be a safety net there to, sa to save you when you go in this new direction. The thing is, life always works out. 
And you have to take those inclinations and those chances. And even though you may not know how you're going to get there. And it took many years to go from being completely broke to being stable again financially to not having to worry about, worry about money to then being successful again. But now in this new life direction in a, with a more spiritually based foundation. And, and now in hindsight, I would never look back. I would never have, um, uh, you know, I would have done everything the same way I would have done. The only thing I might have, might have done differently is not worried so much about how it was all going to turn out or how the pieces were going to come together. Because even in the first few years, doing an expo that cost fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 and having no money um, and not selling enough tickets to actually cover the cost for many years was a very uncertain, difficult period. But the funny thing is things just kind of worked out. And even though I didn't have the money, the universe supported these things getting done. And that's a thing we have to keep in mind is when we go forward in faith and try different things that are in alignment, um, that's a key point there. If it, if the path I was going on was misguided or not in alignment with my soul's uh, purpose in this life, then those things wouldn't have been supported and the expos would have failed and I wouldn't have been able to keep going forward and get to where I am. And that's where you have to pay attention to those cues and get into alignment with your soul's purpose in the first place. When you do that, then everything will work out, even though it may not work out the way you think. Like for me, the way I thought back then was, well, if it works out, that means that if I do this conference, it people will come There'll be money to pay all the expenses and I'll be able to do the next one and the next one and the next one. The reality is every single one lost money and I just found some way to make it work or the universe just orchestrated things so that it worked out, even though there was no rational reason for me to expect that it would have. And that's what alignment is about is when you get into that alignment, your soul's journey is orchestrated automatically and it may not look like you think, you know, for me, having the monetary confidence uh, after every conference to say, oh, it worked out the way I thought it was going to is not how it was supposed to work out. And, and that's what we have to do in those situations to have that faith to go forward. And of course, I've had many cycle changes since then. And each time uh, it slightly shifts the direction I'm going in the work that I'm doing. And, and there's certainly many more stories I could share, but I'll stop there for now and you know, make Michaela can share some of how she got to where she is. Well, I want, before I do, I want to touch on the energy transfer because I think that's the key, that's the foundation upon which all of those other things were built. And one of the things that I know about your story that you didn't bring up that's similar to mine, uh, and this involves Barb, Barb Moy, for those of you who are out there who know Barb, is that she confirmed in you something that no one ever had, which led you to do these energy transfers, which sent you into a state of bliss. And that from that state of bliss, everything else was born, right? And what the guides say is that whatever we've achieved in any of our past lifetimes, we don't lose that when we come here. So, so if there's some spiritual practice or gift or modality, we reincarnate with it as a possibility in this life to blossom into something unique to this timeline. So, so unlike Ethan, 
I didn't have all of those spiritual influences surrounding me very early in life. In fact, I had none whatsoever. I went a totally conventional path. I was raised Catholic. I went to college, got the you know journalism degree. I ended up in marketing um, and then got married and had kids, um, had a really successful career in marketing and left it behind to be a stay-at-home mom, which I never thought that I would do. But chronic pain became the facilitator of um, my spiritual awakening and remembrance of something that I have done in many past lifetimes. And I don't think there's any way I could have taken a class just out of pure interest and learned what I know how to do. It just spontaneously came through me when I started to meditate. And by the way, I didn't start meditating for any other reason other than to heal my pain because I was taught that meditation could lower my stress level, lower my pain levels. I had no spiritual conquest going on whatsoever, nor did I even know what that meant. But in the first breath session that I did, which by the way, was not instructed by anyone. I didn't follow anyone else's method. I just started to breathe. I fell into this very deep connection and I began hearing things not only in meditation, but throughout my entire day. So I was walking through the grocery store and having just a basic conversation with the guy behind the deli counter and hearing things from his guides and my guides about his life and things like that. And I was going home and scratching my head and thinking I was going crazy. Um, but this this gift within me from multiple lifetimes before, it it rose up at the right time when my life was meant to take a turn because it was seen in my astrology chart in the same way that you just explained your own because shortly after meeting Ethan, I came to him for an astrology session and it was all there. So my life imploded in a huge way, um, you know, slightly different than yours, but you know, the relationship, the marriage ended, there was a huge shift in consciousness there um, that just wasn't sustainable any longer. And I don't think that that marriage could have come along with me on the path that I'm on today. It is, it just wasn't meant to remain in my life and gosh, everything else. I mean, I am like a completely different person today than I was back then. So I can look back and say, well, none of that was meant to be. I shouldn't have gotten married or I shouldn't have done the things I did, but we're working through this very thick layer of density. And I think part of the problem is we don't trust or believe in the gifts and abilities that we have because we have been suppressed for so long in, in our own self-worth and our own intuition. And that's what's really springing up these days, I think, is people are having these huge spontaneous upgrades in their spiritual gifts, even after being in this arena for a very long period of time. So we talked about, I think it was the last channeling episode, sacred coupling. Um, and, I, and I love that example because it, Actually, it was a few ago. It was a few ago. Yeah, yeah it was a few ago. I love that show because it's a great example as to what happens to your life in all areas. I think when you choose to walk the path of that spiritual awakening or that raise in consciousness, 
the right people come in at the right time with the right information and the right resources to help you get started. And if I had never met Ethan, believe me, I would not be on this path today because he was very adamant that, uh, as a matter of fact, it's a funny story. I was on the team and we had a channel for the first expo. Um, and she bowed out at the last minute and, and he looked at me and said, it was always meant to be you. And I never would have gotten up on stage. I was, you know, doing this in my closet behind closed doors, had no aspiration of doing this, you know, for, for people one-on-one. Um, but had I not had the people around me and, you know, that support around me, like Barb, for example, and the team, uh, I would have never you know, taken that risk. And not all of us have that. I think we do go through periods of transition where we are alone and we're meant to be alone because we're building up that inner confidence and we're coming to conclusions about, you know, what are our gifts and abilities and how do they work? And and we get to define that however we want, which I think is very rare in this day and age, because even a word like channel is so abstract, um, you know, everyone's a channel, I think, personally, on planet Earth. But how we channel and what we're here to do with the channeling, no one else has the same mirror reflection of that. We are all a very unique piece of the puzzle here to do something that attributes to the whole. So, so taking that path is like walking on, you know, the path less traveled. It's the journey you never thought or never believed you would you would take, but it's just in a synchronistic way all falling together. And even for me, that included my health. I um, you know, in this awakening, uh, had some initial messages come in from a guy named Jacob, who I later found out was a past life connection to me. Um, he identified himself as a gatekeeper who is a very special guide who opens the door to many others. And he sent me down a very incredible and synchronistic path of meeting the people and doing the things that I needed to do to, to get better. And, and even looking back on that path, it's just very miraculous and, and very mystical to me that I would have even done the things that I did or gone the direction that I had because these were things that were not on my radar whatsoever. And that's what I see today is I, you know, I have people in session who are awakening to a specific gift and, and maybe we can talk about some of the roadblocks or, you know, the mistakes that people make. The guides always say that when, when we awaken to a gift and, and whether that's clear audience, clear sentience, you're doing energy healing, whatever it is, automatically like a magnet, you're going to draw in a mirror reflection of who you're meant to be. So, that often comes in the way of a teacher and we are motivated or excited to take a class. And, and I did that actually um, well after I was channeling just because I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I decided to take a channeling class and, and we think we have to follow those directions. So we get this very um, rigid and linear um, instruction manual of, how to channel and what channeling is and how to do protection and, and all of these things. But there was always a part of me that knew different than what I was being taught. Even though there were some valuable experiences and things that were going on, 
there was a part of me that wanted to always add to that or had a new um, like perspective, let's say, of what was being taught. And so I think one of the big mistakes that people make that the guides point out is that they either stay in the class too long after they've already gotten everything they need, or they step out of bounds of what they're naturally here to do and what that organic gift is and start doing it the way someone else recommends. And not only will that diminish the worth of what you bring to the planet, I personally think it gets you off path because the second you get in the mindset that you have to do something a certain way in order to succeed, you've just limited that access to resource that you're talking about that takes you from this reality that's falling apart to one that's coming back together. Um, and it does take a lot of faith, but, but for me, it also took letting go, knowing when to let go of the things that felt so safe and secure, uh, but were no longer working for me anymore or meant to go with me on the journey ahead. You know, there are a lot of things there I want to touch on, um, but starting with how you said that we meet, you know, we tend to meet the people at the right time and so on. And I think timing is a key element here because just relating back to what Michaela was saying about meeting Barb uh, at that time, uh, actually, when I was in my, so if you use even just simple numerology as a means to understand where you are in your cycles, I was at the very end of my previous nine year cycle when my business was falling apart, the relationship was breaking up and I went through this period of uncertainty and the, the nine year of the nine year cycle until the four year of the next nine year cycle is a period where you're going through transition where the previous thing that you were doing and life direction you were going falls apart. Uh, and a lot of times I find consciousness shifts occur in that ninth year, nine through one year. And, and you're starting the new thing in the one through three year and building that. But it's also a period where you don't really know where it's going. It was in my nine through one year that I had the initial consciousness shift. At that point, I had not met Michaela and Barb. Uh, I actually met Barb in my one through two year, I believe. And then I met Michaela in my two through three year. And, and so basically the consciousness shift led to meeting the two of them. And then though they ended up playing key roles in my life and still do to this day. So, so the timing of these things tends to work that way where your previous life falls apart. You start something new and then you meet all the right people you need to usually in those first few years, and many of them will stay and play a long-term role in your life. And some will fall away, of course, but, um, and, and so you'll see though that timing. And, and I think that timing is important to keep in mind when you're sort of charting or navigating how to execute. And I think we should talk a bit more in a minute about the practical parts of this and how to execute this, because if you try to move too fast in a time when your cycles are just beginning, you may find that it moves too slow or it gets stifled or the things you do don't work out. Whereas if you move fast when the cycles are accelerating, you'll find that the things you're doing move a lot quicker. Like Michaela was a little bit farther along in her cycles when I met her. And so her channeling really um, uh, went from she wasn't doing it at all to suddenly she's on stage in front of a, a big audience at the last minute. 
Uh, and it just grew very quickly because her cycles were more advanced, where I lagged behind her by a couple of years before things started turning around for me in that direction as well. So the first few years, as I was saying earlier with the expos, you know, not doing well financially, and I was struggling for on a personal level financially as well. Um, those were those beginning years, the nine year cycle. But when I got to the fourth year, things started picking up and the, the, um, the repercussions or rather the, the growth that from the seeds I had been planting in the previous year started to show. Uh, whereas Michaela was already in her, um, in her fourth year, I believe. Yeah, I met, I met you as you were in your third year going into your fourth. And it was in the fourth year that she was in front of an audience for her first time as a channel. So, so you can kind of see that if you follow your own cycles. Uh, and then from that perspective, when you're trying to envision how do I take this sole purpose and execute it in a physical reality, that should be done with an awareness of the timing, the proper timing to do certain things. Because if you try to do things prematurely, you may find it doesn't work out. And I have encountered that with a lot of people over the years uh, that I've worked with as light workers, as an example. Um, if they, depending on where they are in the cycle, will determine the kind of things we should be working on at that time. If they're very beginning in the cycle, the expectation should be there that it may not move as quickly as you want. But, but if you set all the pieces in motion, by the time the growth years of the cycle happen, everything that you did will pay off at that time. So you, at certain points, have to be patient. At other points, you have to be willing to put in the time and effort and work harder. Uh, and at other times, you have to be willing to let it fall apart so that you can reinvent yourself. And, and that's where I think that's really important. And, and the right people come at those times to, to direct you. And as Michaela was saying, um, I met, uh, Barb first, actually, of the two of them. And then I think I met you about six months or something later. Um, but very close together, the, in terms of timing. And, and Barb came to one of my then events, which was a raw food potluck that I was running, uh, which was a fragment of my previous life that was still there at the moment. And her comment to be about my energy field. Uh, although people had been telling me my whole life that I was going to be a spiritual teacher and there was something unusual uh, going on, um, I really didn't take it that seriously until I met Barb. So that again speaks to the proper timing. At you know, at a certain point in life, if the consciousness shift occurs and the right people at that time show up and, and tell you, oh, this is what it is. You, at that point, the timing is right and you are in the right place in terms of the consciousness level to match that timing. And, and that results in you going in that new direction. And that's what happened. I, uh, had no reason to believe Barb except that, um, she had been seeing auras her whole life. So I thought if that's true, of course, being a rational left brain intellectual person, I put her through a lot of tests. Uh, I had her look at the auras of different things that I could verify or validate things that she didn't know anything about to see was she picking up on the auras the way that I thought it should look. And, and so I, when I had enough confidence that she was, uh, she really did have the ability that she claimed she had, then I tr trusted that, that she must be um, uh, seeing in me what, 
she said she was. And so as a result, I decided to start experimenting in groups with the energy transfer. And uh, and that's what led to initially what was just a monthly experiment for my own personal validation that something was actually happening. And after a year and two years of of doing that uh, and seeing the confirmation, I had started getting more confidence that there really was something going on. And of course, it led to other things. Um, so I think timing and, and all of that is an important consideration when it comes to uh, someone coming into your life and telling you those things, because you may, someone may come into your life and tell you those things, and you may not be at the consciousness level uh, or the proper cycles in terms of the timing to actually do something with it yet. But at a later point in life, you may be. So I think that's uh, important. And, and I don't know if you want to start talking about the more practical parts or something else. Sure. Yeah, I want to play off a couple of points you make. I, I think first, the, the test phase is it's always a part of that awakening if you're willing to take the risk so so for me I was channeling just for friends and and people that I knew but then all of a sudden my friends were inviting their friends into the circle that I didn't know which was a pretty scary thing but I think that's always purposeful because what I found was um, I was channeling things about them or for them that I there's no way I could have known. And, and that takes a huge level of vulnerability. So I think always in that spiritual awakening or that movement and readiness towards the gift, there's a, a test phase. But interestingly, um, one of the things guides talk about in my sessions for people who want to make the leap from uh, a, a spiritual gift into a spiritual quote unquote business is the idea of open source. So so what you are doing with the energy transfer is just offering them for free to see what happened is an open source model. It's putting something out there that could be helpful for people with no expectation other than some feedback um, as to what they felt or how their experience was. And, and that's great in many different ways because you get to assemble the language and, you know, write the whole um, description of what your service is to the eyes of others and, and get that validation that something truly is going on. But interestingly, the fifth dimension operates in open source. So when we're jumping timelines from a more conventional type of um, business, for example, into a more spiritual business model, uh, we think we have to put in eight hours and we have to do the same kind of work and the same kind of schedule and format that we did before. But that trips us up big time because if we open source something, which means no expectation, we're providing our service to the world, what will happen is phenomenal because it will open up avenues for your work to receive financial abundance and resource that you may have not expected while also leaning into creativity and finding fulfillment and joy in the service. And that's another, I think, mistake that the guides point out that people make is we feel this burden or responsibility. I have this purpose and this service, and if I don't get it done before the end of my incarnation, and I don't know what it is and I don't get it right, I'm going to fail. But what the guides say is, remember, it's an intention. You came here with this overarching intention 
these very specific gifts and abilities that have carried with you through multiple lives. And you're bridging the gap between the two by bringing joy and creativity to it. So how, what, what excites you about putting this out in the world and where can you add those very unique things that you've learned along the way, which were obviously purposeful to really make it something incredible? Yeah, I want to, a lot of interesting things here I want to touch on, but, but, um, you're talking about how I did the energy transfers in faith, not really expecting any mm-hmm. reward. And I think a lot of people get hung up on the, the financial aspect. You know, they expect to go out there and do something and immediately make money. Uh, and the universe will give you whatever you need. But I think to set in context what you're saying about me doing that in faith, that was at a time in my life where I had no money. I had no money. I had no car. Uh, I could barely afford groceries. And and uh, I had to count on Michaela or Barb or somebody else uh, who was on the team at the time to actually pick me up and drive me to these energy transfer events that we were doing for free. Um, and so, you know, and there was even a time during that period of time when I couldn't get a ride. So, uh, so I, you know, I was dressed nice in my my shirt and pants, and and I had to walk three miles in the hot summer to a public library that actually kicked us out a few months later because we were, I don't know, they thought we were doing weird things too there. Crazy. Too crazy. Too crazy. <laughs> I mean, it's a public library that's supposed to allow members to rent the rooms for free, but but we were not allowed to rent rooms there anymore. So, so I had all these obstacles to deal with, right? And, and so I'm walking to this event to, to do a free event. Uh, not expecting to get paid. We were not charging donations or anything at that time. So it was just to do it. And sometimes you have to do those kind of things. And, and, you know, another thing Michaela is talking about that I think is really key. And it's also true for me in that in those early years doing those events, I was just doing them to experiment and to get practice and to understand what I was doing. Um, because there was no instruction manual for me for what I was doing. I was just making it up as I went along based on my own inner knowing of what I was what I was doing. And that I had been doing my whole adult life, and even from childhood, and I just didn't know that I had been doing it at that time. And, and that is that in Michaela's case, um, she was channeling for friends. And, of course, you know, my role in her life was to put her in front of audiences and, and make her do that. And, and I think a lot of people, that's the thing they don't do Uh I've, I've worked with a lot of light workers over the years who are, um, class junkies. You know, they're, they, they've learned a thousand different modalities and they're scheduled for six other classes that are coming up and they're trying to learn all these different things so they can go out into the world and practice these ten different things they've learned from other people. And I think that's, uh, I think some people do that because they don't have the confidence or belief in themselves. Uh, other people, they think they don't really know what to do, so they are trying all these different things, hoping and and oftentimes um, doing one of those modalities as a service or whatever they decide to do or contribute in the world. Uh, I think that is, I think it's fine to take classes. I think it's great to learn from other people. I'm constantly learning from other people. But when you use what you're learning as a crutch, then I think it gets in the way of you expressing your soul's purpose. Because, for example, if you learned Reiki, let's say, and you went out there and started practicing Reiki uh, in the same way that you were taught, 
I think that's a mistake because, in my opinion, the only person who should have practiced Reiki is the person who discovered Reiki. Uh, and now I think as a uh, Reiki is sort of like um, a gateway uh, drug, you might say, to the spiritual field or the spiritual healing field in particular, because almost everybody starts at Reiki before they start doing other things. Uh, and it's become very mainstream these days. So, so I think it serves that role and that's great. But you should never get stuck at Reiki and becoming a Reiki practitioner because you're a unique expression of consciousness. And, and if you uh, are here to do something different from everybody else, then it certainly can't be something you learn from somebody else. So when I've worked with lightworkers in the past, the first thing I do uh, after we talk about their life and what they've done with themselves is I have them start practicing on other people uh, immediately. And so about six months of the time I've worked with people in the past is uh, minimum six months is they are practicing on other people. And my one and only rule is that they're not allowed to use anything they've learned from anybody else. Yeah. And so after they have their initial meltdown, because nobody, for the most part, the majority of people have no idea who they are when they peel away everything they've learned. Uh, and so quite often, a lot of people struggle with that idea because, well, they want to do Reiki, they want to do all these other things they've learned, but they're not allowed to use those things. And Because underneath the surface of all those things you've learned, you'll find that there is something at the core of who you are that has been there from birth. And you need to get to that thing. And that is what you're here to express in the world. And that is what you will make the biggest contribution to society and help the most people and also gain the most resources for yourself, whether that be you're living in a society that requires money uh, or whether that be something else, depending on what you need in in the world that you live in. So on the other hand, if you do what everybody else does, let's say Reiki as a modality, then you're not going to help people in a way that's unique to you because nobody should be doing Reiki as a, as a practice, as something to learn and explore, yes, but as a practice to help other people, nobody should be doing Reiki except for the, the person who originally discovered it. Um, so if you're doing that, then, then you're not really following your unique purpose. Now, maybe you studied Reiki and you're doing something a little bit different now than Reiki, but Reiki was sort of a launching point. And maybe there you incorporate some of that pieces of what you learned, but what you're doing is totally different, then that may be okay. But you really want to get yourself in the direction of doing something that's unique to you that no one else on the planet is doing because no one else on the planet is you. And so you want to move in that direction. And part of that is looking over your life and seeing what things you've been drawn to or unique talents and interests. And then also looking beneath the surface of the other modalities you've been doing. So let's say you've studied 10 different modalities and, uh, and in all of them, what makes it different is that you're doing it in this one unique way that, that they really didn't teach you in the modality, but you just kind of gravitated that. What you want to do is peel away all this surface stuff and look at what, what is underneath the surface. What is it that you're doing that's special and unique? And you want to bring that out to the surface and get rid of everything else. 
And that thing, whatever it is, is your is or at least it's a a seed of what your unique expression and purpose is in this life. And that needs to be cultivated. And then the next thing you do is to, in faith, just like both of us, um, go out and practice it. Even if you have no idea what you're doing and you think you're a phony and you think you're making stuff up, do it anyway and collect the feedback and the confidence and the experience in doing that thing and eventually that will pick up in the momentum and, and head you in the right direction. But if at this point in your life you're not doing something that you can confidently say, only you can possibly do that thing that you're doing, then you're not yet expressing your unique soul purpose. Maybe you're expressing some part of it, but you need to get to that point where what you're doing is that unique and special and you can identify that and you can explain to somebody else why what you're doing is unique, or it's very obvious in the doing of it that what you're doing is unique. So those are some things I wanted to say, and certainly we can get into some of the mechanics of it, but but uh, but I think that's important in your journey as well and how you're practicing with friends in the beginning. Uh, and, and I think that's a key thing is you have to practice that talent and, and let it develop. I think it's hard for us to go from uh, a civilization, a society that has been taught we all need to be the same and and follow the leaders to uh, a place that the guides say, you know, you're here to offer the world something that no one's ever seen before because we're not, we're not taught that. And it's a huge leap and there's so much resistance because we don't trust ourselves. But, but I think what you're talking about here, especially with the Reiki example, it, it really leans into the financial abundance because if we truly come with uh, an entire, you know, vault of financial abundance and resources that we need to do what we're here to do, and we diminish that in worth to what other people do, that's why we aren't going to succeed in that area. And, and of course, we all have our karmic experiences and lessons we need to learn and evolve through. And there are going to be times when those things are not available to us in the amounts that we believe. But what I have found is it's far easier if you stay in that lane, which we've been talking about, which to me is intention. So I always be going back in this conversation to the intention because that's what the guides say. We didn't have a purpose for coming. We had an intention. So if we bring that down to earth in a spiritual business model, we really have to think about what is our mission here? What's our intention? Even if that's going to change, which we both know it will because the earth is changing so rapidly. And and I meet people in session all of the time who say, I've been in this world for 15, 20 years, which is way longer than me. And I've been doing this for so long and now it's all crumbling apart. It doesn't make sense anymore. And the guys will step in and say, well, that's because it's got to up level because humans are ready for a new version of what you are doing. And a lot of this is collective. So uh, people have been doing those one-on-one sessions, for example, and the guys will come in and say, well, you know, the energy that you're working with is quantum. So we're at a time of mass awakening. We need to gather more people and do these things knowing they can all have an individual result. And that's just one example. But it also um, suggests that if we're working with more people, we're also supporting ourselves better. We're making a huger impact. 
And these are really difficult beliefs for us to hold that, that we can actually do that much good and, and serve. And there's always that stigma, right? People who are kind hearted and who awaken spiritually have a hard time charging money for their spiritual gifts because it just doesn't seem to jive. But what I've experienced is that when everything in my life is taken care of, I have more to give freely. So it really circles back around to that open source model, which for me has always been the cornerstone of my work. The more I'm able to do that, the more that comes back, the more I'm able to do without expectation. And I think that's a key reminder, you know, for everyone in this time when we assume we want to move into a period of unity, consciousness and equilibrium across the board where, you know, everyone's able to afford and make the same amount of money. But we're all here to do different things and reach different audiences in different geographic regions and, you know, need certain things to do that. So it's going to be different, I think, across the board. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to talk about the the money and some some of the practical elements now. Um and uh, and I'm going to upset a few people with my conversation about this. Now, just to backtrack for those of you who are not familiar with my story, I grew up in a very mainstream world and mainstream household. Money was highly valued in that uh, upbringing. And, uh, and I went a very unconventional direction in my life, being very entrepreneurial and in my early years, setting goals and striving for wealth and, and, uh, and money and things like that. And, um, and so I learned a lot from being on that side of things, having a very mainstream success oriented mindset and a very achievement oriented person from a very young age to where I've come to the, you know, to more of a holistic spiritual perspective. So when I talk about money and resources, it's from the context of somebody who's walked all of that range of experience from from very mainstream grounded perspective to also a spiritual perspective as well. And when I when I use the term money in this conversation, I'm referring very broadly to resources in general because um, not everybody lives in a society or uh, has a life where money is necessary. If you're here to sit on a mountaintop and um, and be a guru and teach people spiritual principles and people bring you food and that's all you need. Maybe you don't need money. Uh, but but for most of us, especially those of us, uh, those of you who may be watching a, a stream like this or a video like this uh, or a podcast, depending on where you're listening, um, you probably need money in, in the life that you're living in. But we all need different amounts. So, you know, what for me is a bare minimum for you, maybe a lot uh, or vice versa. So it varies from person to person what, what money means. But, uh, but in my years of business and also, you know, so having personal experience with, with money and charging different amounts uh, in mainstream as well as um, spiritual, spiritually based things. Um, I have a very unique perspective on this topic and First of all, I want to set sort of the, and we've talked about money and touched on it in almost every one of our podcasts because it's, I think it's a really important topic because we live in a world which unfortunately 
has uh, money is a controlled system that is used to enslave humanity and to keep us living very small lives. Uh, I don't think that's necessary, though, because ultimately money is just a way that source expresses itself in this reality. And unfortunately, it's controlled and limited, and that's what makes it a bad thing. So in the spiritual space, I think a lot of times we think of money, you know, or even growing up may believe that money is evil uh, or money doesn't grow on trees, all these very limiting beliefs that we we're taught growing up um, or that um, if you have money, you're greedy. Uh, and these some of these may be well-intentioned by family members who are speaking these things, but I think uh, on a more broad scale, uh, I think there are intentions there to teach people these uh, these ideas to keep us from not having very much money. So the very few can control the world. But one thing that I want everyone to understand is that the amount of money or resources you have has nothing to do with anyone else. So if uh, if you charge... Okay. That's a good note to stop on. And I just want to say that NFT Rewards is creating a new way of sharing in a cooperative way money. And it's completely shifting the conscious awareness because it's talking about group consciousness for a spiritual purpose. And so I just suggest that Tomorrow, Caroline's going to put a little request for assistance out for us to pay the next set of bills. There's three of them still, two of them still left. And then, um, anyway, so that and and last Sunday and then this Sunday's uh, $289 each. Uh and so that the facilitation of engaging in a new way of working with money in NFT will help make a foundational shift in our consciousness so that we can work together for world group service. So we're going to take a break now. And we'll have a look at the stars about all of this after we have some music. And we'll be back in 10 or 15. Namaste. Thank you so much. With this. Hello, good evening. Good evening, Richard. We're having quite a summer, uh, late spring rain. Yeah, I thought I heard uh, thunder. Yes, it's a thunderstorm. It is. It's more than welcome. Our congratulations in order. Yes. Yes. Welcome, Richard. Oh, yes. Okay, let's, uh, oh, there's, there's, all right. Let's just, let's just start with the moons in Pisces. Okay. So yesterday, earlier today, it was conjunct Saturn, which is, uh, still in, uh, Seven. It's seven Pisces. 
Now Pluto is in one Aquarius. Alright. And it's retrograde now. So we got that going on. Neptune's still at 28 Pisces. <coughs> and then we get to this mess in Aries and Taurus. So you got you got Chiron at 18 and Jupiter at 30 degrees of Aries. Now your node, your node is at 4 Taurus. Mercury is at 6 Taurus. The Sun is at 23 Taurus. And Uranus is at 20 Taurus. Alright. Now the thing to remember about Taurus is among other things, it's the it's the uh it's the energy of desire for just about everything. <laughs> yes. It's yes, it's ruled by Venus. And it's, uh, it's the second, it's the second, you know, second in line. Alright, so it's the, the vehicle of spirit. Aries is Atma or spirit. And then Taurus is the vehicle of spirit. Okay. And then you add to that the third part of the Trinity is the thinker, or the mind, or manus. Right, so that's the higher, the higher triplicity. Aries, Taurus, Gemini. Right, Gemini is empty. No planets in Gemini. Pluto is trying the first degree of Gemini. Leo is empty, but Mars is going to get there pretty soon into Leo. So it's all very strange. As I was as I was randomly listening to some some radio earlier in the week, I got this this unusual feeling about how very weird it all seemed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're having a, having a great big song fest in Liverpool, England today. Oh, Eurofest! Yeah, Eurofest. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, big big song big song competition. All the Europeans getting together. Forty countries. Wow. Have have entries. Forty forty singers have entries. Yeah, and it's, there's no no instrumentals allowed. I thought that was that was fun. So it's you know it's poetry set to music or essays set to music or whatever you want to call it. Now, everybody is, at least some people are thinking that uh, uh, Mercury's going direct tomorrow. Well, that is true. It does not. It only marks the middle of the Mercury retrograde cycle. Oh. It's going to take some time for Mercury to get back to the position it was before it went retrograde. All right. 
Uh-huh. So while the, the period of review may be ending, you still got three more weeks of a, a, assimilation of the knowledge gained during the previous three weeks. So there may there may be knowledge and wisdom to be downloaded during the next two and a half, three. I don't know how long it's going to take to get back there. I could I could I could figure it out, but it's not that important. But anyway, so yeah, we got uh, we got Mars opposite Pluto. It's going on. Mars at 27, Cancer. Venus at 8, Cancer. Stay, stay close to the mic, Richard. Mars at 27, Cancer, and Venus at 7, Cancer. And both of those are in my 10th house. Uh-huh. So... I'll be getting to work here this week. Ten thousand yep. to house of your work. Yep. All right. And I think that's all that's worth the you know, moons of twelve Pisces. I think that's everything Chiron is now Chiron's at eighteen, about to go into nineteen Aries. But I don't know what's more interesting, one degree of Aquarius or the 30th degree of Aries. Uh-huh. Yeah, Jupiter's about ready to pass out of Aries. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I know. What is, let me take a quick look at next, at next Saturday. Next Saturday at five twenty. Uh, got your lightning rod on top of your house. Yeah, absolutely. I it's so welcome. Oh my god. All right, yep, next Saturday Jupiter will be in Taurus. Okay. In that first degree. Huh. Yeah. So that's another change. So since since Mercury is retrograde in the house of wealth and money, right? Uh huh. We got yeah, we got this situation going on with the U.S. Congress. Yeah. And their and their little debt limit. Uh huh. And it. I'm just sitting here smiling, watching watching these two stubborn groups line up against each other. And uh, indeed. Yeah. So uh, we'll see how that goes. In the, what is that square? Yeah, see Pluto Pluto square the North Node. That doesn't help, as Kaipacha said last week or so. Yeah. All right. Next Saturday, the moon will be in Gemini, and we got a new we got a new moon coming up on the nineteenth. So next Friday's new moon. All right. 
Mm. That's it for me for now. Okay, let's get started, Rama. Okay, here we go. This is Guy Paju with the Weekly Pele Report, calling in from Edipsos on the island of Evia in Greece, the thermal hot springs where we are going to be healing our chironic wounds. <laughs> Look at the beauty. This place is amazing. It's Wednesday, May 10th of 2023. We've got the moon in Capricorn. And we just came out of that eclipse. I'm going to be talking about emerging out of the eclipse. <laughs> yeah. And uh, she's going to be moving into Aquarius today. Moving, uh, I mean, you can, well, obviously she's going to hit Pluto uh, right on the edge there of Aquarius. Opposing Mars, okay, uh, that's going to be a pretty intense time period, right? That's happening. And the, the good thing is that she is in trine, okay, to uh, the Sun-Uranus conjunction. You remember that from yesterday, okay? I mean, not only an eclipse, but an eclipse that the moon was opposite Mercury, the Sun, and Uranus, very, very, very powerful. And you just want to thank God you made it to this week's Paley Report. You're still alive and well, still kicking. <laughs> and just take a nice, big, deep breath, feel into that ocean, water, the Aegean Sea. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Step into the water bearer. And then by Friday, she moves into Pisces. Poseidon. I can just imagine him emerging out of that water <laughs> with his trident. Oh, poor Dios. And then by Monday, she's going to be moving. I mean, she'll conjunct uh, Neptune, of course, while she's there in Pisces. And, uh, and then she'll come into Aries. Yeah, we do have the third quarter square as that sun is moving through Taurus. I will be reading the Sabian symbol for the moon in Aquarius, right? That is going to be at what degree? I think it's like the 22nd degree of Aquarius. Let me get up here and show you this hot springs. These hot springs are all over. Even when you go swimming out underneath uh, the water in the beach, there's uh, <laughs> hot springs emerging out from under your feet. You have to be careful not to step on them because they're so freaking hot. Anyway, <laughs> hard to stay focused on astrology when uh, surrounded with all this beauty. But, yeah. You know, lots of things going on this week. Uh, let's let's face it. Uh, Venus is trying Saturn. 
Okay, Friday and Saturday, depending upon where you are on planet Earth. Mars is trying Neptune next Monday. There's a big change in the energy here. I put a little wave going through Sunday to Monday because why? A couple of things. Mercury stations and goes direct on Sunday. Whoosh! I mean, if the eclipse isn't enough, then you've got, you know, retrograde Mercury on top of that, conjunct the sun and Uranus on top of that. Ah! But there's a big turnaround, right? That's what I'm saying. We're coming out of this, like, maelstrom, (laughs) like a hurricane at sea, but the shore is in sight. Look at this one. How about that? Sweet. So, yeah, uh, Mercury stations and goes direct. And then, okay, uh, Jupiter. Jupiter goes into Taurus next Tuesday. It's going to be something else. I'm going to read you the Sabian symbol for the first degree of Taurus. And, you know, it's been a year. Jupiter's been in, you know, Aries since last May, pretty much, you know, and... Yeah, and fire, fire, fire is going to, you know, be coming down into Earth a little bit. It's going to be sweet. So uh, these are the aspects that I'm going to talk about. Uh, let me find a nice place to uh, to do that and talk at you later. <laughs> All right, everybody. <sighs> I hope I can pull this off, man. I mean, it's uh, intermittent raining. I've been down here climbing around these rocks. Look at that's a huge cave back there. Can you see the? the I went back into the cave, but it was too dark. It was too dark in the cave. I was just a, a black shadow, so I had to come out. I hope it doesn't start raining. There are some local. Uh, Greeks here that swim uh, swim out to this spot. You, you have to you have to swim out to this spot, uh, and they uh, they shower in that hot. That, that's hot water. That's a hot springs back there. <laughs> this place is phenomenal. Anyway, you know if you don't watch it for the astrology, watch it for the uh, scenery. <laughs> but what are we talking about here? I mean, it's like, whoosh, talk about intense. It has been intense, yeah. And it's, in a way, there's waves, and that's what the, that that is what the mantra is about, okay, for this week, is that it's waves. Life is like a sine wave, okay, you know, we go up and we go down, we go back up, we go back down, it's like waves upon the sea, we are waves upon the sea, and whether it's the sun that rises and then sets and then goes to midnight and rises again and uh, and sets, you know, or the moon, or everything is cycles, everything is sine waves, everything is in constant changing motion, the seasons of the year tell us over and over and over again, you know, starting with Aries in the spring in the northern hemisphere, okay, you know, the seed is planted, the days get longer, okay, you know, and we have, you know, 
the rise of the sap and the juices and the fruits and the blossoms, and then it all falls down and the fruit drops off the trees and the temperature drops and the nights get longer. And it, I mean, it's so beautiful. Oh my goodness. And at the same time, life can be cruel. The soul, the unconscious that, you know, is just going from lifetime to lifetime to lifetime and dips down into this third dimension, into these physical bodies, into these emotional bodies, into these mental ego bodies. You know, it's just like, okay, the the soul is ruthless and can be very, create a lot of disasters. And, And this is Uranus. Uranus is the symbolizes in astrology the personal unconscious and the personal unconscious holds within it three things the akashic record of our soul everything we've done in all of our previous lifetimes every potential every seed that is now existing within our psyche within our soul within our unconscious unconscious Every potential and every possible future, which is like we can't grasp that with the brain. We can't grasp that with the ego. That doesn't make sense. How could, you know, Uranus, you know, contain all possible futures? Wow. (laughs) Like, blow mind, blow mind. And... It's so unconscious. What do we do with what's unconscious within us? We project it. We put it out there. I, I, you know, it's, it's just like I experience my unconscious through relationship, through partnership, and through accidents, through unpredictable events. So Uranus is these, you know, erratic, unstable, lightning flashes of insight and lightning flashes of, you know, disaster like, aha, oh no, or aha, oh yeah. (laughs) It can go either way. (laughs) And it usually goes, if you are into change and you accept change and you don't resist change, Uranus comes along and says, yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you're stuck and you're afraid, you're insecure, you don't trust yourself, you don't love yourself, you don't, you know, you don't feel capable or able or valuable or, you know, supported or connected or all these, you know, uh, ideas of separation that undermine our courage And we resist that change and we go, oh, no, I need this and I need you and I need that and I need that and that, 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 that. And I'm holding, 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 holding. Well, Uranus liberates us whether we like it or not. It's like, you know what? You don't need that. (laughs) You don't need me. You don't need her. You don't need him. You don't need that money. You don't need that job. You don't need that house. You don't need that. 
you know, and then it's like, oh, <laughs> oh, God. So I want to read you, you know, the Sabian symbol for this moon degree because it's, it, yeah, it, it says a lot. It's really, it's, it, it, it's very beautiful in a way. Okay, this is a 22 degrees of Aquarius. So the moon is in Aquarius squaring the sun that just hit Uranus and now it's moved on to the 22nd degree of Taurus. Okay. A rug is placed on the floor of a nursery to allow children to play in comfort and warmth. The keynote. The warmth of understanding which comes to those who early in life are open to new possibilities. We are never left without assistance when eagerly seeking to grow emotionally and spiritually. Let that sink in. Even if we do not consciously realize the intent and value of what sustains our self-development and cushions the shocks which life provides our growth in understanding, still, the assistance is there. We are held. We may think, No one understands me. (laughs) But the understanding is there. If we do not egotistically take for granted that life and society owes us everything. So we can get into places where, oh, you know, you said you loved me or you said you were going to or you, I always counted on you for blah, 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 blah. You know, I thought this was always, I mean, it's egotistically taking things for granted. This is a Neptunian Pisces 12th house. You know, it's not just egotistically, but it can also be innocently. It can also be naively, like a child, you know, like a baby takes for granted. The children are playing on the rug. They take it for granted, okay, that if they fall down, it's not going to hurt. There's a rug, you know. So we can take things for granted. And it's when we take things for granted that we get screwed up, baby, that we get reminded, okay, to be grateful, to be thankful, to be humble and and to give thanks yeah for for i mean look at this look at this planet look at nature look at this life wow <laughs> oh my god which brings me to my next point jupiter moving into taurus Oh, poor Dios. Cut it out. Jupiter, Mercury going back to station, conjunct the North Node, really. The North Node, the Sun, and Uranus 
in Taurus, ruled by Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty. Oh, the goddess of love. The lower octave of Neptune, Poseidon. I should do a reverse on the camera here and show you the, I'm, what I'm looking out at. Maybe I will at the end of the, <laughs> this is just, you gotta love, you gotta love Greece, man. Anyway, where was I? Jupiter moving into Taurus. I gotta read you the Sabian symbol for the first degree of Taurus. Okay. Because I mean, this is just so apropos. Okay. This is so revitalizing. Just think of Gaia. Think of Taurus. Think of the earth. Think of these, you know, uh, the hot springs and the, and the, the architecture, the color. The stones, the rocks, the beauty of Mother Nature, whether it's the trees and the plants and the flowers or the stones and the rocks and the oceans. I mean, it is just a phenomenal. <laughs> uh, you think of everywhere in the galaxy, man. You think of all the other planets. I mean, we are. This is like paradise. I always call Taurus the Garden of Eden opposite Scorpio, which is hell in the underworld. And, it, you know, that's, it's a polarity. And we bounce back and forth. And like what we've been through is that eclipse in Scorpio. And let's look at it. You know, like I said many times, January of 22 to July of 23, North Node in Taurus, South Node in Scorpio. It's like sweeping out the garage. Or it's like moving. You know, Scorpio is letting go, okay, you know, of the old house, the old garage, the old derp, sweep it out, box it up, clean it out. And this North Node in Taurus is to simplify. And Jupiter coming in here says what? A clear mountain stream. The pure uncontaminated and spontaneous manifestation of one's own nature. Here we see life substance in its original dynamic form and as it emerged from its spiritual source. This is true whatever the nature of the source may be. In a sense... The mountain stream is conditioned by the nature of the soil and by all the forces which in the past have formed the mountain's rock strata, that is to say, by past history. Yet out of this past, a new, pure, unadulterated release of potentiality has emerged. It is ready to perform whatever work its dharma is to accomplish. These springs of life emerge, okay, from the heated, hotted guts of Gaia. I mean, we are infinite potential incarnated into these bodies. And, you know, we are here. Our lives 
is a release of dharma. I, I got this guy swimming over here. He likes to shower. This is going to be very interesting. <laughs> so anyway, simple, simple Simon says, Jupiter in Taurus, North Node in Taurus, the pure, unadulterated you. It's our potential from Aries, actually from Pisces, comes down through the fire of Aries and wants to manifest here in Taurus, in our physical bodies, in these organs, in the skin, in the bones. So beautiful and so powerful. And so what I want to return to now is just this kind of sense, like I said at the very beginning, you know, I put this line in there between Sunday and Monday because Mercury's been retrograde. It's been time to reflect and review and remember. And we've had all this. And Venus and Mars, both in Cancer, bringing up the emotions and the fears and the insecurities and what moms used to say and dad used to say and, oh, my childhood and, you know, oh, I need to be nurtured and supported. Where is my nurturing and supporting? <laughs> the eclipse in Scorpio is taking everything away and I feel oh, left alone. But this is the thing with Taurus. We are held. We stand on the earth. She supports every single one of us unconditionally, whether we're an asshole or an angel. Gaia is here <laughs> supporting us. We are supported. So we go through these cycles and these emotions and these ups and these downs. And I think we've been through a real challenging time period. And we are now rising. We're coming into these trines. Venus trine Saturn is very stabilizing. Mars trine Neptune, okay, is, you know, the release of spirit potential. Yeah, through action. So it's, it's a very beautiful time. And so the mantra for this week is, whether I'm in the doldrums or having an absolute blast, <laughs> I stay more centered and keep my balance by knowing this too shall pass. So if you're having a really great time, don't count on it lasting. And if you're having a really hard time, just know that it will not last. Yeah. One more time before my swimmer arrives. Whether I'm in the doldrums or having an absolute blast, I stay more centered and keep my balance by knowing this too shall pass. This too shall pass. So take full advantage of what is now. Namaste. Aloha. So much love.
Sixteen minutes, Rama? Sixteen. Sixteen minutes. Here we go. Well, hello everyone. It's Tanya Gabrielle here, Wealth Astrologist, and welcome. Star Codes. This is the podcast where we look at an upcoming event in the stars and numbers, the astrology and numerology, to gain insight so that we are prepared and able to rise to the occasion in the most high vibrational way possible. And in this case, we are going to look at a very, very big event that happens in mid to late May. It actually begins around the 16th of May, and that is when Jupiter enters Taurus and then unfolds in a major way where Jupiter moves into a position with Pluto and Mars, which will be opposite each other. And all three planets will be exactly at zero degrees in their respective new signs. So this is actually really amazing, very powerful, and really will touch on faith being fearless, moving forward, and having the fortitude to not move back, but move into a position where you feel the inner strength guiding you every step of the way. So it's a really big, transcendent and transformational time. And like I said, very intense, very fiery. So let's begin with the fact that Jupiter is changing signs, moving from Aries into Taurus on May 16th. Now, Jupiter takes 12 years to move through the zodiac, the 12 signs, approximately 12 years. So it stays about a year in each sign. And so it's been in Aries for a year, now moving into Taurus until May 24th of 2024. So what makes this change of signs so stunning is that Pluto, as you probably recall, recently moved into Aquarius at zero degrees and stayed at zero degrees and then stationed retrograde on May 1st and is now moving slowly back into Capricorn. But it will be at zero degrees until June 11th. So that means Jupiter's change of signs into Taurus will create a powerful square between these two planets. Now, when Pluto and Jupiter get together, it's really exciting for the most part because this is considered a wealth connection. 
So whether it is a conjunction or a square, which it is in this case, an opposition, a sextile, a trine, it's, it's really, for the most part, helpful. Now, everything is coming up regarding your beliefs. Having a sense of, are my beliefs based on something that was taught to me, which usually the beliefs are from the past, something that's handed down to you and taught you something about what to believe in. And it's the difference between believing in something and having faith. And faith is a surrender to the divine flow, to the divine intelligence, to divine timing. So where Jupiter rules faith and wisdom and the expansion of energy, Pluto rules life, death, transformation. So what you believe to be true is definitely going to be rapidly shifting at this time. And it will address any imbalances as well. So why am I saying in terms of the beliefs in the past is because Pluto is in Aquarius, which is the sign of the future moving forward. So this is an extraordinary time since Pluto hasn't been in Aquarius in 248 years and just recently entered and is going back and forth due to the retrograde cycle between Aquarius and Capricorn for the next year and a half. But it is an Aquarius when Jupiter enters Taurus. So there is a real sense of getting self-awareness about what is a hand-me-down belief, which is usually the case. It's something that has been taught versus having faith. Then Mars comes around to add to the big occasion. And Mars is quick. Mars is fiery. Mars does not waste time. Mars gets directly to the point. So here's Pluto governing everything that is unseen, the mysterious things you research, profound discoveries, realizations, uncovering things that people have been wondering about. So archaeological discoveries, for example, bringing truth to the surface in any way. It is a very political planet, is connected to politics, and it's also named after plutonium because it was discovered at the same time in the 1930s, I believe. It governs for fission and fusion, uh, psychology, destruction, and rebirth. So it's a very intense planet. Now, when it's opposite the fire of Mars, which symbolizes direct dynamic action, courage it can be either aggressive or assertive fiery dynamic it's incredibly fast moving as i was saying so mars opposite pluto which occurs every two years or so is even more accentuated because of jupiter being in between forming this t-square and enhancing expanding everything so that makes it much more powerful and notable. Jupiter will bring some positive energy aside from hugely amplifying the opposition between Mars and Pluto. It will also bring a sense of faith and joy into the equation and a sense of empowerment. So it can go both ways. It can go into you feeling triggered or it can go to you feeling totally empowered and you can experience both. So 
What we're going to focus on here is how you can make this time a hugely productive time, abundance-wise, leadership-wise, confidence-wise, moving out of the past ways that have held you back into very dynamic, profoundly inspired and truth, integrity-generated forward momentum. And your values are very much on the table here because Jupiter just moved into Taurus. It will be at zero degrees Taurus. And Taurus is all about your values and it also governs financial flow. So when Jupiter and Pluto come together, the two planets, when they interact, bringing abundance, while Jupiter enters the sign Taurus, which governs financial flow, you can see there are many opportunities here in addition to the challenges. So there is a sense, though, of the inevitable with with Mars, which adds to the element of also impatience or being short-tempered, right? So you need to be very aware that Mars entering Leo, a fire sign, opposite Pluto in Aquarius, an air sign, air and fire are quick-moving elements. So it will heat up for a few days. And I'm talking about between the 17th of May and especially the 19th and 20th and 21st. And then it starts dissipating, even though Mars will square Jupiter on the 23rd, very early in the morning, universal time, 22nd in the Americas. The events will happen quickly, suddenly, unexpectedly, and it will bring to the surface things that have been already simmering prior to this time. So just keep that in mind. So whatever appears now as a result of this T-square between Pluto and Mars opposite each other and then Jupiter in the middle is just going to amplify and basically make it unavoidable that you look at underlying dynamics that were put into play prior to this time and now need to be addressed. So there's really no way out of this because Pluto will uncover the truth. Mars will go directly to the destination. Jupiter will give you the faith and expand your vision. So you see everything is seen. Nothing is avoided. Everything's brought to your attention. And remember too, that Mercury station direct on May 14th, just a week prior to all of this, even a few days prior to this. And that means energy is moving forward again, but also the clarity and the understanding and the ability to communicate is flowing in a way that allows this fast moving energy to express itself. If you are feeling challenged, if you, if your buttons are being pushed in some way, make sure to take your time and sleep on whatever is being discussed or needs to come to a decision because you want to respond after this big fireworks display is finished. Mars and Leo, that is fire and fire. Leo is a fire sign, Mars a fire planet. And so you want to take a rain check and immerse yourself in a calm, warm, cozy environment. So you can reassess, you can reflect, you can get grounded And you want to do this before proceeding, deciding, acting, communicating, responding, if you feel triggered. Okay, so just know this is deeply intense energy and that may be a possibility. 
And it's not that you won't make a decision. It's the manner in which you convey the decision, deliver it, and, and, and the way you feel it. So you will act, and in doing so, be assertive rather than being aggressive. With intense energy like this, fortunately, the fire goes out pretty quickly, and you have now the foreknowledge to take the time necessary to be patient if you feel triggered. You won't be able to walk away from whatever shows up for you. It's going to require your full attention. So you can't take an indefinite rain check, in other words, because the dynamic nature of this T-square requires that you respond and act. Otherwise, you really feel it, and it won't feel that awesome, honestly. So however you can take the most high vibrational path in creating breathing room and coming into a place of neutrality, that's really the key, is the neutral sense where all parts of the equation can be felt and assessed at the same time. That's being so present that you are neutral. You're not polarized. Otherwise, you may feel, if you're polarized, the urge to be confrontational, aggressive, do the opposite of, you know, the opposition between the two, do the opposite of what is actually helpful, or deliberately avoid a situation that needs to be resolved, which is passive-aggressive, right? The aggressive would be the the attack, the aggress- aggression, and the passive would be the deliberate avoidance and holding back, not revealing anything. So the good news is after this period, around 21st, 22nd of May, we'll start benefiting from these two fire planets, Jupiter and Mars, moving into their new signs. Jupiter into Taurus on May 16th, Mars into Leo on May 20th. This means you'll feel more resilient because Jupiter is in Taurus, more fired up, more confident. Your light will shine with Mars in Leo. You will feel aligned with pleasure and goodness and simple living and natural living and the beauty of nature and getting grounded. And you'll lack a complete sense of fear. You'll be fearless and you'll have a total sense of joy. So this is actually quite a stunning moment. As you can see, there is, in a sense, a fork in the road about how you will choose to experience this stunning T-square. And if you stay present and you put your faith in the divine intelligence, the divine timing, into listening to source, your guides, creator, you have an incredible opportunity to make some wonderful changes in your life that will accelerate a sense of goodness and beauty, pleasure and fulfillment and love and joy and peace. So take this time to Make a commitment to your heart, 
and to all things that are good in life, because goodness shall always prevail. And since Mars is so activated, this incredible go get it (laughs) now fire planet of action, it's a really good time to get acquainted with Mars and also Mars's compatriot Venus. And you can do that in a free masterclass that I have, a wonderful masterclass at venusmarscode.com. And it's all about the great awakening of the divine feminine and sacred masculine within us. And it talks about the five-pointed star of Venus, the 13 cycles of Venus, the move from aggression into assertion, so not being aggressive, lashing out, confronting, going to war, but being assertive. There's a big difference, and that's really being shifted right now. And we also look at the letters V and M for Venus and Mars and the Mayan calendar and how it all ties into this big shift. There are tremendous cosmic changes in the world and they're unfolding rapidly in this decade. And so this masterclass, which is free, it's really not to be missed. So go to venusmarscode.com. Have an incredible mid-May season, and I'll be back next week to talk more about that incredible Taurus new moon, which happens at the time that this T-square is exact. So very exciting. It's a very positive new moon, so it brings some really nice balance. So have a beautiful, beautiful week, and I'll see you next week. Lots of love. How's the talking stick back to you, Richard? All right. All right. I've been, uh, I'm always reading something, you know. All right. Mm-hmm. Going back a ways here, uh, I think I mentioned to Tara one time that I had, when I had finished reading all of my uh, uh, books by the Tibetan and Alice Bailey. Right. I did a, actually, I, I finally did an inventory. And according to my best data, I have all but one of the Master DK's books. Wow. And there are like 19 of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, Alice herself wrote six. I've got three. Anyway, so I went, I went up on the top shelf uh, and went sorting, and I pulled... Uh, the rest of my uh, theosophy-related books down. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I got some interesting things here, a couple of them that I had completely forgotten that I even had. But the first one I I picked up is called Lectures on Political Science by Annie Besant. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, fellow of the Hindu and National Universities. So this is first series, being an introduction to the study delivered at the National College of Commerce in Madras. And this is from 1919. Now in this in this uh, book, it's not a lot of pages. It's a, it's like three long, uh, no, 
let's see, five lectures. Yeah, something like that, five lectures. Seven lectures. The state, the evolution of the state, the east, the west, government and government continued. And she goes through the history of the state in India from all from Indian sources Indian sources. Starting with the extended family, the village, the collective Collections of you know villages got together and early early government in India and how they organized themselves and how they developed councils and and how they made their laws and how they organized their uh, land and everything. Very very interesting. All right. Book number two. Now, this one's interesting. This is called First Steps in Theosophy by Ethel M. Mallet. M-A-L-L-E-T. Okay. And it's to Mrs. Annie Besant. And it's Mrs. Herbert White, W-H-Y-T-E, third edition, published in London, 1920, with illustrations. And this is very interesting. Uh, The articles, which in revised form are here collected, first made their appearance in the pages of the Lotus Journal. And uh, we got Table of Contents, Divine Wisdom, the Law of Rebirth, Law of Cause and Effect, the Evolution of the Individual, Man and His Bodies, the Etheric Double, the Body of Feelings, and all the rest of it. And illustrations, the developed causal body is the front of species, or these are color, these are color mm. illustrations, and I believe they're done in watercolor. Richard, you got to come back. You're way far away. But they're very, they're very full. They're full color, and then. Uh, the effect of intense anger upon the astral body. And you got the astral body of a savage, astral body of a developed man, the effect of a sudden rush of affection upon the astral body. The above five plates are reproduced from man visible and invisible by C.W. Leadbeater. Oh yeah. So he he was one of the strong clairvoyants of that group of people that were uh, the organizers and participants of the early Theosophical Society. Yeah, no, the, 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 
the illustrations are fascinating. This is written in in a way that uh, you could teach a, you could teach a young person from 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 this handbook here. Yes. Next. Who knew that before the Master D.K. wrote his two volumes on the discipleship of the New Age that Annie Besant wrote a book on the path of discipleship. She wrote a lot of stuff. But her book, The Path of Discipleship, is four lectures delivered at the 20th anniversary of the Theosophical Society in Adyar, Madras, December 28, 29, 27, 8, 9, 30, and 1891. And this is the eighth reprint, published in London, reprinted 1918. And in this one, she's got four chapters. First, steps, qualifications for discipleship, the life of the disciple, and then the future progress of humanity. And this one is just 150 pages. And she talks about all interesting things about human development and uh, blah, blah, blah. So next... I found a group of, let's call it a group of six, but beside that group of six, there was a seventh. And this, and I read this one first before I tackled these others. This one is called The Laws of the Higher Life. And again, this is a, a little paperback. Uh, it's about four by five inches, and about what this one's only about fifty-nine pages. The laws of the higher life, being lectures delivered at the twelfth annual convention of the Indian section of the Theosophical Society, held at Benares. In December 1902, second edition, and this one is from the Theosophical Publishing House, American branch in Crotona, Hollywood, Los Angeles, California, 1919, and so it turns out Part one, the larger consciousness. Part two, the law of a duty. And part three, the law of sacrifice. Oh my. So this is yeah, you got you got twenty five twenty five pages on the larger consciousness and you got sixteen pages on Dharma. All right, or the law of duty, and then you got uh, eighteen pages on the law of sacrifice or service. 
and it's very, very uh, a sweet little handbook. And I finished that on May the 5th. Uh-huh. Now, the next group was interesting as a group. These, again, are the same format as, as the other one. Uh, paper, paperback, uh, 100 pages plus or minus. Yeah, about about four by five inches. These are theosophical manuals. Mm-hmm. They put out a group of manuals. And manual number one, the seven principles of man. And this one, revised edition, uh, published in... California, 1918. Seven Principles of Man. All right. Who remembers the seven principles of man? Uh I got them memorized now. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, you got the dense, you got the dense, I call it the meat body. And then you got the etheric double is number two. Prana is number three, vitality, all right, Prana. Number four is the desire body. Number five is the thinker or the mind. And then number six and seven are the atma or the spirit and the spiritual covering. Mm-hmm. So there's your seven, your seven principles of man. That's the, the the spiritual soul is atma plus the buddhic buddha buddhic body. They're on the seventh plane and the sixth plane, and then you got the mind, the plane of the mind when the uh, when the uh, lords of flame showed up. All right. Mm-hmm. Oh, and and in passing. The number given for the number of units of individual thinkers on all planes in this solar system is six thousand sixty thousand excuse me, sixty thousand million. Which is sixty trillion. There are sixty trillion individual units of mind. Manual 2 is on reincarnation, also by Annie, and this is also 1919. Manual number 3 is called Death and After, and I'm working on that one now. But before I read that one, I read manual number five, The Astral Plane, by Mr. Leadbeater. <sighs> and this is uh, fifth edition, 1918. The Astral Plane, its scenery, inhabit- inhabitants, and phenomena. So if you want to know about the first place you're going when you drop your physical body. You're going to the astral plane because you've got a astral body. 
you've got a body built of astral plane matter, which is called the desire body, and is that which allows us to be conscious of feelings or magnetics or whatever you want to call it. And then Theosophical Manual number six is the Debachonic plane. That's D-E-B-A-C-H-A-N-I-C. And that's the uh, Sanskrit term for the mental plane. This is is also by Mr. Leadbeater. And this this one's got a, a hard a hard cover, a ca- hard cardboard cover. Very, it's a very nice book. Also pre- printed in Los Angeles, California region in 1990. This is the fourth edition, revised and enlarged. So uh, he re- he rewrote it and added stuff to it as he learned, you know, as he learned more stuff. So that's. That's I've got to find out what manual number four is. It's probably on karma, cause and effect. You know, good old law of cause and effect. You know, I think that's what a lot of people uh, forget when they're talking about various aspects of the of the human condition. Is they forget that when you come back from your time in heaven you bring back your obligations from that previous lifetime with you and the lords of karma help your higher self design and develop the conditions for your next birth so that you can right the wrongs that you committed previously. Okay, Richard, maybe we should stop there. Well, maybe we should, because that's the last book I've got to talk about. (coughs) Oh, that's very good. So that's perfect timing. Until we do this again. We we can do it again. I mean, obviously, I just wanted to give you an idea of what's available in the reference library. So if you've got any questions, you know, we can talk about that later. Okay, anyway, we will. Yes, all right. Love you much. Namaste to everyone, especially those that are listening right now. Namaste. <laughs> Love you back, Richard, until we meet again right. next Over week. Over and out. Have a good week. Thank you. Namaste. You too. Okay, everybody. Rama, what's the phone number for our conference call? Uh, 720-716-7301. And the PIN code is 353-863-POUND. Okay, one more time. 720-716-7301. And the PIN code is 353 353- Eight six three pound. Thank you, Rama. Okay, everybody.
will be uh, spending until the top of the next hour on our conference call. And then we'll be right back here on BBS Radio, the best radio there is. And we'll see you on the conference now. Namaste, everybody. See you there. Aloha. River Ganga. JJ Ma. Thank you, Rama. Wow. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day, everyone. The real mother. <laughs> that was wonderful. Thank you, Rama. That was wonderful music. Yeah. All right. So, shall we complete with uh, yeah, yeah, Ethan and Michaela, huh? Yeah. Hopefully. All right. Here we go. I hope it looks like it. What? It might. Let me see here. Okay. Money for making something. Maybe I should go back a couple minutes. Just a little bit, tiny, tiny bit. Okay. Fortunately, it's controlled and limited, and that's what makes it a bad thing. So in the spiritual space, I think a lot of times we think of money, you know, or even growing up may believe that money is evil uh, or money doesn't grow on trees, all these very limiting beliefs that we we're taught growing up um, or that um, if you have money, you're greedy. Uh, and these some of these may be well-intentioned by family members who are speaking these things, but I think uh, on a more broad scale. Uh, I think there are intentions there to teach people these uh, these ideas to keep us from not having very much money. So the very few can control the world. But one thing that I want everyone to understand is that the amount of money or resources you have has nothing to do with anyone else. So if uh, if you charge money for making something, piece of artwork, or you charge money for a service, whether you're a physician or you're a Reiki healer, that money that's being paid to you by that other person has nothing to do with that other person. That even though we can say in a very grounded, practical perspective, you charge $100 for something and that other person handed that $100 to you, physically that that hundred dollars is no longer in their hands and in their bank account it's now in yours and therefore it exchanged hands they have less and you have more and you might say that that's the case but um but the reality is that the the money that came by way of another person did not actually come from that other person it is simply source expressing itself through that person as an in, as a way to facilitate that exchange, but ultimately it's not that other person. Um, it is the universe expressing itself through them. So when that money comes to you from that other person, it doesn't really come to you from that other person. It comes to you by way of them. So how much you charge for something, whether you charge very little, and I know a lot of people in the spiritual space especially, but this is not just in the spiritual space. I think this is just humanity in general. When people are self-employed, as an example, they tend to have a hard time with charging money for things. And uh, and what you need to understand is um, the amount you charge for something, whether it's too little or too much, 
is more a reflection of your own sense of self-worth uh, and your own belief in how much you are worth in uh, between you and source. So if I charge $100 or I charge $400 for something uh, and somebody pays me that, it is no reflection on them and and their wealth or monetary resource is between them and source. So let's say I charge $400 for something that everybody else charges $100 for and people pay me the $400 for it. Um, that person who paid me the $400, for them, it may be nothing uh, or for them, it may be a lot. But regardless of what it is for them, their relationship with their source is what determines their flow. So let's say one person pays me $400 and for them it's nothing because they have so much wealth. And the other person that $400 is really difficult and they had to save for months to, to pay it. That difference has nothing to do with me. Um, because the one person who has uh, an incredible amount of abundance has a better relationship with their source in that area where the other person does not. And it is not something that I will change by charging less. So if somebody says you charge too much and you lower your price, you have not affected their abundance whatsoever. Uh, and and in, in many ways, you have reinforced their ability to stay right where they are. Um, and in meanwhile, you have just reduced yours. And, and you're basically saying to source, I can take less. I need less. And if maybe if you do, uh, and that amount, and that amount of money is plenty for you in the life that you're living, then that's great. It doesn't really matter. But if you could be living a bigger life and doing more, then you should be charging more. So, uh, but again, it, the service or product you're offering has to be worth that too. So you can't just simply charge more and be doing the same thing that somebody else is doing. And this is what gets back to my earlier comment about if you're offering something that is unique to you, you're following your soul's purpose, then you can charge more because what you're doing is special. And it's something that only you can do. But if you're doing something that everybody else is doing, then then you can't really charge more for it because you're a commodity. And I often use the example of if you're buying an orange, for example, uh, and uh, and two stores are selling oranges because it's a commodity, everybody sells oranges, every grocery store has them, uh, then at that point, you're just looking for the lowest price orange because it doesn't really matter. They're all oranges. And, and that's what a lot of people do when they go into businesses. They sell an orange that everybody else is selling instead of trying to figure out what they can do that's unique and special that other people can't do and doing that thing. At that point, they're selling something that is a totally different fruit that doesn't even exist on the planet except for what they're providing. And when you're providing something that is completely different that nobody else on the planet can provide, you can charge whatever you want for it. Uh, as long as what you're doing is beneficial and people see the value in what you're doing. Um, you know, I often use the examples of of um, different luxury brands, for example. And um, people will spend a ridiculous amount of money on a purse, for example, or shoes. Uh, I would never do that because I don't value that thing. But there are people who do value that thing. And when you value something and it's unique and special and one of a kind, you're willing, there are always going to be people who are willing to pay 
for that thing because they value it. And another thing that's important to remember, and I learned this in all my years of business, and that is the lower, and I, I know this is going to, um, you know, a lot of people are going to disagree with this, but I, from personal experience, found this to be true. And I've read this in many books about the psychology of money and scarcity and things like that. So I not only have the the, the, the research and reading experience, personal experience. And that is in businesses that I own throughout my life, I found that when I charge the least amount of money, I always had clients who were dissatisfied uh, and were more difficult to work with. Um, and they complained about the money being too much, even though I was charging so little. When I found that I, in the very same field of work, was at the opposite extreme where I was charging the most for whatever I was offering. I had the most happy clients. They were very pleased. They were extremely easy to work with and I never questioned the cost. So now maybe if you're charging the most in the field, and this is certainly true in businesses I've owned in the past, in the mainstream and in the spiritual spaces, and that is when you get to the higher price points, you're not going to be working with the people who could not afford those price points. But again, as I said, you are the amount of money you make is your relationship with source. It has more to do with your own self-worth than it has to do with the other person who is handing you the money. So that's a really important point to keep in mind because I think many of us uh, feel guilty when we charge more for something or feel like, well, it's a spiritual thing. We shouldn't charge for it. But it, those two ideas are totally uh, incongruent because uh, they, they're not related. The amount of money you charge is not related to the service you offer. The amount of money you charge is simply source providing you with resources so that you can live the life you came here to live. Totally separate from whatever work you're doing in the world. And if you are always telling source, no, I don't want this money, I'm going to charge less, that's fine, but you may not live to the potential because, you know, as Michaela said, as an example, if we didn't charge what we do for what we do, then we wouldn't be able to have the studio as an example. Um, and so the studio costs a lot of money and a lot of time and even all the technology, which none of you see, uh, was very expensive to to put together and make it all work a certain way. And now if we charge a lot less, then we would not have been able to do those things. And this is where the universe is willing to provide you with the resources to live your life to its fullest potential. But if you have a hard time accepting that abundance and that self-worth, what you're actually worth, then you may still do the work that you came here to do but not to the potential of what you can do because you won't have the resources to do it. Um, so that's where, you know, it's just some of the ideas about money that I think are really important to keep in mind when you're navigating this space and moving into something that where you're expressing your own unique purpose out in the world. Yeah, I want to take this to a, a more multidimensional perspective as opposed to material just for a second, because if we are becoming multidimensional beings, that means that we're working with more energy and we're playing with more options. So I think where the open source is brilliant is 
we get to give the entire world access to something very special that we have to offer. So, so for us, it's the podcast. We do live events free of charge with no expectation. And we are able to do that to reach those people who could never afford to pay for a service that requires more of our energy. And I think that's another difference in terms of a more conventional business model versus moving into the fifth dimension and a spiritual type of purpose is that we neglect to value our energy. We are used to valuing our time and and what we do. And this is a lesson I learned very early on is, you know, as a channel, I can't do eight, nine sessions a day. And believe me, I tried, but but running the way that I run energy in order to do something that big for, for one individual, it, it's a lot. So over the years, I've had to back off the number and up the price. And that's become one of the more expensive areas of my service. But the brilliant thing about multidimensionality and creativity in a spiritual purpose is that you get to price things at various levels based on your energy and your input. And so for me, working with a group, for example, or or filming a video for a subscription is very affordable for those who might not be able to do a session who still get to work with the guides, Um, you know, courses, workshops, all of these things. And I love that, even the book, right? So my work gets to express through all of these different things. It isn't this one linear thing. And those things are all priced differently because they require different levels of energy and output and are received by different numbers of people. And that's making a huge, I feel purposeful, it's it's making a huge impact in fulfilling my purpose and, and having a purpose on the planet. So it's a different way of thinking, I believe, than than what we're used to. And that's another thing we have to consider is when we're looking out at the world today, and social media and in the coaching and the branding and all of that stuff, we can really fall into the trap of having to do things a certain way to gain followers or, or get approval, um, make money. And none of those things are necessary. When you have a, a spiritual gift that no one else has and you offer it with no expectation, the invita- invitations to work with it more are going to come. It, it's just, it's, the way the universe works, you know, we, we are supporting others and then the universe is supporting us. And then we have more energy to work with, to use that support in really, really creative ways. So I think no matter how you, no matter how you slice it, um, moving between dimensions is tough. Yeah. We're going to face resistance within ourselves, within the world, within family members, because it's something very unknown and completely different. Yeah, I do want to touch on that in, in a more grounded practical. And that's the, I'm the grounded practical side of this uh, show uh, because that's just the way I think. And what Michaela is saying is very important because, uh, and I want to relate it to what I see a lot of people in the spiritual space and how they structure their businesses. There are two ways of doing things. One, you could be, and let me just use Reiki as an example. So let's just say you're doing, you're practicing Reiki and that's your business. And so you're doing something that's a commodity. And because of that, you charge a low price point because there's a Reiki master on every corner. So 
you can't charge a premium price because they can go to that next corner and get the same service that you're offering, at least what you say you're offering, because a lot of people who are saying they're practicing Reiki are actually doing something that's probably a little bit different, unique to them, but they're still calling it Reiki. So as far as the public is concerned, it's the same thing. So, so one way you could, you could structure your, um, living your life purpose is to do something that's a commodity and charge a low price point. And then you would be doing 10 sessions a day or however many you can possibly do. And you're barely getting by at the end of the week. So I see the vast majority of people, I think, in the spiritual space who are trying to run a spiritually based business, uh, because at the end of the day, in the modern world, in most places, may not apply to you, but if you're living in a westernized culture, then you are offering products and services for a monetary exchange. And in that practical scenario, uh, if you are a Reiki master, you're probably working your butt off trying to barely get by. And at the end of the month, you're still barely getting by month after month. That's one way to do it. Low price point high volume, uh, and you're always on this treadmill, you know, Mikhail used hamster wheel, which might be a better example, forever. Another way to structure your, uh, your, what you're offering is you have a tiered system, which is what Michaela was talking about. And a tiered system, the things that you do that require the most of your personal time are at the very top of the tier. So, if you are working one-on-one with, with what you're doing, so let's say you're doing Reiki healing. Uh, it wouldn't work with Reiki, but but let's just use that as an example. And you're doing a one-hour session, and you can only work with one person in this one-hour session, then that would be a top tier because you only have X amount of hours in our linear timeline in a given week to offer that session. So so that would you would offer you would offer at the pre at a premium offering. So that you could do, you wouldn't have to um, exhaust yourself every week to to make enough money to get by. And then the next tier down would be something like classes, like Michaela was talking about. And you may be able to teach a class to twenty or a hundred or hundreds of or thousands of people, really. And and so that you can charge a much lower price point and and help many more people because. That one hour you're teaching that class can serve thousands of people or hundreds of people or whatever, but not just the one person. So for that, you would charge a lower price point. And now you've gone from somebody who's a Reiki master who's maxing out doing as many sessions as they can possibly do in a week at a low price point to somebody who is charging a high price point for one-on-one sessions. And the next year down, they're offering a lower price point for classes based on the amount of time that's required to serve the people. And the next tier might be an even lower price point. Maybe it's a different kind of workshop, or maybe it's um, uh, like Michaela, for example, she wrote her book, uh, but her book is for free on her website. So uh, there's a book that took her years to write, and she's still editing it, even still to this day. And all that time that she put into that, would not have been possible. That, that book would not exist if she was charging like a Reiki master would charge and trying to do as many sessions as, as she can. She would have burnt herself out years ago and probably not even be doing that work anymore uh, because of that. So 
So if you structure it that way, now you can serve more people. And the next tier might be uh, you do free live events um, or like we're doing here today. We don't charge for these live stream or these videos or the live streams that we do. We don't. That's not even something on our minds that we ever want to do. We're just doing it freely. But again, our motivation isn't what a lot of people have as motivation when they make free videos. A lot of people, their motivation is this is a free video that I'm going to put out there on social media and it's going to generate sales for whatever it is that I'm doing. Um, we have no such focus or interest. We are doing this because this is what we're here to do and this is what we're good at doing and it's our unique contribution in the world and we're doing it just for that reason, just to purely give it to everybody who is on the other end and uh, and that how, how, that's how it has to be. And so if you tier everything that way to the, that the highest point, uh, you're charging the most. And because of that, you can pay for all the other things that you're doing at very lower price points or, or at lower price points or even for free and not even have to think about the money. Um, so I talk about this concept a lot in our, in various videos we've done over the years. And that is that, uh, I think that if you have an aversion to charging more for what you do when you actually need to. Now, if you don't need to, it doesn't matter. It's not an issue. But if you don't want to charge more because um, other people can't afford it, again, what you charge has something to do with other people. It's your relationship with source. Meanwhile, you're struggling in your life financially. Then you have a resistance to money and to abundance. So, you know, you may do all the law of attraction and visualizing and vision boards. Meanwhile, if you have a resistance to money that's preventing you from, from charging more for what you do, then you may, uh, then, then that's just the same kind of resistance as the person who charges too much. So it's the same thing either way. Um, greed is the result of resistance and, uh, and having, a scarcity is also the result of resistance. You want to be in that middle place where money does not exist as something you even really think about. Sure, you may have to deal with it on a day-to-day -day basis, but it should be like the air you breathe. You inhale it, you exhale it. You're not sitting here thinking about moment to moment whether there will be enough air for the next breath or if the person sitting next to you is going to suck all the air out of the room and you won't have any. It's just simply something that happens automatically. And and when you're in that state, the amount you charge is irrelevant because it's not even something you think about. You're, it just facilitates your ability to do your work and to live your purpose to its fullest expression without any limitation. And that's ultimately the role that money needs to be in your life is this inconsequential thing you do not think about. But there is enough of it to allow you to live your purpose and your life uh, journey to its fullest expression with no limitations. And and that's where we all have to get to and the context in which we have to treat money and abundance and resources in our lives. And if money is not the focus of what you do, the money will come. That has yes. been my experience 100% on this path. But 
just to open up this topic a little bit more, I think in the fifth dimension, you're living a completely different lifestyle, trying to fit a spiritual business into the nine to five, you know, I have to do these things or it's not going to succeed never works because ultimately you're moving from inspiration. And when you have a purpose and you have spiritual gifts, you know, whether you're a channel or, or you're a healer, there are going to be things that are going to come up at the right time that you're going to be guided to do that are important for the collective. And it's also important to listen to that because if I were to fall out of the rhythm of what the guides want me to do, I would be pushing up in resistance against this mission pretty hard and actually not having a very good experience of it myself. And and that's what we're striving for. So, so the bottom line is the guides say we have to find joy within the experience. And I think authentically that joy comes from knowing that you're living a life of service and you're flowing with that service such that it is falling in place exactly as it should. Yeah. So anyway, that was uh, our show for today. And thank you all for joining us. Uh, we I went into a lot of different interesting topics relating to the subject of living to your soul's purpose. Uh, and um, we have these shows out every week. Uh, next week will be another channel revelation show. So hope you'll join us for that and we'll see you next time. Indeed we will. <laughs> We're grateful for Ethan and Michaela. Okay. Rama picks this one next. It's called the felines. And the, uh, why did the ancient Egyptians worship feline humanoid beings? Discover how sacred cats of ancient civilizations mm. could be connected with what's the matter? Oh, nothing. Things are jumping around. Oh, okay. You, so you're singing along. Okay. Mm. Um, uh, discover how sacred cats of ancient civilizations could be connected with feline extraterrestrials potentially from the Lyran system. In this final episode of Deep Space, Season 4, we explore the mysterious species of feline ETs. As experts piece together the puzzle of feline's influence, from symbolism to the lost links, excuse me, of feline beings on earth. Separate the mythology from the realities that stretch across centuries and galaxies. This is featuring Kadrick Olson, William Henry, Debbie Solaris, Johnny Enoch, Robert Wood, Dale Harder, Caroline Corey, Sarah Brexman Cosme, Harry Challenger, and that's the end. <laughs> okay. It's 33 minutes, and so let's do this.
Babylon, India to Japan. Ancient history is rich with myths and legends of feline beings that were worshipped as gods and goddesses. But were these cat-like entities more than symbolic representations of power? Could they have been an ancient race of extraterrestrials, known by some as the Irma, who came to Earth contributing to the evolution of humankind? If so, what is known about this exclusive species of extraterrestrials that were once an influence in ancient times? And why do we no longer witness their presence today? So while we don't know as much about the felines and the Urma as we do, let's say, the greys or the reptilians that are very prominent in pop culture and that we are gaining more and more awareness of, what we do know is that these Urma had a very strong, powerful place in humanity's past. They were one of the foundational influences on what it meant to have human civilization for that time period. In ancient Egypt, the cat was absolutely revered as sacred. And attached to the cat were ideas or characteristics like righteousness, strength, power, royalty. For example, in, in the tombs in ancient Egypt, you'll find them buried with statues of cats. And part of the reason why is because they want to connect themselves with those ultimate characteristics of, of the feline race, of the leonine race, that righteousness, power, and majesty. In the Book of the Dead, Ra is shown with a knife in his hand, killing the, the serpent of chaos, because cats are ferocious killers, too. And then Ra's daughter, Bastet, takes the form of a humanoid cat being. Are, are these really feline, humanoid beings, as the Egyptians insisted they were? What if they were? Sekhmet is well known as a feline goddess. She's a humanoid cat. She's, in fact, the consort or wife of Ptah, who came from Sirius, and the Egyptians said was their, their god of technology who fashioned the human body. So why is Ptah mated with a cat? Uh, is this a feline race that, that came from Sirius, or where did they come from? We're never told where the, the felines originated. We're just told that, that they're a very important part of Egyptian creation mythology. Murray Hope was a, a great mythologist and, and wrote extensively about Sirius, and she called them the Peshats. Peshat is a French word for cat. They came from Sirius. She said the, the lion people in ancient Egypt were a feline race. They were actually a feline race that she called the Peshats. So this is well ingrained in, in Egyptian mythology that the, the cat people were actually real people. According to ancient civilization researchers, the Giza Plateau is significantly older than mainstream academia propose and can be dated back tens of thousands of years to a time known as Zep Tepi, when the Earth was aligned with the constellation of Leo. Is it possible that the connection with Leo is more than simply a celestial alignment. Might it be a clue for a technologically advanced feline presence on Earth during that time, a time before the Great Deluge and the destruction of Atlantis? I think there is enough evidence we have there that these depictions show lion-headed beings 
interacting with humanity. And at the same time, we know their association with the age of Leo is very important because we see Leo the Lion King being a very important part of astrotheology. The Sphinx originally used to be a lion-headed being, and eventually in later time periods, that lion face was reshaped to be a human face. But it is a very strong likelihood that the Sphinx was not only a representation of the age of Leo, which was the time of Zeptepi, the original time when things was the origin of human civilization, but it may also be an indication of the Urma presence at the time period of Zeptepi and Atlantis and Lemuria. I think a lot of the stories that we see in ancient Egypt about these different gods and goddesses are pointing to a unified pre-Diluvian civilization, which we would call Atlantis, and some would call Lemuria before that, or Mu. And these are clearly times when humanity had advanced levels of technology for the creation of specific kinds of sites and structures, things that we don't know how to build now, that they were able to build with ease. And so I believe that a lot of the galactic interface and influence that was happening during Atlantean times and prior to the flood last in our stories today as mythologies, as the stories of gods and goddesses. But that these are in many ways beings that were hybridized from the stars that were actually here on this planet at one time or another. Throughout history, individuals of prominence with their powerful bloodlines have often aligned themselves and their families to images of animals as symbols of their power, such as the dragons with many Asian emperors or the lion with European monarchies. But could these animal icons be more than just symbols? Are they unveiling an esoteric lineage of genetically modified humans with other extraterrestrial races? It's an interesting concept to think about the feline as a symbol of power, because if they were these ancient rulers in ancient times, wouldn't that lend credence as to why we talk about lion as being like not only the king of beasts, but as a symbol of royalty and a symbol of power, that maybe this is some of these royal lines, not claiming lineage, but claiming that they have that divine right to rule, that divine right of power, because they saw at one point in time that prestige and that royalty conveyed by the Urma, and they are trying to emulate that throughout their own family line of royalty. So the lion could be a symbol of royalty because of the ancient influence of the Urma on Ur. People will look at images of serpent gods and say, oh, they're reptilian. Well, what about the same now when we come back to all these Leonine images? Even in modern eras, that you, you have monarchies and, and royal people that use the lion as their icon or as their totem animal. Is it just because they're trying to connect themselves with the characteristics of the felines, or are they saying that they originated from that Leonine race? When we look for the continuing evolution or influence of the felines or the Leonine race, I often point to the Essenes, the tribe of Jewish mystics that they operated in Alexandria, Egypt, and then they operated in Qumran and in Carmel and elsewhere. 
And what most people don't know is that the Essenes built a duplicate of Solomon's temple in Egypt. They built it at a place called Leontopolis, the city of the lion. And they specifically went to the city of the lion to build this duplicate of Solomon's temple. And then they introduced the lion of the tribe of Judah. I find that really interesting. And once again, it's this tribe of Jewish mystics that are going back into ancient Egyptian lore and saying, it's got to be at Leontopolis. It's got to be the city of the lion because the lion of the tribe of Judah is on his way. And, and you think, are they bringing in a being that, that has these, these qualities? Or are they literally trying to influence human affairs to bring out a, a more Leonine type of lineage? You find this in the, in the story of King Solomon. King Solomon had a lion throne and the lion symbolized majesty and royalty. But does it symbolize perhaps more than that? He's actually connecting himself with this Leonine race. And then 900 years later, we have another family member from the tribe of Judah, Jesus, who's called the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he has all of these Leonine characteristics. He's powerful. You don't mess with him. He's a great healer and he has these advanced capabilities. Are they really trying to connect the, the family, the, the tribe of Judah and the, the beings in ancient Egypt with the, a Leonine race? Is that literal? Is it allegorical, metaphorical? What is it? If we accept that the Leonine race did come here and, and create a, an earthly lineage, you have to wonder, I mean, how, how well is that lineage doing? Perhaps there's aspects of ourselves that we, we still have to tap into. It seems like the felines kind of dropped out of favor um, with the advent of Christianity. I think for a while there in Earth's history, they were actually demonized, where felines were seen as witches' familiars, or they were seen as demonic beings that were bringing in demons. And they were kind of almost wiped out in Europe during the Middle Ages because of this superstition against felines, which was a direct opposition to the Egyptian times when feline beings were elevated. So the reason why there was such a hatred of feline beings was because they were always the natural enemies of the reptilian. These beings were in opposition to each other ever since the days of Lyra and Vega. In the constellation of Lyra, there is a star called Vega around which orbits planets that researchers suggest the feline extraterrestrials came from. After a war with the reptilian race known as the Draco that saw the destruction of their home planet, the feline race dispersed throughout the galaxy to become one of the most widespread and prolific species in the known star systems. Felines are a fascinating group of beings. The felines my understanding from what I've seen in the Akashic records is that they were a group of beings that actually originated from a different universe. So these were beings that held the evolution of a multi-universe that was not our universe. Then when that experimentation of separation from reality or separation into reality ended, they came to help start the process in our universe. 
So they came in through a different portal to our galactic center in order to create physical versions of themselves in the Lyran system. According to our ET contactees, like Ashiana Dean in her Voyager series, these beings existed at much higher dimensional levels. When we look at them having something like 12 strands of DNA, it was said that they could come through certain portals and stargates around our planet. And when they did, they were able to interface with us and move through these places in ways that we don't have the capabilities to with our current DNA. There are several strong lineages of felines that I believe have interacted with Earth. One of these particular racial lines, I believe, comes from the Syrian system and are known by some as the Syrian white lions. Many others come from the Lyran star system, where we have a variety of different humanoid cat races. So in many ways, I believe that a lot of the Lyran cat races and species are warriors that have worked with other races to provide security and guardianship around the galaxy. The Irma would be classed as probably one of the most prolific of the races in that they are in all corners of the universe and have many, many colonies everywhere. So they are definitely prolific, probably more so than anyone else. When they dress up, they like to wear finery. They like to have their capes. They like to have their blue jumpsuit type things and they put decorations on it. So they're very showy and very flashy. From what the way they talk, you can imagine as if like a lion or a tiger were talking, they would still have that growly, rumbly sound when they talk. But at the same time, they have a telepathic influence. Most folks that have interactions with these feline beings tell us that they're a highly advanced multi-dimensional or meta-terrestrial race that is interfacing with us from a higher dimensional level. And so they will see different outlines of them being more transparent, that they have a metamorphic and telepathic way of communicating, and that they are a higher evolved race. Also, these feline beings have been said to be very wise, very kind. Sometimes they were warlike, and you have to look at the history with cats when we go back into ancient Egypt even. I mean, they venerated them. They are extreme warriors. I mean, to the extreme. They are known to be circulated throughout the universe. They have colonies everywhere. They number in the trillions. And they are very, very fierce fighters. So much so that even the ruling class Draco that are so large are actually afraid of them. They do uh, wear uniforms with different insignias depending on which group they belong to or rank if they're in the military type of stuff and so forth. Females are just as fierce, just as loving and very protective of their young. So far as I know, they originated or came from the Vagan system. Their planet's names were Leor and Avalon. Their society is structured as ours, pretty much as a holistic society or a holographic society, if you will. A holistic is another term or word for what we used to call holographic societies. People got confused with that because they kept thinking it was a hologram. Well, it's not in that respect, but 
it is to some degree, because as you know, if you take a hologram, if you cut a little corner off of it, that little corner contains everything that the whole of it contained. So it's a similarity in the respect that every person is a reflection of the entire whole in a holographic society. And every piece exists for the purpose of every piece. My experiences with some of the Lyran humanoid species of cat-like beings tend to show me that this species is very interested in sports, in movement, in dynamic art forms, in battles, but battles for growth and learning and show, but also have a level of peacefulness and reservedness where there's a contemplation about the understandings of the unfoldings of the archetypes in time, for example, and awareness that there is cultural narratives and cycles that repeat themselves over history. The cat-like beings I think we experience here on Earth, even as house cats, can carry both this vicious intensity, but also this deeply gentle sweetness. And I find that that's true of almost all the feline races that I've encountered. These beings were known to be fierce fighters. They actually played a huge role in trying to defend Lyra against the attacks of Draco. I think there would have been more casualties in Lyra and Vega if it hadn't been for the fighting abilities of these cat beings, you know. They were quite fearsome, and they had, I think, skills that enabled them to take down a lot of draconians in hand-to-hand combat. The draconians, although they're quite fearsome in themselves, are no match for the cat beings. They love to express themselves physically. Because of their influence in the sense of protection, in the sense of fighting abilities, I think this is a reason why they remain connected with the Galactic Federation, where they lend their fighting skills and their ability, their physical abilities in order to help other star systems to evolve in these areas where we can learn how to protect ourselves, where we can learn how to have, I would say, a high level of ethics, a high level of integrity, but still be be excellent fighters, still have those those defense skills that are going to help us to get from the level that we are now to the next level. According to some researchers, the felines have a substantial role within the Galactic Federation and are considered one of the wisest beings in the galaxy. It is said that they often act as guides to the other races that have not made the evolutionary leap to higher dimensional beings. The Lyrian star species and cultures that are feline are part of this galactic community and galactic council. They operate with a level of grace and knowledge and wisdom that essentially makes them extraordinary teachers and guides and guardians for other races around the galaxy. I have only had incredibly beautiful and powerful experiences with those that either reincarnated from these species and brought some of their wisdom 
or through direct contact with these beings at different moments in my journey exploring these different galactic races. The feline groups, because they've had their influences in other star systems besides Lyra's, they also became supporters of the Galactic Federation. A lot of times people will report, you know, with their interactions with Galactic Federation ships and they go on board the ships and they see representations of feline beings. So there's certain feline souls that have chosen to be, I think, still stay in physical form in order to be of support because they have a specific mission that involves maybe some other star systems or planet Earth. So they have chosen to remain in physical form so that they can maintain a direct involvement with some of these ascension projects throughout our galaxy. The Urma are a very prominent part of the Galactic Federation. They are one of the big prominent members from what we understand. They have this very strong presence that they are manning a lot of the ships and running a lot of the programs that are protective and oriented. Because while these beings may be kind and fun and happy, you know, they tend to be overbloviated and they like to have their finery and their decorative symbols and all of their decorations. But they are also very powerful, very strong, very warlike. And they help to guide a lot of these military operations to protect planets. As well as being protectors, the felines are also considered to be master geneticists, according to contactees and channelers. Part of their agenda to help guide various species starts with altering the DNA makeup of beings to help them evolve. Some have claimed that they even had a role in manipulating the DNA of Homo sapiens on our planet. Some researchers I've come across have suggested that these feline-like beings have seeded parts of our genetic traits through our DNA by influencing the morphogenetic field of the Earth. And again, the morphogenetic field, according to Rupert Sheldrake, is this field of information that we're receiving through our DNA, which acts like an antenna. And so you might say that these beings have 12 strands of DNA, as it's been suggested, and that they're very advanced and act as sort of engineers, if you will. The feline beings were one of the founder races that seeded planet Earth. So that's why we see such a wide variety of feline genetics throughout the animal kingdom and also even within humankind itself. So these beings were actually master geneticists. They had the ability to create different races of beings using their own DNA. So initially in the history of Lyra, we see many evolutions of these beings where initially they were super high dimensional and they had more of a feline-esque look about them So there was various versions of these hybridized feline genetics. If feline extraterrestrials had a role in seeding or manipulating our DNA, to what end are they engineering our species on a biological level? I think the interaction between humans and the Irma, they, they would look upon us as definitely needing help. They show a great deal of empathy toward us. They would tend to protect us. 
I think that uh, in most cases, if anyone should meet one, they would probably be frightened because of the appearance. But that's, again, something that humans need to work on. We need to be able to look beyond appearance and look to that so-called spiritual side, which is the inner person, the inner self, the thing that actually makes the person what it is. And there would be a great deal of affection and connection between them. So I don't think that there are any kind of a race that would be feared. I think they should be welcomed openly rather than in the kind of close or quiet spaces that they have at this point. But that's entirely up to humanity and how quickly we evolve to where we can do that. My gut feeling on these feline beings is they came here ages ago as protectors, as guides, and that they are still here in one form or another as protectors, as guides. And we see them through the star seeds. We see them through the indirect actions that they take to influence here. I don't think they have a very strong presence on the surface of our planet anymore, but I think they are more celestial oriented. They're more out in space and protecting things coming in and out. From the research we've been doing, the Urma are protecting us primarily from the reptilian, from the Dracos that are still trying to take over and run things. We know from inner sources that the Draco have definitely infiltrated subversively into governments and into corporations and into the underground of the world. It seems like the reptilians, the Dracos, have not been able to launch full-fledged invasions and destructive campaigns to our planet. And that may be because of the Urma keeping protective guard and holding the quarantine so that they cannot do these invasions on our planet. The relationship we have with these feline beings traditionally also when we go back into our ancient cultures and civilizations is that they were helping us. They were giving us light. They were helping to grow and evolve our biology as well as look over our progress. With the prevalence of a feline influence on humanity in the ancient past, the question arises as to why we no longer see these cat-like species today. Some researchers suggest that these beings might dwell outside of this third density, which is why contact today is mostly through dreams, remote viewing, or non-local conscious communications. There hasn't been many incidences of direct, I would say, contactee experiences with feline beings on this planet or even elsewhere because these beings have long since evolved. They oftentimes, if there's people that channel them or people that connect with them, it's usually from a very ethereal realm. I wouldn't say there's a whole lot of incidences even today where, you know, we would see these beings in the third dimension or even in the fourth dimension. They've evolved way beyond that. However, there are many accounts of people who have channeled these beings, who have these beings as their personal guides and teachers. There's actually some correlation where there's some of these beings that remain in somewhat of a higher level physical form in order to be able to be of service to the Galactic Federation or other agencies, you know, similar to that, but they're on much higher dimensional forms. So um, you're not necessarily going to see a whole lot of incidences where there's people that have had 3D encounters with felines. It is a very interesting question to ponder where do they go? Because we know 
from ancient artifacts and ancient writings that these Urma beings had such a prominent role in early human civilization, but then just one day, they seemed to leave. Well, fascinatingly enough, there are interesting reports of the work of the Galactic Federation about the quarantine on Earth and the covenant that these extraterrestrial races can no longer be overtly connecting and communicating with humanity. But we do have reports that the Urma haven't really left yet, that they are in orbit around Earth, still holding a protective place over the quarantine of our planet and overseeing the protective operations to keep us safe from outside threats. As we attempt to better understand these feline beings, who are one of the main groups of influence upon our human ancestors, one can only speculate about their intentions for humanity as being a supportive one. Many of us love cats, and we have deep connections with cats. We experience a sort of telepathic and emotional bond with our animals. And it's likely that that bond is not a new thing. We go back to ancient Egypt and we hear stories of cats there that we have this deep bond with. But we also see different information pointing to a more profound bond between us and feline species, both here on Earth and beyond. And I think that a lot of what we know now about felines and how we interact with cats and the kinds of gifts they bring to our daily experience in life comes from this longer relationship that we have with different feline species here on Earth and across the stars. So ultimately, we can see the Urma as the big cat protectors of the galaxy and of Earth, that they are these amazing, fantastic creatures that have great emotion, great energy. They are at a higher level being but we should be grateful that they're here because things could be a whole lot worse on our planet if they weren't watching over us, protecting us, and ultimately guiding us in one form or another. So the big takeaway about the Urma, big lovable cats keeping you safe. Earth is a, a menagerie. It's, it's got so much diversity. And we hear this refrain over and over in extraterrestrial studies that other planets are are homogenous in terms of the type of beings that are there. But on Earth, we've got them all. Some propose that that's why Earth is sort of quarantined, why we're isolated out here, because it's a grand experiment. Let's see how all the various races from all these different star systems and members of the Galactic Federation can come together in one place and let's see what happens and how they can all live together. If Earth is this experimental world, that would explain why we have this infusion of so much DNA from all these different star systems and, and types of beings. It's a place where this type of diversity is encouraged and it's allowed, and it ultimately then becomes the hallmark of Earth. And perhaps what all this is leading to is the birth of a new type of being coming from Earth that is representative of all of these different races and now becomes the new model that will then be taken to different star systems beyond those that we're even aware of now. As we conclude season four of Deep Space, consider the following. Extraterrestrial species from across the universe have influenced the evolution of humankind. 
We see evidence of this from our ancient past and continue to experience their contact to this day. The human race stands collectively on the threshold of change as we transition into a new paradigm of humanity joined by our galactic family. In the words of Colonel Philip Corso, when he asked an extraterrestrial visitor, quote, what do you have to offer us? The ET responded, a new world, if you can take it. That new world is now upon us. That was good, huh? Mm. This one's going to be good, too. This is with Regina Meredith, the next one, everybody. And um, this is called Shifting to Higher Realms. Is our fate predetermined, or can we define our own destiny through our choices? Author Maureen Mutter discusses her incredible metaphysical gifts she discovered as a child, which allowed her to gain access to higher realms. Mutter shares how these gifts helped her to see and understand reality in a way few others around her could transforming her life forever. From theories of quantum mechanics to the power of consciousness and the divine path of the human soul, Mutter reminds us that we are all playing a creator role in the theater of our lives. Okay, let's do this one. This is 45 minutes. Okay, let's start. I already have my guy account. Okay, um, I will read this. Yeah, um, log me out for some reason. I think I read all of this. <laughs> you got to fill out a form. Oh, I have to sign in for some reason. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's uh, an experience like this amongst us all here. We all have some perspective on the greater story here coming in. And it's coming in so rapidly. It's a very exciting time to be alive. And mm. Yes. Your password, please. <laughs> yeah, I, this computer doesn't mean I gotta go in the other room. 
I'm really enjoying this weather. you got to go in the other room. Mm-hmm. Do you want to do something else? Um, I guess I can. It looks like it's going to be a bit of a chore, huh? No. No? Almost there? I just... Um I gotta go in the other room and look at the other. Maybe I can read Caroline. Oh, okay. Maybe I'll read Caroline. Yeah, we can do that. All right. Let's read Caroline. Or I could read Rora Ray, too. Um, well, we can do Caroline. All right. Greetings, dear ones. We are very pleased. This is from the Ascended Masters, Galactics, Earth Elements, Fairy Angel, Fairy Elders, Fae Elders, Angelic Legions, Archangels, and other divine beings known as the Collective. Greetings, dear ones. We are very pleased to have this moment to speak with you today. Today, our writer has some questions regarding handling the ascension symptoms that affect one's emotions, and especially the emotional upheaval so many are feeling now. Know that the energies embedded here extend to each of of you and will calibrate to your individual life path to support your higher good. So Caroline starts, my friends, so much is coming up now to be healed. I agree. It's actually a glorious time to be alive. I and many others have had realizations and deeper aspects of old issues come up recently. And they have revealed a whole other layer of wounding or old programming. That needs to be sent into the light. We cannot carry any of that with us into the fifth dimension. We are done with it now. I like that affirmation. We are done with it now. The collective pipes in. We would say that though these moments can feel unpleasant and hard to take, they are in a sense pure gold. These are the gifts of these new light codes pouring in now. We can assist those experiencing this this now in seeing these moments when old trauma arises in ways that support your past. And the beauty of them is undeniable. Let me turn the page here. Here he comes. Caroline says, For those in physical form, those feelings and memories are very dark and hard to face at times. I have been receiving new realizations about the sexual abuse I experienced as a child. For... Turn the page, everybody. 
for example, and I cannot be the only one getting a clearer understanding of the effects, uh, uh, the effects of this. Um, those energy patterns are buried deep in the psyche. Mm. Yet with these energies, all is revealed. For most people, it's fine to think about the crooks in governments and other authority structures getting the handcuffs clapped onto them. That part of 5D coming in is gratifying, yet no one wants to see yet another layer of their personal loss and anguish. I have dealt with the abuse memories since they first came up in 1995. This new layer seems to fit into the dark programming that children receive from the old matrix, in which the abuser is connected to something far darker than they know. Mm -hmm. They live in unconsciousness and are also programmed and driven by that, particularly when the abuse comes from a member of the clergy, as my situation did, though other situations also apply. None the collective. And so, you are seeing the last, or nearly last part of the riddle. That the freeing of the soul from the many traps laid for it in earth life is often a matter of walking that darkest path. One last time in many cases. That is something that your own curiosity led you to. And your own karma, some might say. Caroline, which makes it all worse somehow. And then the collective. And yet, it also provides insight into not only what you came to end and release, rather also what you came to help dissolve in earth life. You and millions of others abused as babies, children, or teenage young people, and millions abused as, as adults. You came to anchor light into one of the darkest aspects of this of the old earth. While it has been under the control of what are termed dark Satanists, Satonians, excuse me, those who invaded the planet and crowned themselves rulers and made contracts with some of the lowest forces in this universe. As you are some days in a quandary or an uncomfortable spot, dear one, and you have faced far worse as you have traversed these seas before. Can you imagine what they are going through? And we go on here. Just a moment, Chito. Um, uh, well, they have laid their own path and must now walk it. That was their free will decision. How about tea, Rama? Mm -hmm. While I finish. Yes, some tea. Great, great. Thank you. Yes. Mm -hmm. They they have allowed themselves far more free will than they ever allowed we humans. They have had programmed for so long, had us programmed for so long, for millennia probably. And in the modern world, it has only gotten worse with so many forms of armed destruction plus media hypnosis. And now they wish to impose artificial intelligence on us? The collective. 
That last is another discussion for another day. You had asked first about handling the deeper realizations occurring now, the layers coming forward from one form of trauma to a, or another, suffered in this and other earth lives. And that includes sexual and physical abuse, which few have escaped completely, as nearly all have been born male and female. Some, while in pre-incarnation and writing their blueprint for their next earth life, will, ch- will choose to allow themselves to be abused many earth lives over and over again for what they will learn from it on the higher level. Turn the page. And then Caroline speaks. Which astounds me, because once we arrive here on Earth, we find it's not so simple an equation. Up in the rarefied air of the higher realms, we'll sketch out another, another foray into earth life as though it were all an exciting experiment. Then we arrive here and bam, reality hits in a dense and unforgiving environment that many feel only the insane would step into willingly the collective. As so many have, you have one who has chosen this harder road. Uh, you have been one who has chosen this harder road. You are not a young soul. Many, many old souls upon the earth now. Caroline, that just proves my I'm nuts collective. You have not yet asked what the beauty is, which we spoke of moments ago. The beauty that lies within, within these terrible experiences per- perpetrated against the most innocent among you Caroline part of me wants to say because there is none you are aware that so many have experienced great soul fragmentation and losses of soul losses of soul um hmm Oh, there's a whole line missing. Got to watch that, Rama. Got to look through each page. I'm sorry, that line got lost. (laughs) Millions of survivors have felt all the more triggered lately, as we have been seeing the media images of a famous perpetrator and his victim, now a triumphant survivor and thriver. We have been hearing the details of how this woman was abused. It happened years ago, yet the memories are always present with us. The psyche and the spirit have no past. And then the collective chimes in. And so, then, the path becomes one of determination to meet that higher aspect that is not fragmented. Rather, lives beyond the events of any earth life, however terrible they may be. And then Caroline... I know that many have suffered far worse than I did. I have had a couple of very direct perpetrators in my life and many indirect ones. And children who are trafficked in pedophile rings have no end of perpetrators. 
they often don't live very long, once in captivity. The collective, would you take away the path of the one who, who was laughing in joy, in thankfulness, in complete appreciation and creative expression, because you were afraid that was too much for them? All that happiness? Caroline, no. And I know what you will say next, the collective. Yes, indeed. You would not distract them from that joy. And you would not try to redirect their steps. You stand in favor of the triumphant moments for all. And that's fine. Yet also the dark, the moments given to shadow and loss of connection to the higher path because of trauma. This is also sacred to the path because you chose it. Caroline, all of this comes down to free will. Turn the page. The collective. It comes down to evolvement. It is equally free will and the right to grow and to experience as the soul and higher self see fit. Turn the page. We're getting down to it here. They are not the same. The soul and higher self, yet they work in tandem. Your soul and higher self and that of the woman you speak of, who indeed has chosen to thrive in this life, chose to know the heights that came after great lows. Caroline, oh, this is not being denied you. Whatever realizations visits you now or ever shall. Now, Caroline, yet while we are in the higher realms, deciding what to experience, we never know how bad it will be. And then the collective. Retail, for one, that while in the higher realms, you are above the good-bad dualism that has troubled earth life for millennia. It does not occur to you that what is called dark or bad on the earth plane is of no use to you in terms of soul growth, quite the opposite. Caroline, nevertheless, dear ones, we have had enough. There has been too much shadow on this planet for too long. I do not speak of my own earth lots. I speak of all the many children sold daily as objects so many of whom will never survive the torment. The collective, allow them their path. You cannot know the power of their light, anchored into so many aspects of the fast-dissolving matrix, so as to end that etheric structure for all time space. Nor can you know their true soul origin, or soul intents, or soul group contracts, and the assistance they they are from many different places in this universe, bringing forth now onto the planet. This, too, is your ascension. Never doubt that, though you may, you may weep for them some days. We are, we are, all of us, within the Ashtar Command and beyond it, assisting Earth's people 
in dissolving what is left of the old order. Yet humanity required of us that this be humanity's job, in the main, not ours. This has been the harder path to tread for all of you, yet it is a sacred one, and we respect such. Know that we weep with you many days, yet never doubt that all of you in the light have won this great struggle. Caroline, thank you, my friends. Your love makes possible this journey of ours. Okay, Ram, come on, you can do this now. I've got one more sentence here. The collective and your presences here, all of you, make possible not only much of our own journey, rather the liberation of an entire low-dimensional planet. Such a task has never been ventured in your universe, and we bow to you with deep thanks for all you do, our friends who are family. And as always, you are never alone. Namaste. Wow. Okay, now we're ready, Rama. Shifting to higher realms. Perfect. Here we go. 45 minutes. You're definitely the most interesting, trippy person I have ever met. It's as though you live beyond the veil. Removing our connection with the natural world, we have turned ourselves into things. And we're sadder because we're removing the observation of life and making it the observation of me. No matter how old we are, we are such a beautiful child that is learning and doing the very best they can to get through this life. A lot of people think, I'm going to raise my vibrational levels so I can get here, I'm going to do this. But what you're actually looking for is harmony. Because on the other side of the veil, that is what it is. If I get too far from the hum, if I didn't have that connection, I think I would feel completely lost. I think so too. And most people do feel completely lost. When I first brought Marin Muter on Open Minds, we spoke about the letter she wrote beginning at the age of five to a woman she referred to as the flower lady. Their conversations were deep, even prophetic. And today we're going to dive into the adult understanding of what she was saying as a child. Because now we have science that's backed all this stuff up, all these all these works on quantum theory and things that you are already seeing. You were already seeing the nature of dimensions when you were a little kid. Yeah. So, I mean, you're definitely the most interesting, trippy person I have ever met in the depth <laughs> of your understanding. It's as though you live somewhere between. It's so you live beyond the veil almost. And I know I said yeah. this last time. But it's true, and it's very rare that people will ever meet someone or encounter someone like you. So I just wanted to say welcome, and I'm so glad to be in your presence again. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. (laughs) And I do want to say something quickly. I have a couple people that have asked me to extend you a hello and say thank you for everything that you do, and they really enjoy your show. Thank you. So I wanted to extend that to you. (laughs) I appreciate that. Well received. I've got, I've I've received it. (laughs) So today we're going to be going back and touching on some of the letters you wrote because they're profound, and we're going to start with one okay. called Mirrors. 
Yeah. Okay. And so I've let you know we're going to do that. And I, it's so wonderful. I'm seeing the real letters that you so stuffed in the jars is, all those yeah, years so ago. This is the real letter of the mirrors. Dear flower lady, I think there's a reason we cannot see our own faces without a mirror. I believe we're not meant for us to focus on ourselves superficially. And we're going to, and you said superficially, F I S H, but you were what, like seven? Yeah. Super. Fishily. So exactly. Yeah, you might want to. <laughs> but let's talk about that. I think the thing about focusing on ourselves has a lot of baggage around it. And you're saying that we're not supposed to, fo- in this letter, I don't think we're supposed to just be focused on ourselves at the center of our lives, superficially being the key word there. Yes. So let's talk about it because through the last 40 years of, of new age, um, kind of doctrine and such. You need to be at the center of your life. You are the center of your life. Well, we are. It's our experience. Yeah. But that's different than being always self-focused. Correct. So let's talk about that and see what you really mean by that. Yes. So in the letter, um, I was making observations. And, and a lot of the letters that I wrote were observations. And I, and I came to the conclusion that observation was key to our existence here on earth. And it's very hard to observe our connection with nature when we're staring at ourselves in the mirror, when we walk into a room and we're worried about how we look and are comparing ourselves to other people. That's called self-consciousness, which isn't really very conscious. So self-consciousness is a little different or a lot different than putting yourself first or putting yourself at the center of your life. And if we look at what does it mean to put yourself at the center of your life is it doesn't mean that you are supposed to do everything for yourself and, and make yourself the center of attention of your life. We look at your life and that you are the common denominator in everything around you. Mm-hmm. That's what it means to be the center or the, the center of your own life is you are the common denominator. So if I'm here with you right now, for me, the common denominator in my life is me mm-hmm. and you are you. And I leave this room, my common denominator in that area is me again. It's still your, it's your observations and perceptions it's of reality. It's your observations and perceptions yeah. of reality. Yeah. So it's, it's very, it's, when we come back to this letter and we look at it and we say, um, when people fuss about their hair, they apologize for how they look. So they're apologizing for themselves and there's no need to ever apologize for who you are. Um, they worry about their clothes and they become a thing. And more and more over the last... So like, it's few, like you're objectifying yourself. You're objectifying yourself. Mm-hmm. And over the last few decades, we've really had this movement where we need to focus on the self. We need to put ourselves first. And removing our connection with the natural world, we have turned ourselves into things. And we're sadder and we're not as happy and we're, our lives aren't as fulfilled because we're removing the observation of life and making it the observation of me <laughs> rather than the connection. Absolutely. And I just think of the culture that, you know, is dominant today, the selfie culture. It's yes. literally called the selfie yes. culture, right? 
with everybody um, putting their super little sizzle reel of themselves <laughs> out on whatever platform they're working with. And the, the addiction to physicality in terms of appearance mm-hmm. is it, to me, I find it very depressing mm-hmm. when I see people posting all of this and their cute little faces they make and pouty lips and, you know, all this. It, it just, yeah. I find the whole thing so depressing. Yes. And, you know, a lot of that stems from the removal of parenting a child. Let's just dive in. We're we're going to talk about it later. Let's just get into it because you're right. And people don't want to hear that. No, they don't. And And it's doing our children and ourselves a disservice when we try to befriend our children while we're raising them. That's not that's not the role of that. When we have our children as our therapists, when we're putting our, you know, we have our career and we come home and our career remains, you know, more important than the family. And it doesn't matter what your family is made of and mm-hmm. how it looks, but the family is essential and important. Now, when we divide this, what we're doing is the children that are growing up are needing specific parameters. They're needing specific attention. And they're needing specific discipline. And all of that is a symbolization of love. Love is discipline in a, in a sense. And love is giving parameters and love is loving unconditionally to your child. When the child feels that they're lacking in that, what are we going to do? We're going to start behaving in ways that draw attention to us. And so we just kind of look over the last few decades that more and more attention are being brought to the self, to us, through yes. selfies, through taking pictures, through shocking, doing shocking things, shocking things to our body, behaving in shocking ways, because that's how we're garnering attention. And that's where we're putting our self-worth, where our self-worth isn't in the mirror. The yeah. self-worth isn't behind the camera. But you knew this the at seven. You could see the dynamic. Who you are. Yes, it's who you really are, not the reflection in the mirror you have to keep capturing to see if you're real. That is false. Yes. Yes. Because that's false. And it's interesting because the way this is being reflected in kind of pop culture terms, mm-hmm. the whole thing about parenting, is in films, when, you know, when I was a little kid, they had shows where they're very patriarchal, you know, the woman was washing dishes (laughs) with their pearls on, the family was stable, you know, Mm -hmm. and you had a wise father and usually a wise mother, although never quite as smart and wise. But now what it, what is it's, it's gone the, the other end of the pendulum where the parents are the idiots. They're superfluous to any deep conversation. They're seen as dysfunctional. The kids are the smart ones. They're the parents therapists. Over and over, you're seeing the same story being propagated that the kids are the wise, savvy, smart, responsible ones, and their mm-hmm. parents are morons, essentially. Yeah, and what a dis- and what a shame to service that we're doing for our children because the children need guidance, and they're not to parent the parents, but that's literally what they're doing is they're parenting the parents. They're parenting the parents, and so there's some truth in these portrayals in the media, in entertainment right now, mm-hmm. which, I mean, I find it kind of offensive on one hand, if you're a parent that is doing your job, but these, <laughs> yeah. these shows are made mostly for adults, not yeah. for kids, but the kids are the wise ones. So there, what, what you're saying is 
we need to look at that because there is some truth that the parents aren't showing up and doing their jobs and they're afraid of their kids. They don't want to take their devices away because they're afraid the kid's going to be mad at them and not like them. And then they have to go on antidepressants and on and on the barrage. So how do you see it? If we could take it back to something truly functional, starting at home, because that's where it's all going to happen. It always starts at home. Yeah. Because that is, that is when we, when we people talk about we want a solid foundation in our life. First of all, there is no such thing as a solid foundation. Foundations always move. Yeah. We look just at the tectonic plates of the earth. If we're going to get physical here, those are always moving. So we're never going to have a solid foundation. The one solid foundation you have is you, that common denominator. That's the only place that solid foundation is. Your body's not even a solid foundation. Your body is changing and, and growing up and aging and, and having all of these things. So it's really your soul. That's your, that's your foundation. When we look at the family, the family is also then going to be the closest thing that we can get to a foundation in the fundamental years of childhood. And when a child can come home, they might have had a really hard day at school. They can come home and they can speak openly with their parents. Their parents can listen, but the parents aren't going to sit there and try to be the child's friend. The parent needs to provide a safe, loving structure Mm -hmm. and environment for that children, for that child to come and process what it is experiencing outside in the real world. Now there's bullies. We're never going to get rid of bullies, but what we can do when we have this home environment, whatever that looks like, is it allows a child to process this and to understand this is how I'm going to react and respond to the bullies that I am encountering out there. Mm -hmm. And it gives the child empowerment and strength to live their life. When we don't have that, we remove that empowerment, we remove that strength. And it's not running around and being, I'm empowered, I'm empowered and being a brat. It's subtle, it's calm, it's peaceful. That's what we talk about when we have this strength within ourselves. Quickly, before we move on from this, when we look at a child coming home and they just want to drop their stuff off and go off Mm -hmm. and be by themselves, that's a totally normal and natural Mm -hmm. thing for a child to do. But when we have devices that we can default to, so now we're coming in the home, we have, we're going to ignore everybody there because we've had whatever day we've had. And then we go in and get our, on our device well, the devices are the modern day drug. They are. And so what is on the neurochemical level? Yeah, they're drugs. it's 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 acting as a drug to mute out everything else. Mm-hmm. So the brain actually isn't even processing the events that took place that right. day. And so then they're doing all of this on their devices and not able to process. But then they go out into the real world and then there's things that we can never control out there from a bully or someone we meet that's very kind. But we don't know how to handle those situations because now we're watching television shows, we're watching whatever uh, the media is putting out there on how people are handling this so they can come out and be a rude and obnoxious person or they can um, succumb to the pressure right. and, and that is abusing themselves. So literally when we hand those devices to the kids, we're teaching them to abuse themselves. I, I agree with that. No, I've talked with many people on the show from various angles regarding devices in the brain because I'm very concerned about 
the generation that's been raised on the devices and especially with really easy and open access because this is a drug. Mm -hmm. It is wiring the brain very in very specific ways. And as you said, it's deflecting any need to actually have to mature and integrate all of these challenges in, in life on an emotional level. Correct. Well, everybody can see that one. I, I think yeah. that we're pretty clear on that. And the whole point comes down to this self. What what would you call it? Not self-centeredness, the self-consciousness of the parent, maybe, mm-hmm. and wanting to be liked. Yeah. And that and but we have to look generationally yes. because it's it's a progression. And so the parent that is needing to be liked by their child was also, you know, trying to search for acceptance themselves. Right. And so they're looking for acceptance. And I've got news for you. Your child is going to accept you and love you for who you are because you are their parent. They don't care what your body shape looks like. They don't care if you're going to yoga or going to the gym. They just care that you are you. And that just innocent love is so special and we each carry it within ourselves. And if we remind ourselves that we carry this innocence within us and this vulnerability within us, it doesn't make us weak. It makes us remind, remember who we are at the fundamental level. And that is something stunning and beautiful. It really is. In your letters from when you were a child, have that innocence of your reflection of your parents. And, and wanting to have tea with them or cookies with them and love them and be with them. And yeah. it shows how kids, it's a reminder of how we as kids felt about our parents. Exactly. And, and we did, we wanted their, yes, I think every child wants some approval. Yeah. Of course. I mean, it's to feel like you count and you matter and your contributions matter. Exactly. And right now it's just kind of one big cloud. Yeah. We're kind of, we're kind of running around like, chickens yeah (laughs) yeah we are so okay that's one letter to the flower lady is about the self-consciousness and mirrors and there's we could actually talk about that there are a lot of nuances in there for a long time but let's move on to the one that's about living both sides of choices (laughs) which is again you know this it just amazes me it's a little child little girl writing these things yeah and so really if we look at that letter it's talking about quantum superposition. Yes. It's talking about how a single particle can be in multiple places simultaneously at the exact same time. One particle. So that particle isn't branching off like the division of a cell. The particle is itself and it can be in multiple places at the same time. So in that letter that I wrote, I wanted the flower lady to tell me hi. <laughs> so... I, it was my birthday and I got a pick between grasshopper pie and a yellow cake with chocolate frosting. And I, the, me writing this, the version, writing the letter was the grasshopper pie, but I was like, I also picked the yellow cake. I know I did. And that was a total different branch. I mean, when you say, you know, you did, is that more like in a Mandela effect way or you wanted both and you in your heart chose both? In a Mandela effect away. Okay. I knew that I branched. I knew that I was observing at that moment two different life trajectories. And it wasn't imaginary. It wasn't that I 
had a, a split in my brain and, and I had two different personalities. It was literally that in my brain, it was observing. So we go back to this mm-hmm. word observation. It was observing both of the outcomes of this choice, which at that time, which there is another follow-up letter behind that one that says, my life is potential. My life hasn't even begun yet, even though I'm living it out right now. All of this is potential, which then starts talking about the principle of least action. And so in these letters, I'm talking about these things through child's language that I am living out the principle of least action, meaning I'm living out every single possibility. And the reason I can do this is because of quantum superposition. And when we talk quantum theory, I say this often, quantum theory is is what it is. It's a theory, but it's the very tip of an iceberg. And so whether we mathematically try to solve these equations or we take it into the lab and we try to prove them, the mathematical version and the taking it into the lab are both observations, Mm -hmm. meaning that they're so much more that we don't see. The tip of the iceberg is that observation, and under that surface is what's really happening. Yes, and this gets into um, a really interesting topic to me, and that is when when it has been put to the test, we think we're making that decision. We think, we we're, think making we're making it. it. But in right. fact, when they've done scans of the brain, yeah. they're watching the brain line up. The decision's already been made before we even have conscious awareness of what our choice is. So now let's talk about that from right. a quantum view. Okay. So you've, you've put the question out, right? Somehow yeah. there's a question or desire. Correct. Right? And now all aspects of mind, being, possibility have come into play. And it trickles down and boom, you think you chose the yellow cake, right? Correct. Correct. Okay, so we're going to step way back here really quick. And we're going to look at observation because our life and observation in our life is paramount. Our overarching consciousness doesn't reside in this body. So if we look at this body as an observational tool for our overarching consciousness, we're going to put that over here for a second. Now, at, inse- at conception, when the sperm hit the egg, what happened? You can't have conception without death, meaning at the instant that that happened, we died. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Now. And you wrote about this when you were little too. I did write about this yeah. when I was little as well. When we look at decision making, when we look at the idea of having free will, because at conception, we died. That means that everything in between that conception and that death has already happened. Now, we take in the principle of least action, which means that we are based, and this is such an abridged version, so we're taking this. That's okay, just make it really visceral and easy to understand. Which means that our observation of our life experience, how this body, this combination of sperm and egg, reacts and responds to every stimulus, to every decision or environmental going on. And then in the end, it says, this is the path that we're going to take. But it has to observe every single one of these options. So your brain has already processed that. So it feels like we are making a decision. It feels like it hit us right in the head and we, we 
are having yellow cake. The reason why we do that is because our brain is absolutely amazing. The brain doesn't just create the veil between the earthbound plane and the ethereal. The brain creates a veil between each one of these trajectories because it's important for it, for our consciousness to observe each reaction and response to these stimulus isolated in order to have a correct understanding of what's happening. So I can't have the, the grasshopper pie and the yellow cake at the exact same time on the same trajectory because it would become clouded because those decisions are going to branch off and create new decisions or new situations that I'm going to encounter. So the power of observation, what is our point and purpose here in life? And I know it doesn't sound very sexy, but our important purpose here is how we re- is observation of how we react and respond to these situations in our lifetime. That is a huge part of it. And oftentimes um, we're walking right past ourselves. We're not observing. Oh, yeah. we're not taking the time to observe. And there we're living on autopilot. And that's where free will becomes deeply impacted. We're focusing on the mirror. That was very beautifully put. I mean, a free will is just a subject I'm passionate about in all ways. Oh. And I love your piece of this. It's because I, um, Manjir Samantha Lawton, who's in England, I've interviewed her before. Mm-hmm. Um, Manjir looks at it as time and reverse time. And that you have one of those. May I read this letter? <laughs> yes. And that it has all already occurred. But yet, it's still all fields of potential. Yeah. collapsing. Correct. Now we become kinetic when this yes. life experience is done. Yes. And I equate it to, we are building a music note. This life is a music note and our consciousness is a symphony. And this music note is one part of that symphony, but it is just potential right? until it is done, until this physical body is all done. Until it is written. That's done. So right. what has been written here? So we're going to look at time real I quickly. <laughs> Dear Flower Lady, this is a quick note on time, not on time, time, but about time. When we look down time, it can seem very long. So when we're looking forward, it can seem very long. But when we look backward, time isn't even there because it doesn't exist. It doesn't matter when something happened, just that it happened, but it doesn't even matter that it happened. It just colored us. And when we look forward in the forward time, we get to use these colors to paint our future. So it's talking about how we're going to react and respond and how we're going to use our prior experiences in the future. But it also shows that really, truly, time doesn't exist. We can't turn around and go backwards. We can't re-change anything. We can't do any of that. We can look down this way. But what time actually is, is a measurement tool. It's not its own dimension. It's actually a tool of measurement. And that's a whole other topic. It is. But it's, it's okay. absolutely fascinating. It is fascinating. Okay, I want to go back to one thing and then get okay. into time. Okay, so when we're talking about living both sides of our choices, mm-hmm. and we already talked about that a bit, How valuable or is it valuable for us to go back and take a moment to reflect Mm -hmm. what we feel 
a trajectory would have been had we made the opposite choice? Is it worth it to even bother to try to analyze, to engage mentally in that process or just let it be? We need to let it be. When we look back, we're always going to have 2020 vision, no matter what it is. I should have done that. I could have done that. I could have said that. I could have made a decision. But what is that actually doing? That's a, that's being cruel to yourself, saying, I'm such an idiot. I should have done that. And look where I am now. We need to accept where we are in our life, no matter what and no matter how we got there, because it is part of who you are. Everything's an opportunity for learning, Everything. for experience, for growth, everything, everything, every bad decision. And it, and because you made a bad decision doesn't mean you're a bad person. Right. Every, because you made a bad decision, you have to remember that when you made that decision, you made that decision with the best knowledge and understanding and the situation that you were in at that time. You didn't have the information that you were going to have further down yet. So don't beat yourself up too hard because you did the best you could with what you had. And as, I mean, if you reduce it to this, Buckminster <laughs> Fuller said, this is all just one big experiment. It's all this life is an experiment and next life will be an experiment and on and on. That's why observation, this is an observational experiment. And even though it doesn't sound great, I mean, like warm and loving, it actually is. It is the epitome of compassion. It is the epitome of humility. It is the epitome of something so much greater than love. This observation of this life experience is creating that enveloping light or that enveloping darkness that people experience on the other side of the veil and they come back after a near-death experience or out-of-body experience and they well up and they can't describe what they felt, but they knew they went home and they want to go back. And it's and it's this love. Universally, that seems to be the experience. But it yeah. it is created by the observation of this life experience of your life experience, of everyone's life experience, that's contributing to what you're feeling on the other side of the veil. That's how magnificent our lives are. Our lives truly are. Okay, now I'm going to ask you something that I wasn't planning on. Okay. But let's do it. Okay. (laughs) So now, if we look at our lives with that kind of grace Mm -hmm. and say, in one sense, all potentials have already been laid out from the moment I was conceived. Potentials. I still had a choice as to what potential, but there were factors that were going to probably lead me to that, but that's okay. I made that choice. And now that choice seems to have burned me. And now what happens is you have all of the emotions that start pouring in that we need to start reconciling with. Um, and people who tend to go back over their lives over and over and live in the past is a very tortured place to be. Oh, and we all know that when we've gotten stuck in mind loops um, ourselves. So Now we're talking about the enfolding, management, amelioration, whatever you want to call it, of the emotions that flood in after we feel we've made a mistake. Like you say in in your book, skinned our knees. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. When we have these emotions, there's primary and secondary emotions. And and not a lot of people talk about this, but let's look at anger and frustration and hate. And these are going to be what I would call a secondary emotion. I'm not discounting them, but what they are 
are they are protective measures. Yes. To protect that innocence and vulnerability that we were speaking about earlier. So those are protective. So when you are angry, when you are frustrated, what you, the best thing to do is to sit back and say, what is it that I'm angry about? Mm-hmm. So at first it's going to be because so-and-so did this and blah, 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 or I made this stupid mistake. But let's sit back and say, okay, well, why did that make you feel this way? And then we can come into our primary emotions and our primary emotions really are the love and compassion and the ability to have humility in our life, understanding that mistakes happen and understanding that we are going to make mistakes. And it's a compassion towards ourselves. It's a compassion towards that inner innocence that we really, truly are children. (laughs) No matter how old we are, we are such a beautiful child that is learning and doing the very best they can to get through this life that can be quite confusing. (laughs) It can be quite confusing because everyone else has their own individual play playing out simultaneously and our fields intersect with each other. And those plays may be at different stages at a given time. Even if, even in relationships, you, you meet people that you just like instantly, but their play and your play may not be lining up on that perceived timeline scale, for example. And then you sit and say, darn it, any out missed (laughs) opportunity. No, maybe it's not a missed opportunity. If your timelines aren't lining up, it wasn't an opportunity to begin with. Correct. Correct. And if we just accept it for what it is, which is that. And so maybe you met that person and just that was a great meeting. I really like that person. And then you just kind of move on. But don't beat yourself up. I mean, really, truly. Having compassion for our experience in the moment, whatever decisions we make is such such so filled with grace. Mm -hmm. So we talked earlier, we alluded to it briefly, shaky foundations. So part of the reason people feel this angst and everything is they don't know what's coming next. And as you said, even the tectonic plates of the earth are (laughs) shifting. So let's talk about connecting with that pure essence at the core of ourselves. For you as someone who is able to see and function and interact very clearly with your core. And it doesn't mean you don't make mistakes and have boo-boos and fall down and will break things <laughs> like yes. everybody else. But let's okay. talk about it from that very fine, elevated point of view, how we are able to tap in without a near-death experience. You want to know how to tap into that divine everything is divine perfect everything. aspect of each one of us because the world around does move. It is shaky okay. and it can be scary and we can make bad decisions. Okay. All right. So in order for us to connect to that overarching consciousness, to our divine being of who we are, we need to learn silence within ourselves. Now that's easier said than done because our brain has natural chatter and we are going to make mistakes and we're all, we are going to fall down and we're going to break our legs or whatever it is that's going to happen is going to happen. But when we can come into this silence, come into this place, and I, I call it my chocolate place. Yes, because <laughs> okay, you're the chocolate lady. <laughs> but it would be, it would be like chanting a mantra. The, the words don't mean anything. So it would be like stepping into the hum, start humming to yourself. 
or whatever it is to create vibration within your body. And, and for me, chocolate does that, or just the idea of chocolate does that. It's very soothing. And when we can come into that space, then no matter what happens around us, what's going to happen is through that peace, through that silence, through that stillness, that touch of our soul is going to radiate and, and shine right through us. It's going to come in and you're going to be able to feel it. So you need to be able to touch with the thing that brings you not happiness, but joy. No. Yeah. A subtle sense of joy. Yeah. A subtle sense of joy. And, and I actually describe it as a resonance. So mm-hmm. a lot of people think I'm going to raise my vibrational levels so I can get here. I'm going to do this. But what you're actually looking for is harmony because on the other side of the veil, that is what it is. It is harmony. That's why I often refer to it as a symphony and, and where the music note, because it's, it's harmonic and there's a melody up there that is your specific melody. And when we can find resonance, so something that resonates within you, that brings you that beautiful vibrational mm-hmm. note of silence, that is what is going to allow this melody to come straight down and say, you are okay. So if everybody takes a moment right now and just thinks about it, where is their true, I don't mean going out and having, you know, shots with the girls and dancing, but the true quiet, joyful, subtle place inside that makes your heart feel lifted. That's what we're each looking for. Yeah. And if they want to try an experiment, so if people are watching at home, you want to try an experiment and just see how this works. Pick two words, any two words you want. And all I want you to do is repeat these two words to yourself. And this is going to feel like forever, but we're, there's no time. Don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you have to pick the kids up. (laughs) Yeah. Repeat these two words for 10 to 15 minutes Mm -hmm. nonstop. Mm -hmm. The words are just going to end up becoming vibration. It'd be like a soup, a vibrational soup. But what's going to happen is all of a sudden you're going to feel sometimes this pop rocks sensation that you don't even know you have within your body settle down and calm down and you're going to be like wow life is actually very quiet so if you want to try that to find this this stillness or this quiet repeat two words over and over and over and over again and soon you won't have to repeat the two words constantly in order to get this space because you'll recognize the feeling and you'll be able to call upon this feeling at any time so it's just identifying the feeling if you haven't already through meditation practice or whatever Whatever. just find it but the the quality of the words that are bringing you a soothing joyful feeling yeah i mean it could be Chocolate. Chocolate. It could be actually any words. It could be, you know, frog mug, frog mug, frog (laughs) mug. (laughs) But whatever makes you happy. That would make my sister happy. She loves frogs. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, that very good. Thank you. So that's very simple. Choose two words that you love and just say them over and over and over. Yeah, and they don't have have any meaning. No meaning. Yeah. Just you love them. They feel good. Exactly. Say them. Turns into a soup, a hum. And you felt that hum from the time you were born basically from the time from the time you're born you were aware of the hum the note of your life yes yeah i i hear the melody often so with you and life going on and you have life like everybody else you have your ups and your downs and your stumbles and skin knees do is this something that you just consciously can shift into in a moment now because you've lived there your whole life you've known the hum your whole life so you just go back to the hum 
Yeah, I just go back to the hum. I don't actually ever feel myself shift. I don't have to remind myself. Yeah. It just is. You don't get too far from the hum, really, do no. you? If I get too far from the hum, if I get too far from the melody, I think I would collapse because it is the essence of why I'm alive here. It is the essence of why I make chocolate. It is the essence of why I go about everything that I go about and my connection with the world around me. If I didn't have that connection I think I would feel completely lost. I think so too. So, and most people do feel completely lost. Yeah. So on that note, as we finish <laughs> our conversation, we'll talk about your fireside chats, but I want to talk a little bit about chocolate. We have all these ideas we've imposed upon ourselves about what we should do and shouldn't do, which only takes us a further away from the hum usually. Mm-hmm. But it's like you said to me this morning, Regina, go ahead have chocolate-covered orange slice for breakfast. (laughs) Do it. And I'm like, yes, that's not what I'd normally do, but it was what I'd want to do. But if you're in the hum, how does that change everything? It's like eating the chocolate-covered orange slice all day long. There are times and moments in our life that are absolutely devastating. And I know we didn't get the chance to talk about some of these things, but when we have situations that we think we cannot survive. Being able to call upon or find this melody or find this hum allows all of the emotion, allows all of the pain, allows all of the joy to rush through your body at a cellular level. And we have to remember that we're not solid, so it's literally flowing right through us. Mm -hmm. And we could feel all of it. But there is, and I don't want to use the word appreciation, but it is, I would say, humility, where you understand that there is something so much more powerful out there. And that what you're feeling now is a testament to the depth of love that is on the other side of the veil. And that hum or that melody that flows through you is saying you're not alone. It is saying you are loved and you can get through this. It's like someone coming and as you're on your knees, wrapping their arms around you and holding you and saying, I'm right here. And that I'm right here is you. Right. That is you holding that innocent peace that is feeling injured. And that's so important right now because suicide rates have skyrocketed. And we were going to talk about it, but I would like to come back, have you come back another time and go into suicide from a much more elevated level of looking at what happens when all possibilities are there and things start playing out in this way. Yes. And I I think suicide is a a very important topic to talk about. Mm -hmm. Not many people have studied what actually suicide is, Mm -hmm. but suicide isn't a choice. People that are committing suicide have no choice. Just as you have no choice that you have cancer, you have no choice if you have heart disease, you have no choice if you're getting hit by a car. Suicide is the exact same thing. It's a very natural act and it begins at a 
like with unicellular organisms commit suicide. At the cellular level, cells commit suicide. And animals and plants both have what is a suicide gene. Our body is an animal. And I I think that when if we have a chance to come back and talk about that, we open up with what is suicide and what does it look like in the brain as, you know, the brain inflames and the people have no choice. And then when we hear mediums or someone say, you know, your person that you love that commits suicide, they didn't mean it. Well, they didn't. They had no control over it. They didn't want to commit suicide. And the other thing is, before we continue, is they are okay and they are safe and they are loved and they're not in trouble. They're not in timeout. They're not having to learn a lesson. It's a very natural thing that they had to go through that was very, very painful here on earth, but they're out of pain now. Thank you for that. And that's just an opener and a tease toward a larger conversation next time I have you on. But Marin, thank you so much for everything you shared. And just very briefly, you have fireside chats, I learned, where hundreds of people show up, like at a real fireside. What what are these? (laughs) They started out as a real fireside. Yeah. And then when COVID hit, they moved to online and I've just started opening them up to Zoom. And so um, I have monthly fireside chats. I, what I do is I pool the questions that I get most often for a month and then I'll answer those questions during that fireside. But there's no question off the table and there's nothing that we can't discuss. And so once a month we get people coming in and I have two sessions, two firesides, one in the morning, one in the evening. That way if you're in another part love of the it. world, you can join in. I love it. Good. How do they find you? Marinmuter.com. Okay. All right. Well, very good. Thank you so much for uh, letting me know that that's even happening. I've got to join in and see what some of these questions are. <laughs> Thank you again, Mary. Right. Just absolutely delightful and joyous having you here. Thank you, Regina. There's no writing like Marin's. Her new book is called Your Quantum Brain, Nothing Like It. It uses baking as a metaphor for our quantum reality. So, of course, I love it. Stunning, delicate writing. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Okay, this one is called UFO Sightings or Government Cover-Ups. How are ETs and unidentified phenomena linked with skinwalker phenomena and classified government projects? Ufology expert and Colorado MUFON director Katie Page shares her personal experiences witnessing unexplained cattle deaths, government cover-ups, and her years of UFO research. Explore the mysterious realms of UFO sightings, ET abductions, paranormal phenomena, and how government secrets could tie these worlds together. And this is uh, Katie Page, and the host is George Nury. We haven't heard from him for quite a while. This is 45 minutes and let's be, let, let the get, let the story begin.
Welcome to Beyond Belief. Katie Page is with us. She is Colorado's Mutual UFO Network State Director, and she's a star investigator for MUFON and is the team lead and administrator for MUFON's Mars team. Now, we're not talking about the planet, are we? No, we're not. Mars actually was set up before we had the CMS and all our reports were put online on the computer. Everything was done the old-fashioned way by paper, and we had over 10,000 reports um, pre-CMS, and we had a team of redactors, about 15 of us, that spent three years taking out all the private personal information from all these paper reports, and they're all put into a database now. So um, researchers and historians can access that data more easily, which will be set to roll out hopefully in the next couple of years. How long have you been a state director for MUFON? Uh, it's been three years now. Yeah, and I was assistant state director before that for the state of Colorado. How did you get interested in UFOs? <laughs> well, I um, started out kind of interested in paranormal things. Um, when I was a young girl, I had many experiences of high strangeness out on a Colorado ranch. Uh-huh. Um, and I had a lot of unanswered questions about what happened out there all those years ago. Is that ago. in Albert County? It is in Elbert County, Colorado, um, in a small town called Kiowa. And, you know, we were threatened and warned never to talk about what happened out there. And I never knew anybody knew anything about what we experienced out there on this ranch property. So I came in, I learned about MUFON from a documentary on television. And I came in right as a field investigator just to see what I can find out about this whole world of UFOs and possible answers to what happened all those years ago out there on that ranch property. Yeah, tell us about this ranch and, and what might have happened. Yeah, so, you know, like I said, uh, my sister and my mom, my mom um, dated a gentleman. She worked for a large airline, United Airlines, as a computer operator. Sure, they're based out and, this way. Yeah, yeah, um, out there in the Denver Tech Center. And she started dating this gentleman, and he and his family owned this ranch out there in Kiowa. And the minute they moved on the property, they started hearing loud humming sounds and bangs under the ground. Hmm. Um, the property sat vacant for at least 12 years before they even moved in. Um, so there was always rumors and speculation about this property, um, orbs flying on and off the property, UFOs being spotted and things like that. Um, so the two younger sons that lived there lived with us. We lived in Englewood, Colorado, about an hour away. So they would tr- um, commute back and forth to go to a large school district sure. here in Colorado And so, you know, I spent a a handful of times on weekends there, but every Sunday night when the boys would come back, we'd hear about all the happenings. The biggest phenomenon that was occurring out there at the time, and this is from 1975 to 1978. Yes, that's a long time ago, but we still don't have answers to what was happening out there. But cattle mutilations were at really high, high levels. Linda Moulton Howe actually got her start out there as an investigative journalist. Um, researching all these mutilations of not just cow, but horse, sheep, and even dogs. That's the ranch. That, yeah. And, and it was, um, I found out later through George Knapp and Colm Kellyher's book, Hunt for the Skinwalker. Right. That's where I first learned that anybody knew anything about the ranch property. Um, I learned that Dr. Leo Sprinkle, PhD, investigated that along with, um, Dr. John Durr. PhD and a lot of heavyweights in the field of ufology out there. Yeah, they and I was just stunned to find out that anybody knew anything about this ranch property. Um, So the last 10 years, I've been really researching and digging for documents um, and, you know, of what was really going on there at the time. That is amazing. Yeah, it truly is. Yeah. What did you uncover? 
Fortunately for me, Dr. Leo Sprinkle, who is just a wonderful man and a pioneer in the field for contact. God rest his soul. Yes, yes. We unfortunately lost him this last year, but he was an amazing man. And he actually has all his archives there at the Heritage Center in Laramie, Wyoming. And for me, that's only a quick two and a half hour drive. So I went out there and um, got all the original documents um, out of that archives. And what I found um, eye-opening for me is that it was very clear that the military was very aware of what was happening out there on the ranch property. There were notes about NORAD um, being informed of what was there, and even um, a person from um, Camp Carson was out there on the ranch property. So I know there was a heavy military influence out there. Something was happening. Something was happening. So as an investigator and an experiencer out there, I was the question's always been for me, how much of it was military and how much of it was actual um, UFO paranormal experiences. Um, and that's sort of the question I've been trying to answer and uncover all these years. That's pretty dramatic. Mm-hmm. Did you ever find anything on the ranch personally that would convince you this thing is being visited, this place is visited? <laughs> yeah, one of the early memories I have, my older sister and I, um, it was like a typical Colorado spring day. And here in Colorado, we get these wet, heavy snow snows, right? And But the sun will shine and the sky will be blue. If you live out here, you know what I'm talking Hopefully about. Hopefully you get a lot of wet, heavy snows out here, right? <laughs> yeah, right. And we were out in, the, in front of the ranch property just flipping the Frisbee back and forth. And we looked down and there was this large circle on the ground and it was just completely dry um, and nothing grew in the circle. And being, you know, an investigator and researcher, I'm like, well, could there have been a missile silo there or whatever, looking back? But that was a perfect circle, perfect circle. And what's interesting, when I went back to the archives of Dr. Sprinkles, Dr. Sprinkle gave me a document that actually had it was 75 feet in diameter. There were two of these circlet circles, snowless circles on the property. And in one of the um, documents, it actually said there were drops of blood outside the circle, which was kind of terrifying. So that's one thing I remember. And to have that actually verified in the document was like really neat to see that. I was like, that was a memory. Katie, did something happen to you out that way? I mean, were you, I've heard rumors that you were threatened. Yes. By whom and why? Well, you know, that's something I always have questions about. So one of the most terrifying nights we had out there, my sister and I and um, the three boys, I, I believe it was the boys' mother's birthday. So we were out there over the weekend celebrating her birthday. All the adults, it was after midnight. They were in the front ranch house playing board games. And we were, the kids were all hanging out in the boys' room. And it was late, early in the morning. And all of a sudden that humming noise started up. Um, and everybody's like freaking out. There's that humming noise because anytime that humming noise happened, strange things began to happen. Well, at that moment, all the power in the house went out. So it's dark. We're all scared. And then at that moment, we had this booming voice. It sounded like it was coming out of every orifice in the house, but it was basically this warning. We have allowed you to remain. Your friends will be instructed to remain silent concerning us. Don't take action that we will regret and da da da. So I had memories of that. And my sister also has memories of that most terrifying night. And that exactly what it said was in that briefing document as well. Another confirmation out of the report, which was really, really neat to see. What was the box? Yeah. So there was this box that was reported to be seen out there. And again, the adults uh, saw that box several times. Um, I witnessed the box one time. It was during the day. 
they had a pickup truck and hound dogs and we were driving. There's a bank of ponderosa pines behind the ranch house. And we were in the pickup truck driving around the back in the ponderosa pines. And we get out of the truck and that humming noise, well, it sounded more like bees started up. Sure. And um, all of a sudden the adult, his name was John, is like, get back in the truck, get back in the truck. And in the trees, you could see this box. Okay, it's about two feet by a foot, and it had lights on it, and it made this strange sound. Like somebody put like, it there? I don't know who put it there, but when we jumped back in the truck, I looked back into the trees, and that box was gone. And that's what it was reported, this box would that's bizarre. be there and not be there. It's so bizarre, I didn't even talk about it for years, because it's just so strange. And it wasn't until I started hearing um, other high strangeness locations, like Skinwalker Ranch, and um, Trey Hudson's ranch in the south, right. the south Skin Rock Ranch, that also have experiences with these strange boxes. So. Ken Cherry is a former Texas MUFON state director. He talked on Gaia's Open Mind series about his first UFO experience. When I was about seven, uh, I was alone on our ranch at the time and came through into a clearing and looked up and there was this silvery object going across the horizon just slowly. And of course, at that age, I had no comprehension of the types of vehicles or aircraft or anything of that nature. The next thing I know, there was this uh, craft uh, coming down at a very rapid speed toward the silvery object. And uh, I don't know if it was a glint of the sun or if there was some interaction between the object and the craft, but there was like a lightning or something. Next thing I knew, the um, the pilot of the plane bailed out and the craft, you know, started billowing smoke and crashed into the uh, ground. The silver object took off. The um, Back in those days, I mean, kids were to be heard, I mean, to be seen and not heard. Mm-hmm. So I really never had a chance to discuss it with anybody, but whenever my parents would get together with neighbors, all they could talk about was rescuing this pilot from the trees, you know. <laughs> mm. And I uh, later uh, realized that this was one of our early jets that had uh, tried to attack or force down uh, a flying saucer. And this would have been about 1952 when we still had this order standing, you know, force them down or shoot them down. Of course, it never really worked. Uh, at one point, I think... Um, a uh, G- General Chedlaw said uh, we were losing uh, an aircraft a day around the world trying to force down saucers. So they finally gave up on that. And, uh, you know, the, the saucers apparently were just in defensive mode. There was a major UFO flap in this country in 1952. Right. UFOs spotted over the Capitol. It's an incredible story, but he's pretty convincing, isn't he? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um that that actually goes right along with, you know, in that briefing document that I acquired from um, John Schusler, it talks about, and also in Dr. Leo Sprinkle's files, that there were two A7D interceptors in pursuit of a UFO that actually crashed there in Elbert County that occurred on November 11th, 1975. So um, I actually ran into Richard Doty at one of the conferences right. in Laughlin, and I asked him a couple questions. I asked him, A, if he was aware of that ranch property. In um, the Apro folklore, it was known as the Clearview Ranch or the Rocky Mountain Ranch. Um, and the, the location was unknown because the people of the town and the sheriff, 
um, George Yarnell and Bill Waugh, they did not want any publicity or, you know, to bring the masses down around the town. Um, but he said that, yes, he was aware of that property, which was really interesting to me. And number two, that if I wanted any information on those two A7Ds that, that crashed out there, um, to go ahead and send a FOIA request into Kirkland Air Force Base. Did you get any info? I did. I got a nice big thick envelope. And, um, of course, all that where it gets really juicy and interesting, you know, blacked big out, black, blacked big out. blacked out boxes. But what's fascinating to me was supposedly it was, uh, an instructor and, um, a student pilot out of Buckley Air Force Base, which now, of course, is Space Force. Um, but this was at night. I learned that they had 255 live rounds of ammunition on board, which I thought was interesting with a student pilot flying over residential farms and ranches. It's kind of dangerous. I think mm-hmm. that's kind of dangerous. And what one of the causes that were listed that the instructor misidentified another craft as the students and the student didn't turn off his beacon light instead of turning it on and hit his tail and they both went down, they both ejected and they both survived. Um, but I found it interesting that they never identified either with the radio transcripts or the pilot never identified what that other craft was. Um, and then just recently I was at David Marler's. Um, he has a very large historian you know, all sorts of documents and newspaper articles. And I ran across uh, an article around that same time out of Canada that the Air Force actually did scramble a couple jets in pursuit of a UFO. So we know they've done it. They were chasing chasing something. something. And I believe they were chasing something, yeah. We've got some sketches from the Elbert Ranch that I want you to take a look at and react. Our first is in so-called alien drawing of what might have been out there. What do you think of that? Well, again, um, the um, image there close to you, George, that was the actual sketch that was in the files at Dr. Sprinkles of the alien being, one of the types that were seen out there on the ranch. And this um, sketch there on the left closest to me um, is a sketch from a gentleman named Sean Bartok, who wrote a book called Flashbacks. And he had a um, a property that was just 14 miles away from where the ranch sat. And this was the being they saw out there. He was around that time. Right. And I don't know about you, but I find them to look eerily similar, <laughs> you know, and those tubes in the neck there, um, he said actually would, you know, would expand out. Those are actually tubes in his neck. That's um, interesting. So out there on the ranch property, they, they said they had these type of beings seen out there and a Nordic type of being. And they said they appeared to be in conflict with one another. All right, let's look at the next picture here and see what this is. Again, that's that's a different perspective of what we saw. Look at the arms. Yeah, and you know, through the years, it well exactly. I was actually at the grocery store standing in line, and there was a copy of Popular Mechanics, and it was a big article about AI, and they had these like you know to be. Things and I thought, yeah, I I really think this could possibly be some sort of AI. And I also, through the years, think that whatever those boxes may be that were seen at the ranch property are most likely connected to these beings here. What Um, is that screen in front of him? I don't know. In the document, it actually it it describes it as more of a three dimensional type thing. It almost looks flat in that photograph, um, but the arms and legs are almost um, spider, you know. 
It looks like it's a praying spiked. mantis. Yeah, almost. So I, I don't know if that's a shield or, or what that is. And there was um, supposedly some sort of clear um, apparatus over the head. All right, so. let's look at our next picture here. Yeah, again, this is, yeah, those are those images from that that issue. And when I saw that, it just kind of clicked in my brain that possibly that could be an AI, maybe connected to the boxes. And then the, the image there on the far right is that Sean Bartok's drawing um, of those tubes that are in the neck coming out. So um, I think it's very unusual because it's not like anything you really see, you know, in you know, movies or the the, right. the stereotypical grays that you often hear about. They're very unique looking. Uh, another phenomenon out there. This looks like there, Bigfoot. Oh, yeah. And when I was a young girl, so during the, the ranch time, you know, I'm 9 to 12 years old during these years, and they called them white fuzzies because they had um, like gray hair. Um, but they had these Bigfoot Sasquatch creatures that were seen at the ranch property, and um, and that was a sketch of what was drawn there. And interestingly enough, years later at a conference, I meet um, Bob Salas and he was talking about very similar experiences happening up in Montana and happened to have an airman that passed a polygraph test seeing these creatures. And they're almost identical to these as well. How prevalent, Katie, was the military presence out at this ranch? I think it was very prevalent. I mean, one of the big things that happened out there a lot were these mysterious unmarked helicopters flying off and off of properties. And it made me wonder, like, um, were the military responsible for a lot of these cattle mutilations? You know, were they taking the cattle right. and why? Um, there's missile silos out there, um, the Titan missile silos. Were they testing the water? Were they testing the soil? I don't know. But as you can see, the Elbert Ranch is that big red star there. And we had the Air Force Academy. And back in the mid to late 70s, their property ran clear up close to the ranch property. Um, and then we have Cheyenne Mountain, of course, NORAD, Fort Carson, Shrivener, Peterson Air Force Base. And there's also Butte, which had a, um, a huge collection of the helicopters out there. So and that's, you know, like I said, it was always my question, you know, chicken or the egg. Were, out, were they out there causing the activity or were they out there investigating their both? Or both. Or both. Or both. Military bases seem to be associated with a lot of UFO sightings. What What is your thoughts on that? Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, we, we know World War II and the Foo Fighters and, and all the activities and, you know, shutting down and even turning on our nuclear weapons. Um, so I believe that whoever may be out there watching humanity is – Keeping a close eye on our military and our, our very weapons. Close eye. Yeah, very Dulce, close eye. New Mexico seems to have a lot of episodes happening. On Gaia's deep space program, they talk about the military base in the sky filled with UFO activity. There have been whispers since the early 1960s that the U.S. government and military have been involved with discovering caverns hidden under the desert of the Southwest. They've also been active in creating underground cities and bases. One of the more dramatic scenarios involves an underground base near the town of Dulce, New Mexico. The first base came into prominence when UFO researcher Paul Benowitz accidentally discovered it. But who was Paul Benowitz? So Paul Benowitz was a, a U.S. private scientist who had a, a small defense company of his own. 
and he did contract work for the U.S. military in the 1970s. Uh, Paul Benowitz lived uh, right across from Kirtland Air Force Base in um, New Mexico and in the mid to late 1970s started to detect, he had very sophisticated instrumentation at his home, detect what he believed were UFOs over Kirtland and Manzano as well, the weapons storage area nearby there, detect different types of communications signals that he believed he had uh, translated. In fact, I have translations of those. And so he became convinced that there was serious UFO and basically extraterrestrial activity over Kirtland and Manzano, the weapon storage facility where there was a ton of nukes. And Benowitz had an interest in UFOs, and this was expanded upon by the fact that he started to see in the skies over Kirtland these strange objects performing all sorts of weird maneuvers. At the same time, the equipment at the Thunder Company was picking up these unusual, unexplained noises, which seemed to be some sort of coded message. And Benowitz came to believe that what he was seeing in the sky were definitive UFOs, extraterrestrial spacecraft, and that these coded messages he was picking up were covert messages from extraterrestrial craft to other extraterrestrial craft. And he began to dig into this issue very, very deeply. Paul Benowitz lived in Albuquerque, next to Kirtland Air Force Base, which was and is a center of a lot of secret weapons and weapon systems and aircraft research. And so he was uniquely positioned to see what was going on in the base because he lived on a hill. His house is still there, overlooking the entire base. And he could see things, especially late at night when they were doing testing. And nobody, they didn't figure anybody was up at that hour, but Paul Benowitz was. Katie, absolutely riveting, isn't it? It is, and it really makes you wonder about these hums and bangs and sounds underground. And in fact, I, you know, would pull up Google Earth and and look, you know, where Stapleton Airport and DIA and all the military bases are. Could they have been digging and tunneling under there? I don't know. It's a question I've always had, and I wonder about that. How much does the government know and they just aren't telling us? A lot. And I also find it fascinating that, you know, we had the Navy come out and be pretty upfront in public. Maybe not their choice, but it happened that way. With the tic-tac videos? With the tic-tac, yeah. Um, But the Air Force has remained pretty quiet and hush-hush about it. And I, I, I believe personally that it has to do with liability um, maybe I, I come to believe through my 10 years of research that the Air Force was out there maybe doing some black access projects, um, you know, and if they did have their hand in these mutilations and what they have a lot to cover up still and, and they don't want to answer for them. Like MK Ultra? Um, yeah, there's actually a note in Dr. Leo Sprinkle's files that um, there was a Warren and his last name was redacted out, uh, was at the ranch property. And it says something took over his mind, made him walk towards the woods, would release him and he would run back to the ranch house and that this did this to him five times. That speaks to me as some sort of mind control. So who knows? There there could have been some black access projects happening out there. Who knows what they were experimenting with? How could they be related to UFO cases? Well, I think, you know, I think if if that. If there were two beings seen out there on that ranch property, if ETs had their hand in mutilating cattle, if, you know, who knows that the military obviously would be interested in what they're doing there and why. Sure. Um, so I think they were out there looking for answers. 
there were a couple interceptors pursuing a UFO. Tell us about what you know about that. Yeah, well, I mentioned that a little earlier that I, you know, FOIA'd the, the Kirkland Air Force right. Base and got the documents on that. And one thing I can tell you, um, I flew to Florida and did an interview with the undersheriff there in Elbert County in Cayo at the time was a gentleman named Bill Waugh. And in fact, he does uh, an appearance in Linda Moulton Howe's movie, A Strange Harvest. Uh-huh. And so I went and interviewed um, yeah, his son and his widow. And, you know, him and George Arnell, they were up in small planes um, looking for craft and looking for the these mutilators that were mutilating the cattle. And something that a lot of people don't really realize and understand, um, people were very frightened. These were happening almost daily. So people had um, loaded shotguns by their door. They had they were that tent. scared. They were that scared. It was a really eerie time, and um, there were a, there was a ten thousand dollar reward to find the people that were mutilating these cattle, and so people were actively looking up in airplanes. Um, the Colorado Bureau of Investigations was very aware of what was happening, um, as was Stapleton Airport. So they were watching the skies. And in fact, one of the documents that I uncovered also was that the Elbert County sheriffs. Um, they had a no-fly zone over the county for a little while as they were trying to find out who were mutilating these cattle. Um, and at the time, one of the theories was possibly, you know, um, cults. Uh, but I think we can safely rule that out. Is Bill Wash still alive? No, he's not. Unfortunately, yes. we lost him. Yeah, but I'll tell you, his his widow, Jean, and his son, they certainly have a lot of memories and a lot of really good information. So I was very fortunate to be able to interview them as well as other people in the town because really what I thought was isolated to the one ranch location and the ranch sits at the highest elevation of Elbert County um, or in Kiowa. The, but this affected, I have a list of over 250 people that had experienced things. So this just wasn't isolated to the ranch property. It was the whole county. Is it possible that some of these sightings may have been originating from something underground, like an ET base? I think that's altogether possible. I really do because of just all the strange sounds and bangs and things coming from underground. I mean, who knows? And and then there's always the possibility of interdimensional portal type things as well. Well, well, let's talk about the possibility of cattle mutilations. What else may be going on there? Here's another clip from Gaia's Deep Space. In northern New Mexico, animals are being found drained of blood with organs removed. Black helicopters were seen flying around the area, strange lights, UFOs. And it all revolved around this huge mesa, which overlooks Dulce, called the Archuleta Mesa. One of the intriguing theories is that there exists within and below this huge mesa some sort of fortified alien installation, an extraterrestrial base, if you like. And certainly since the 1970s, right through to the present day, a lot of research has been done into the Dulce area to try and answer that question. Are extraterrestrials living under New Mexico in the Dulce area? Yeah, back in the 1950s in Farmington, there was an armada of UFOs seen going from Farmington eastward towards Dulce. Terrified everybody, made the newspapers, and then nothing. In today's world, a lot of nations do have underground installations, and it makes a great deal of sense because if, God forbid, there was ever a nuclear war, then if some sort of containment of 
uh, government is going to take place and continuation, then the best place to be in a third world war is underground. It makes sense. So a lot of these installations were built during the height of the Cold War to protect the government, while unfortunately the rest of us are left upstairs to fry. And um, one of the theories is that some of these installations may have been built for potentials in the event of a third world war. But over time, they may have been reorganized and transformed to where you have these alien human interactions going on. In other words, very much like Dulcie. We had people coming forward, finally sharing UFO sightings, engagements with cryptids, creatures they could not explain. For the first time on record, multiple families, independent of one another, said they hear traffic beneath their town. Traffic, traffic, like cars and trucks. They hear it like what sounds like a train system. And we all know about the maglev tunnel system that supposedly exists there. There is one that exists within the, the Los Alamos infrastructure. It's an underground maglev system. This underground system, Katie, could it be ours or the ETs? I think most likely it would be ours if that exists. Um, I think, you know, with NORAD base being right there, I mean, the likelihood is probably pretty high that some tunneling Huge. system, yeah, they go somewhere. Now, did they go through Elbert County? I don't know. But, I mean, that is certainly a question that I have. Are you still hearing things about underground bases, reports like that? Um, from time to time, you know, you'll hear in the UFO circles people talking about these um, underground bases. Um, certainly, People will ask me, you know, is the activity still high there in Elbert County? And do we still get reports from ranchers of mutilations and that? Um, and the answer is a lot of these ranchers don't report these things um, to move on. It's been going on for so long. They know nothing happens. They don't want the stigma. So, yes, right. mutilations are still occurring, just not to the, to the degree they were then. And um, what's interesting, we just recently um, made contact with the people living there now and they are still seeing some activity from time to time of different orbs and, and lights flying on and off the property and, and a sensation. And this is really interesting to me personally, because one thing that I remember more than anything else is that sense of being watched or monitored. And they're still feeling that there as well. What's well, kind of interesting in the past, Katie, we used to have reports of scorched earth. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that circle, for yeah. example, we would see scorches of what looked like a burned out UFO that had landed. We don't get those anymore. How come? Yeah, not so much. I don't know. You know, that's something that fascinated me going through the MUFON archives and doing the research um, history that I have. It seems as though the phenomenon tends to shift uh, and change through the decades. And I don't know if that is popular culture or if it seemed like we had more landings and more actual sightings of beings in the 70s and more abductions in the 70s i mean 1975 we have travis walton right great story yeah yeah so um i don't know if maybe during that that decade they were really gathering evidence and ground soils and cattle and and they were landing more and now they have that and they don't need to do that anymore so now they're doing flybys and coming in and out of our oceans i i don't know what the answer to that is but you can definitely see these these changes of, of 
you know, the well, and they've been dramatic. Too. Yeah, they really have been. You yeah, know, and even back to the mutilations for a moment, they've slowed down a lot. Yeah, they they have. Um, and you know, I know that there's you know, a lot of people believe that that's kind of a closed case. It was all done by the military and it had no ET connection to it. But the interviews that I've done, I I can't say that I believe that. Uh, and one in particular. If you go to the Elbert County Museum, one of the families there that basically pioneered, one of the early pioneers of Kiowa and Elbert County, I interviewed um, one of the daughters, the granddaughters, and she, right out of high school, moved to the town of Rama, Colorado, which is really close to Kiowa, and they lived on several acres, miles off the county road, and her husband was on horseback checking the cows for calves. Wow. Yeah, and um, came across a dead calf, and it had a perfect, a perfect incision of a square. Cut, 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 cut. The top of the fur was removed, but the skin was still there. And these are laser incisions. Yeah, well, this was like cut. So he gets on the horse, goes back, and gets my witness, and they come back 20, 25 minutes later in the pickup truck. When they got back, that calf was completely mutilated with precision laser cut, just like you no hear. No blood. Blood drained. Organs removed, and there were no tracks other than the horse, what the horse had made. Um, and they were miles up the county road, no helicopter sounds. Um, they said they felt watched. They felt it was really eerie and almost evil, um, and it really scared them. And to me, that can't be the military doing that. In the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, they portrayed those kinds of scenes as government-run doing tests, yeah. like chemical tests, biological tests on these cattle. And, of course, they had to dissect them to look at the organs to see what kind of effect it would be because it would affect us, too. Right. I'm not sure that's the case. No, not in all of them. Maybe a, a large percentage. Possibly that's true. They're taking the tongue, the eye, the sensitive organs, to, you know, looking for mad cow disease or different genetic or how, how could testing. this biological affect this animal? Yeah, exactly. Example. But certainly through the interviews that I've personally done, it doesn't answer for all of them. So I do think there's maybe an ET connection to some of the mutilations. What is the, what is called the hitchhiker effect? <laughs> what is that? Well, interestingly, um, you know, I at the very beginning, I told you I kind of started my journey in, on the paranormal side because um, I experienced some very unusual things and I compartmentalized them and didn't really connect it to the activity on the ranch until I read the book um, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon That's just right. recently, and they talked about the hitchhiker effect. And back at my ranch house, the night that I spoke about where we had that loud disembodied voice threatening us and, and that when I got home to my house that evening, I walked in the front door and collapsed in the doorway, and I was paralyzed for a short while, and I couldn't me. speak, no. And in fact, that night was the first night I had my full-blown major migraine headache. And I suffered migraine headaches like weekly after that event on the ranch. Was somebody I, bombarding you? I don't know. But at that time also, I never slept alone. I always slept with my big sister. We put the bed against the wall because I was seeing these large shadow type figures in my room. They would be by the closet, Going peeking around there. the door Jeez. next to my bed. I was terrified all the time. I was always afraid of being taken. I walked to school, my elementary school, 
And I was so afraid that if a car and especially motorcycle was really bad, I would pretend as if I lived at that house because I always thought somebody was going to take me or something. So I was terrified all those years, but I never really connected the paranormal things that happened, the shadow figures. And I had an experience with this big blue, blue orb. Um, I never connected it to the ranch until just recently when other people said when they spend time at these high strangeness locations, these these phenomena tend to follow them. And that's certainly true in my case throughout my life. It might not be UFO related. It could be something entirely different. Maybe. I don't, I'm, I'm not sure what it is, but it certainly has, con- something's connected to me in that sense because it, it continues to this day. Do you think there's a connection between UFOs and what's been happening to you and other people? I, I do. Um, I've just talked to so many people that have experienced the, the same thing, very similar things. So I do believe that is connected. Do you think it's all based on this ranch or is it just? No, I think there's the areas not only across the United States, but around the world that have these high degree of high strangeness activity that happens. And in fact, in the Mars program and in, in um, the data, I found another location that had a very similar experiences as a ranch Hmm. in Colorado called it was called the Ohio pile creature case in Ohio pile, Pennsylvania, very similar things around that same time. And so what I started to do is I was looking at the uh, magnetic map of the United States to see, you know, what maybe these locations had in common, you know, um, blind frog and skinwalker and Marley woods and all these locations. And, one thing they all have in common is they ping the charts of being very, very highly magnetic areas. So I found that really interesting. So I don't know if there's something that's attracting ETs to these really high magnetic areas or if it allows us to interact with the phenomenon, something in our brain. I don't know. What's going on at the ranch now? Well, um, the, the family has said, you know, the activity is much less than it was back back in those years, but they are still experiencing some things from time to time. And um, as fate would Are have they it, scared? Um, you know, I I don't know if they're scared. I think they feel watched, and I think it's they have an uneasiness or uneasy feeling, but it's not to the degree it was back at the day. It's not like the whole town is on edge anymore, like it used to be. But do they feel violated? Um, I I'm not sure about that. Interesting. Yeah. Does the government continue to come out to the ranch? Not not to my not knowledge. Anymore. No, but I. Do know that they're like, for example, when I sent in my FOIA request, I did get a personal phone call from the United States Air Force. And they basically told me if you want any more information about that area to contact them directly. I argue a lot with Stephen Bassett, you know, Stephen, who talks about disclosure all the time. Mm -hmm. He said it's coming. It's coming. He's been saying that for 15 years. And I keep telling him, Steve, it's not coming unless whistleblowers come forward and really get the information out. What's your guess? I agree with you on that one. I, I just I think there's too much liability and too many secrets for all these years that they're just not going to come and spill it all one day. It's going to come out slowly through time and until a lot of these, and I don't want to call them victims, but a lot of these people that were um, traumatized or part of these programs are long dead and gone, then maybe it'll come out. They seem to be concerned that because of holding back information by on us by for so many years that they come forward and say this has been happening they don't know how to say it they don't know what to do right 
I think they don't have answers just like we don't have answers. And and they don't want the general public to know how vulnerable we might be. You know, I mean, if they can't control what ETs out there doing or who's flying around in our airspace, that's kind of scary. You know, so. Erica Lukes is the MUFON state director in Utah, and she talked about the possibility of full disclosure. We need a great sighting. We need a great national sighting of something landing to get people excited again about this. Right. Well, you know, you we have. I mean, look at the Phoenix Lights case. You know, in '97. Yeah, that was that was such a great case, and yet still you have people arguing about it. Oh yeah, that they were flares, that they were Chinese lanterns, right? That they were military jets. Come on. I know. You get all these people seeing a object which was about a mile long. It, it's interesting, and, and you know, because you, you deal with so many people's belief systems, and we have to try to to separate this from a belief, you know, to a factual thing. Here is the data. Mm-hmm. You cannot look at all of the government documents that have been obtained. You can't look at all of the scientific evidence in places like Heshtalen over in Norway, 30 years of data over there. They've identified four different types of light phenomena that responds intelligently. So you can't argue about that. And we need to to get some good people out there in front that are professional that can lead the way and say, look at this. It's This isn't a belief. It's a fact. Katie, what continues to drive you? Uh, I want answers. I I love researching. My my happy place is to go into archives. Um, I really just want to get to the bottom of what was happening there. And that drives me every day. It keeps me going to keep digging. Um, and I, I have just run across so many really interesting people along sure. the way that have just little pieces of information. And it, it's sort of like this just big puzzle where just, I'm just trying to put all those pieces in place and get to the bottom of really what was happening. Well, you know, curiosity time. killed the cat. <laughs> I know. Be careful. I know. That's so true. Where can people find your work and track um, you? Yes, they can go to katiepage.net. And spell uh, page for us? P-A-I-G-E All right. dot net. And that's my website, and they can contact me there. Are you going to continue researching this and stay I, a state director for MUFON, for example? I am. I am. And, you know, I, I have another love, too, which was a Roswell-Denver body connection. So I've been investigating this for three years, and, and COVID kind of slowed that down a little bit. But I, I'm working on that case as well. Um, there was a Brigadier General Arthur Exxon who rumored that one of the Roswell bodies ended up in a mortuary outfit in Denver. And um, I've been on that case for a while as well and have uncovered from some interesting things on that. So, What did your gut okay. tell you about all of this? Um, my gut, where I stand right now, I believe that, you know, it's I think we're all looking for simple answers um, that Occam Razor Occam's razor, and it's not a simple answer. I think we had military in there doing things, and we had um, unusual, unknown phenomenon happening at the same time, and it just gets convoluted. Um, so the simple answers that we're looking for, we're not going to find. Mm. I just think it's way more complex. And what? even getting down to the to the to what reality actually is, I mean, we can go deep, deep into that. But it's, Katie, it's why complex. aren't we helped by the occupants of these UFOs? 
Well, I ask that almost every day. Like, come on, we need some help already. I don't know if there were just some agreements put in place. Uh, maybe there's a universal, you know, uh, you can't interact. There has to be something like that because you would think one of, I mean, there has to be multiple beings that are interacting possibly. You would think some of them would want to just come up and, you know, say, hello, we're here. Um, I don't know why. That's a really good question. Well, keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> Thank you. And thanks for being on Beyond Belief. Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure being here. UFOs. Will we ever get full disclosure from the government? I'm not sure. And experts like Katie Page, they're not sure. But we're not going to stop trying. Thanks for watching Beyond Belief. (laughs) Well, we just heard from... uh, uh, What's our friend's name, Rama? Today, uh, the doctor, the doctor Greer. Greer, he just said it's going to knock everybody's socks off on June, June 16th. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. That's not that far away. My gosh. Mm-hmm. What's today? The 13th. Excuse me. It's the 14th. <laughs> All right. Mm. So. Rama's going to go find us some music, and I'm going to read Aurora Ray. We're getting close to the completion of this amazing time for tonight. Uh, and uh, not yet. Me, me read, you go. <laughs> okay, let's see what Aurora Ray has to say, everybody. Humanity will be able to live much longer than now because of changes in your physical body structure. You'll be able to do miraculous things with your mind that you currently consider impossible, such as telepathy and manifesting what you want out of thin air. Dear ones, ascension happens in waves as one group becomes ready, followed by another. Many humans have now reached the gateway to the upper, upper worlds and are ready for mass ascension. I'd like to express my gratitude for having the opportunity to communicate with all of you, members of the family of light from various nations, backgrounds, and interests. Over the past decade, we, uh, we have We have been together through thick and thin. I thank you all for your time, your kindness, your dedication. You are the small core, the team that has carried our mission successfully until now. I would also like to thank you, you who have unselfishly supported me and participated in many discussions on the platform. 
after thousands of years of evolution, we are finally entering the final phases before mass ascension. At long last, you have reached the state of consciousness that is needed for the mass ascension activation. I would like to explain what is going on in the fields of thought so that you can, you can feel what is going on as much as possible and understand, understand, overstand what is now happening. The stream of energy coming through Gaia's portal has intensified and is now coming from the central sun of our galaxy in various locations on the Earth's surface. The great event is here at hand. Most of humanity will awaken shortly. The more evolved members of humanity, lightworkers and starseeds, are already experiencing a higher state of consciousness. You are no longer on a personal evolutionary journey. You are being guided by the Galactic Federation because this is an event that affects all humanity. It is time to celebrate. It is time to experience the new world we are going to live in. The whole of humanity is nearing a massive transformation Can you feel it? (laughs) Uh, Indeed, I believe so, everybody. You will be prepared for this mass ascension activation. In the coming weeks and months, you will realize that your vibrations are quite different from what it was before this season. You will realize that you have become a more positive, loving, caring, and thoughtful person than ever before. You will start attracting friends and family members who share a similar outlook on life as yours. The universe works like an echo chamber. It simply mirrors back what you send out into it. The law of attraction brings like-minded people together so they can build momentum together and achieve their goals quickly and efficiently. This is not a change that can be forced upon you. It is a journey that only you can undertake. The Galactic Federation will guide you along the way, yet they cannot take even one step for you. You must make all of the choices along the way and determine your destination for yourselves. The fear that many of you feel at this moment reflects your resistance to this change. It is part of a deep-seated need to maintain control over every aspect of your life, including who you become and what form of your life takes This is both understandable and 
and unrealistic. Yet, I know... Momentito, i got to turn this page. Yet, I know that you will work through these issues with my assistance. Dark forces cannot exist on this frequency for even a single second. They cannot enter it. Yet you must get rid of all fear in your system. Understand that you are here for all of this because of your own free will choice, even as you have fully forgotten about the contracts you made before you incarnated. Prepare yourself for this ascension. You will soon be confronted with the following facts. Humanity will rise up and embrace its true power as divine beings of light. The dark forces will be removed and taken to a safe place where they cannot do harm. This is already happening behind closed doors. The secret forces that have run this planet for centuries will be exposed and brought to justice. Earth will be restored to its natural beauty with all pollution removed through advanced technology. The old financial system based on debt slavery, will be replaced by a new one based on fairness and abundance for all. That's a big one, everybody. A new superhighway system will be built connecting all continents together using high-speed technology. All human beings will become permanently connected. All human beings will be permanently connected to each other through higher dimensional technology that links consciousness together in perfect harmony once again. This is what you have been waiting for since your birth into this world. Mass ascension. Throughout the last decade, the earth has been undergoing a profound transformation. This change has mainly been in energy form and has been invisible to almost all humanity. The energy that is changing is called life force energy, or chi, and it is the very foundation of all life on earth. The change in this energy is happening because of a fundamental shift in the entire solar system and galaxy from one dimension to another. This ascension process is naturally occurring throughout the entire universe. It is time for our solar system to ascend and Earth with it. This change in dimension, will cause a total transformation of humanity and consciousness. 
humanity will be able to live much longer, much longer than now because of changes in your physical body structure. You will be able to do miraculous things with your mind that you currently consider impossible, such as telepathy and manifest and manifesting what you want out of thin air. All of life on planet Earth will be transformed into its higher dimensional form, including your pets, your plants, your animals, your insects, and all other sentient beings. After this, transformation takes place. The dream state will become a reality, and your conscious waking state will be like a dream compared to your new reality. This new reality will be like living in heaven on earth. <laughs> I'm just saying this is for real. Let's turn the page. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. We are the Galactic Federation. Aho, Aurora Ray, Ambassador of the Galactic Federation. And I pass this talking stick to Rainbird with Excalibur and this Emerald Serpent Feathered One here. And all the angels, fairies, feathers, rainbows, and crystals on it with elves and dwarves and hobbits and Sasquatch and you name it. Here it comes, Rainbird. Okay, I got it. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And and it's Rumi's Galactic Signature Day. Oh, Rumi? Yeah. It's the solar sun. He's the son of the sun. Rama, it's Rumi's Galactic Signature Day today. Mm. Well, you'll have to find some more Rumi. We've never been... We've been back. We haven't been back there for a long time, though. Mm-hmm. Not tonight, but mm. yeah, that's Yeah, I just remember what was his name that plays the flute, and he has a friend. Coleman Barks. Coleman Barks, right? Is he still here? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, are we still here, Rainbird? We are. Yeah. 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 And yeah, Coleman. He's a he's a good one, and let's uh, um, say Happy Mother's Day too. Happy, happy Mother's, Mother's Day. Day. <laughs> <laughs> we all yeah. we are all we all you know we all have mothers somewhere. Uh huh. Uh-huh. And Rama has mothers hanging out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and yeah. we get to share that with all of us. Wow. Yeah. We're so grateful for that, Rama. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> she had good words this week. I really enjoyed her. <clears throat> you have to go back and listen. You were somewhere else. <laughs> uh, I think I do. <laughs> <laughs> you do. Okay. That's good. Mother is recorded for many, many years now. Thank you, BBS Radio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love it. I um, mean, let me- about this, this is CC BBS Radio. We started in 2009, right? 
10th of December, 1920, 21, 22, 23. Okay, 14 years, going on 15. Wow. Yeah, and I'll say Happy Mother's Day to our archivists, too, because what an important position that is for our, our dear sister Penny. Oh, my God, determination and persistence. I know, I know. She's a, she's a hero. In. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed, and we are all here for what we just read about. We're all here yeah. to be doing things beyond our wildest dreams. And just when we just listen to so many people who went through just amazing things to be where they are today, you know, just wow, what courage and persistence and dedication. So lots of gratitude for all, all, all of we, we say that. Thank we. That's how we say that. Thank we. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> So, thank you for tonight, and I'm passing this talk. What? Go ahead. I never heard of 13 thank yous, honey, in the heart, no evil, and live long and prosper until I met you. Hmm. And I learned that from my Mayan teacher, um, Zoe. Zoe, Allison, Rocking Bear. Oh, my God, Rocking Bear. Wow. Yeah. Thanks for bringing us to listen to yeah, that group and him. That was a, a, a very high point, and I'm really mm-hmm. grateful I got to meet him. Oh, you you met somebody really special, that's for sure. Yeah. And that's, that, that's who I go see when I get on my flight ship. <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. What, what's he got to tell us lately, that Rainbird? Uh, see, oh, lately, oh, lately we were busy somehow, so, um, but, yeah, the first time I did it in December, I, that was where I went, and, and somebody else was with him, Keith, who's a friend, and was his best friend, and, and I, I knew I wasn't supposed to interrupt him when he was with somebody else, so I just kind of flew on by and waved. <laughs> You and learned then, all of the protocols. <laughs> and then I found out that the per- my dear friend who I saw there had crossed over 10 days before. Wow. So that was how I found out. It was like I, I was out of the loop at that point. I was busy doing other stuff and not connecting. And, and then I found out that he had died on the 6th of December, and this was the 16th. It was 10 days before. I go, oh, my God. And I saw him with Rocky Bear. <laughs> of course. What a what a wonderful gift! Wow. Yeah, yeah. There really I, is. I, there is no veil, Rainbow. No, there is no veil, and it is, it is so good. What we're plowing through right now is going to be so sweet when we get to the other side. <laughs> well, we will be. Literally not having to do the dying part. Right. And we don't have to do the the physical part either. But what's what's really interesting is uh, Kesh is teaching us how to shape shift. I mean, mm-hmm. he's not teaching us how to shape shift. He says you just do it. You just you shape shift. So 
Um, there won't well, be no borders because who's going to know what about anybody? <laughs> He's going to what? I missed that last line. What? 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 what who's going to know what about anybody? If they can shape shift, you can be butterfly across the border. There won't be any borders just because there's no point in it. <laughs> Well, it, then it, becomes, it becomes pointless. You got to ask a butterfly for a passport. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's funny. Mm. Yeah, it, and it becomes ridiculous is... at that point. So there just won't be any borders because that's a ridiculous three-dimensional idea. If it's even three-dimensional, I'm not sure what dimension it is. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a ridiculous. very old one. Let's put it that way. An old, yeah. worn-out shoe. <laughs> and I know you, you'll be a crow in anywhere and show up in a room and go, oh, I thought you were a crow. No, I'm, I, it's Tara. <laughs> well, you know, all these crows around this neighborhood in Santa Fe know Rama now. Oh, I know they do. And, and I know. Oops. Rainbird? Rainbird, did you knock yourself off? Uh, Dougie, what happened? Did you help us? Rainbird got lost. Okay, well, we'll play the music. And uh, thank you, Rainbird. You're off there flying with the crows. <laughs> And, Rama, what do you have for us tonight? This is Alan Watts. The less you seek, the more you'll find. <coughs> the less you seek, the more you'll find. Okay, let's hear that one. There was a moment there where I really thought it was going to pass Pause, take a breath, and reset your mind. Download Mindset and listen to your favorite inspirational speeches to unlock your full potential. Ever since I can remember, I found the universe absolutely amazing. The fact that I existed at all seemed astonishing. If there is any such thing at all as intelligence and love and beauty, well, you found it in other people. In other words, it exists in us as human beings. And as you explore deeper and deeper and deeper into the nature of yourself, you find that you're a rhythm doing a rhythm. Because the universe is fundamentally a system which creeps up on itself and then says, boom. And then it laughs at itself for jumping. Uh, for my philosophy, the particular living organism, which is inseparable from a particular environment, that is to say from the universe as centered here and now, there's something real. It isn't a thing. I call it a feature of the universe. But what we call our ego is something abstract, which is to say it has the same order and kind of reality as an hour 
or an inch, or a pound, or a line of longitude. You can think intellectually in a no-think way. That's the art. It doesn't mean not to have any thoughts at all. It means not to be fooled by thoughts, not to be hypnotized by the forms of speech and images that we have for the world, not to be hypnotized by them into thinking that that is the way the world really is. We understand everything in terms of words or numbers, and they're stretched out in rows, in lines. And our eyes have to scan those lines in order to understand them. But when I scan this view, I don't do it line by line by line. I see the whole thing at once. And I suppose then our difficulty is that we have lamentably one-track minds in an infinitely many-tracked universe. And we may have to come to the alarming conclusion that the universe is smarter than we are. Why is it that we don't seem to be able to adjust ourselves to the physical environment without destroying it? Why is it that in a way uh, this culture represents in a unique fashion the law of diminishing returns, that our success is a failure, that we are building up, in other words, an enormous technological civilization which seems to promise the fulfillment of every wish almost at the touch of a button. And yet, as in so many fairy tales, when the wishes finally materialize, they're like fairy gold. They're not really material at all. In other words, so many of our products, our cars, our homes, our food, our clothing, it looks as if it were really the instant creation of pure thought. That is to say, it is thoroughly insubstantial, lacking in what the connoisseur of wine calls body. And in so many other ways, the riches that we produce are ephemeral. And as a result of that, we're frustrated. We're terribly frustrated. We feel that the, the only thing is to go on getting more and more. And as a result of that, the, the whole landscape begins to look like the nursery of a spoiled child who's got too many toys and is bored with them and throws them away as fast as he gets them. Also, we're dedicated to a tremendous war on the material, the basic material dimensions of time and space. We want to obliterate their limitations. We want to get everything down as fast as possible. We want to convert the rhythms and the skills of work into cash. Serial procrastination is something that affects 80% of the population. Even high-performing, intelligent individuals suffer Which, indeed, you can buy something with, but you can't eat it. And uh, then rush home to get away from work and begin the real business of life to enjoy ourselves. You know, for the vast majority of American families, what seems to be the real point of life, what you rush home to get to, is to watch an electronic 
reproduction of life. You can't touch it. It doesn't smell and it has no taste. You might think that people getting home to the real point of life in a robust material culture would go home to a colossal banquet or an orgy of lovemaking or a riot of music and dancing. But nothing of the kind. It turns out to be this purely passive contemplation of a twittering screen. As you walk through suburban areas at night, it doesn't matter in what part of the community it is. You see mile after mile of darkened houses with that little electronic screen flickering in the room. Everybody isolated, watching this thing, and thus in with no real communion with each other at all. It has been said that our modern systems of communication are an extension into the external world of man's nervous system. Telephones, telegraph, radio, television, all this network of electronic devices is extending our nervous system in the same way as a wheel extends our feet. But consider the extension of the nervous system electronically means the end of privacy. The inconvenience of everybody being able to barge in on us by telephone. Double that inconvenience, treble it with the inconveniences you can imagine for a future technology where you would not only have the sound of the person's voice on the telephone, but also their visual image. It can be so worked out technically that everybody can be equipped with a little gadget about the size of a pocket watch. On one side, there is a dialing system, and on the other side, there is a little TV screen. And everybody in the world who possesses one of these things has a number. And if you ring it and the number doesn't answer, your friend's dead. Imagine. Because you can't not answer. That would be unethical. That would be inhuman. That would be to advertise yourself as dead. You must answer. Everybody is in touch with everybody else in such a way that it reveals their inmost thoughts and there is no longer any individuality. No privacy. Eventually, after attempting to control your thoughts, you would say to hell with it. I'll think just the way I feel like thinking. Now, what we're afraid of, you see, is that some power will control all of us by this method. Thirteen thank yous, honey in the heart. No evil, live long and prosper. And so it is. Until we meet again, everyone, come and see Cheryl Croce tomorrow night and Monday. The meditation work is profound. It keeps us uh, in alignment with the highest good of all concerned all the time. 
So I'll give this number very quickly. It is 425-436-6260. And the PIN code is 946-7441-POUND. It's tomorrow at 7 o'clock Mountain, 9 o'clock Eastern. And we spend about three, three hours together. Aloha, everyone. Adios. Namaste. Aloha.